<laughs> how was your space yesterday, man? man? It was great, my brother. But I'm I'm looking out. You know, I like COVID topics, man. So yeah, definitely interested in this. <laughs> but I, I I don't, man. I don't. I think you're alone, man. I I I. Uh... Man, I'm not a fan of COVID topics. They get too polarizing. Man. <laughs> you got you had quite a big space yesterday, Nelson. On this, yes, sir. Well, not yeah. I mean, it was uh, what you have two thousand people. Uh, I, I around there. It was a great space, but um, I mean, let's talk about it, Mario. Let's go, baby. Let's talk about it. <laughs> I have to say, I find it very unfortunate that COVID topics do get us polarized because it should have never really been that way. It should have just been, you know, open conversation, honest, let's just explore, let's be honest about things, let's just talk it out. And instead, it just got so polarized, and you watch it become that way, and it's just so unfortunate. And and the narratives got so extreme on, on both spectrums, it's just sad. The, the, the problem is you can't find a lot of people on the other side, like, so I, I have a lot of respect for, for you, Dr. Goo, coming on to spaces to actually help uh, balance out the panel. Um, because, oh, you know, you so there, yeah, because there are a lot of people that, you know, that, that won't do that. So, uh, yeah. so I mean, I feel like that's one of the most valuable aspects of Mario spaces for sure. Well, yeah. Thank you so much, Nick. I, I agree with that. And I appreciate also from you guys, you know, it's really hard to have, um, discussions about polarizing topics like COVID, which I agree should not be polarized um, without it delving into ad hominem attacks and, and all kinds of crazy things that both sides engage in, you know, and, and um, I'm just glad that we have this space and thanks Mario for, for having Guys, us. Guys, I have a, I have a question for you before we kick off the space. Like why do you think it got so polarizing? Why is this people that just, you know, I was looking at some statistics, but politically, you got um, 53% of Republicans that have a Democratic friend and 36 or 8% of Democrats that have a Republican friend. That was during the Trump era. And 15% of people lost a friend uh, because of politics. Um, now, that's politics. And, you know, we did a space about Brazil's protests yesterday. They were <laughs> – the polarization there was <laughs> almost – I'd say worse than the U.S., which is, you know, it's, it's hard to beat the U.S., um, yeah. What, what got what got COVID to become as polarizing as possible? This is so it, this is the fact real, that it, it was the real mind virus that we're facing now. Is that we are systematically being divided right down the middle on everything. I have not seen a single discussion that hasn't somehow gone from right to left. I joke that we should do a knitting like spaces and see how long it takes for us to to be divided up on on any subject by political parties. So for me, this is this is the real problem that we face as a society now, is it's getting more and more divisive. Every the, every sort of six months, it seems well, to be getting more extreme, more divisive. Well, this, tu- this touch on invasion of, of humanity and physical body, which is the most important tenet of being a human. So it doesn't get much more deeper than affecting not just your pocketbook, but your kids, yourself, your health. It's bigger than any... Yeah, the, the, the flu... Is the flu or the, the, the you know all these different is cancer politicized the same way? It's not like well, okay, but, so, no, we're reflected so the government. The government he, forces he, you to he, exactly, he, exactly because we had a lot of that in you know it, uh, across the world, right? But people in the United States are used to to especially large scale freedoms, right? So when you have a government that is trying to force you to get vaccinated, using especially people like OSHA. Uh, it, uh, entities like OSHA that are, you know, trying to force employers to fire people for not getting vaccinated. You, you, it, it creates a lot of resentment. 
uh, and, and people push back pretty hard. Yeah, well, one, one thing that I think uh, can be uh, misunderstood or not understood well enough uh, going into this COVID thing is, is you have two major aspects of this that have developed over a little bit of time, which I just seeped into the COVID debate, which should have been a medical issue where we we're just trying to figure out what's going on and then what do we do about it. So the two things are this. The first one is the growing uh, amount of dollars that come from government entities into scientific research in general. So that, that kind of opens the door for some degree of the political aspect to get in there. Then when you add to that, the fact that outside of the medical issue, this whole debate on climate science has turned into a massive political issue because of the implications of, uh, of, you know, how people perceive approaching that, that I think that that has seeped into the medical community in a way that helped, uh, I, I mean, I, I think it's what caused the explosion of the COVID issue in particular to become a political one, because we, we, we started to make all of our debates over science uh, center around only a political debate as it was related to climate science. So I think those two things have, have led to what happened with the COVID issue, I think. I think you're correct in that the politics side of it is that the fact that there was already this political uh, divide that COVID kind of came at the time of the height of that political divide that everything, everybody wants to put everything in these categories. It's like, okay, if you have one opinion that might align left or one opinion that it might align right, you know, people just automatically want to put you in a category just based on that one opinion. And so COVID kind of came along. And so it became this very politicized thing, except instead of being about science. But I think also, what was happening, I do think social media has quite a role to play uh, because it allowed much more extreme narratives to take hold uh, and play up to the audiences and, and allowed certain people and politicians to sort of, uh, um, you know, use that to mobilize large groups of people and sway them and uh, use extreme narratives because people really respond to extreme narratives. If you look at people who have very large followings, uh, very often they play using extreme narratives and it works. So I think that has a really big impact. And then on top of it, you know, we've got... Um, and then we've got a lot of corruptions in the institutions. And then we have suppression of speech, which builds a lot of distrust, which makes it even easier to sort of manipulate people with these extreme narratives. So I think that contributed quite a bit. But, but as well. again, just Here. to add on to what I was talking about, because I think it relates to this is through the climate debate. So this whole concept of climate denialism. Uh, now, the social media space lends itself potentially to exactly what you're talking about, Catherine, but I, but what has really uh, caused the whole science debate to go into this is that this, this concept of climate denialism really caused a lot of people, and I think particularly on the left, to say, you're going to destroy the planet and you're a denier because you disagree with us on where the climate debate is going, uh, that, that that was already happening in a fairly large way, or at least it was growing and developing. 
as we got into this. Now, as it comes to the climate science, and I know I'll be slightly partisan saying this, but just to make the point, as it comes to the climate science, I don't think it's been anywhere near as clear in climate science what's actually going to happen to the planet. But when it comes to issues like COVID, which have a very acute and clear uh, medical outcome that's playing out, uh, that's a more clear science in my mind, but then you injected this uh, desire to shut people down who who disagreed. But again, keep in mind, research, most scientific research has some form of government funding, and I just think that injects something into this, which makes it even worse. Well, well, the only thing I'll push back on, Jim, is that I don't think it is so clear uh, because there is so many studies. I think it's so complex, and I think a lot of people have simplified things that are very complex. And uh, and I think there is also this sense of like, hey, we have to understand everything. And the layperson, hey, I, I have this reach of the Internet and, and all these people that tell me these things, and maybe they have MD behind their name. and uh, So I can understand this because I listen to these people but even amongst these people there's vast disagreements and these studies you know it's it, they're complicated things and there may never be a complete understanding of everything there may never be this settled science so this idea that we um, have this full understanding I don't think that's true and so um, we don't have uh, agreement and 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 we need to be okay with that too you know one of the um, one of the things i've i've noticed i mean you know when we come to climate science there are you know there's 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 very clear data um that we can study over the last sort of century or two since the industrial revolution and we can say you know there is more atmospheric pollution temperatures have risen we can physically see the melting ice caps. Maybe that's a complete coincidence, but there's certainly evidence. With COVID, it's actually a lot more difficult because it's also new. You know, if, if we talk about in particular, um, you know, obvious, obvious recent um, questions, going back to the, the heart issues, um, a lot of people, you know, ignore the fact that COVID itself creates heart issues. And billions of people have, have not only had vaccines, but they've also had COVID. And how can we judge at this point, whether it's the vaccines uh, that's that's creating these potential issues, or the fact that billions of people have also had COVID, which we know also has, and I think this is absolutely open for investigation and must be investigated. But we've, we've had decades to study our climate. We've had, you know, 24 months at most to study COVID. So I completely agree with Catherine that actually the COVID debate is, is probably more open. The other thing I find really interesting, and I'd love to know whether my perception is right. There's three big subjects we've discussed, you know, recently, um, you know, COVID, obviously, um, climate change, Andrew Tate, they're all very, very different subjects. But I feel that the perception is if you're anti-vaccine, you're deemed to be right wing. If you're pro-Tate, you're deemed to be right wing. If you're a climate change denier, you're deemed to be right wing. How can three completely different subjects with, with, with completely different demographics interested in it be somehow divided into left and right? Because I personally have mixed feelings on, on all those areas. I, I certainly believe that, that there is a strong case that the vaccine may be causing medical issues. But I also believe that we have to study whether COVID itself is actually the cause of these medical issues, because most of us have probably had COVID now. And if, if there is a spike in, in heart um, health issues, why are we saying it's the vaccine for sure, 
but not saying, well, hold on, let's not forget that COVID also causes health problems and particularly with the heart. So these are just, uh, yeah. you know, we're talking about just how strange it is that we're divided into oh, right. get, I don't I'll think get, any of these well, topics. I'll, I'll get, I'll get Jim. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to get Dr. Nathy quickly to reply because I want to start reading this, the, the files. That's why Joanna and, and Jim um, and, uh, and Lindsay as well. But Dr. Nathy, you've had your hand up for a while. I'd, I'd love you to respond and then we'll kick off the, the drop. Uh, thanks, Mario. And quickly, um, what I'll say to the question that was asked earlier is how we got to this position. Uh, and my take is, um, as uh, Jim Pfaff also just said, COVID was just a convenient um, arrival in um, a process where we all being engineered uh, towards some unified narrative on how things operate or as the WEF has declared themselves. Um, this was an opportunity to use a crisis to actually direct how people um, behave going forward. There's obviously a, a big, drawn narrative that's actually been promulgated. And having been involved from early on uh, before March 2020 in uh, interpreting and trying to make sense of what COVID meant, um, somebody just said now that COVID is new. COVID is not new. We had SARS-1 in 2003. Uh, and I was a trainee in, 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 in intensive care at that time. Um, and exactly the similar things that came up now on COVID were done in 2002. Some people suggested them, but no government actually took them up. Um, so at this point in time, or rather in 2020, uh, everybody just saw an opportunity. By March 2020, if you spoke to people who really knew um, the real fatality rate of COVID, it was clear it was not an existential threat. So the issue was how do we manipulate, how do we use this so-called crisis to actually channel human beings into a directed narrative? Um, uh, and, and, and it was really just that from, from my side. I worked in an ICU, I ran a COVID-19 ICU. And uh, to respond to some of the other things that she came up from some of the other guys, um, we, we never saw in three waves that I worked in an ICU for COVID. We never saw heart issues related to the virus uh, itself. Uh, all these mushrooms later on. So th there was this predetermined uh, thing that I think possesses an opportunity. It, it, it climbs onto uh, um, climate change. It climbs onto many other manipulated narratives that you're seeing. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Doctor. Uh, I'm going to kick off the files, and then we'll go to, obviously, Joanna. You've got a lot to say to, to uh, Dr. Uh, Nathie mentioned, I'm sure Lindsay does as well. Molly, good to have you as well. Um, all right, Catherine, Nick, you ready? We are ready. Um, so, yes, so you guys read it already. Uh, you both read it already. And, and so I'm going to start going through the, the, the thread and then we'll continue on the sub stack. For everyone in the audience, it's pinned above. Ian will be joining us later and Alex Berenson as well will be joining us, the person that, the, the journalist that did the drop. So, um, yeah. So, Mario. Go ahead. Before you start, I think it's really relevant to share that the interesting dichotomy of the politics that was mentioned is that Alex Berenson leans more to the left and Scott Gotelab is more conservative. So knowing that we have these stigmas attached to certain viewpoints here, we have one party that was sticking to a certain narrative as far as COVID goes, Alex Berenson on Twitter being silenced by someone from the other side. So I think this makes for a very interesting viewpoint as we go through the, the Twitter files to um, know that, that it's not 
uh, you can't just divide down the middle of one side being one way or the other just because it's painted that way by the media. So yeah. that I, for you. Uh, it's a fair point, but I think there's always going to be so. If, if for Alex being a person on the left uh, that has a viewpoint that's critical towards vaccines, I think you'll find people on both sides of the aisle that you know it's not a hundred percent split. So I think you'll find people on the right that are vaccinated and that support the vaccine, and then you'll find people on the left that are that are against the vaccine. They've got their concerns. Um, so it's a valid point that it doesn't apply to everyone. It's not a line in the middle. Um, but I do, f- I, at least from my experience, and I could be wrong, just I do sense it is like everything is in one way or another being politicized for various reasons. You know, politicians are trying to rally, um, rally an audience, rally voters. Um, and anything that's on voters' mind could become a tool to get votes. Um, so it's just a, a misalignment of, I was watching a, a, a discussion between uh, ben Shapiro and the lady from the Young Turks. I haven't finished it yet. And they were talking about how there's just a misalignment of incentives. It's just the incentives are in the wrong place. And that could be one of the factors. I think it's multiple factors. It's a very complex topic that's leading the, to the politicization of everything and, and to the polarization of politics. But I will kick it off. Um, I appreciate you sharing this, Lindsay. So, yeah, Nick, I'm going to go through the thread first and then go through the substack. Do you agree? Yes, sir. Uh, let's do this. Uh, I'm going to read it out. Do you want to read it or do you want me to read it? What do you think? You've never read one before. Do you want to read it? You want me to read the whole thing or give us an option? Uh, no, no. Read out the whole thing as, as Ian usually does. Do you want to give it a shot? You've never done it. Let's see how you go. Sure. Uh, thread or Substack? Just Start with sure. a thread. Okay, start with a thread. All right. Uh, so Alex Berenson, this was his, uh, it's worth mentioning, this is his first Twitter files report. Uh, he did mention in his Substack that uh, that he did spend the week, uh, last week actually, in San Francisco at Twitter headquarters going through Twitter's database uh, to search and find this information. Uh, the most important part to know about this is that Scott Godlieb, who was uh, the former Food and Drug Administra- uh, Administration uh, uh, commissioner, was actually the one that was... Uh, uh, or sending things to Twitter's lobbyist there in DC. Uh, he's a four, he's a Pfizer board member, um, and he was he was tagging a tweet that was related to uh, one of the doctors that was saying that natural immunity was superior to vaccine immunity. Um, and then Twitter all of a sudden put a misleading tag on the tweet, which is exactly how Twitter 1.0 was before. Prevent and, and that was preventing it from being shared. Um, uh, so I'm gonna I'm been... gonna kick off. I'm gonna read it out, uh, 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 Nick, and then you can start commenting on it. So one, my first Twitter files report: How Scott Gottlieb, a top Pfizer board member who Nick you were just talking about, used the same Twitter lobbyist as the White House to suppress debate on COVID vaccines, including from a fellow head of the FDA. Thanks, Elon, for opening these files. And they got a, a Substack link for anyone that wants to link. It's pinned above for anyone that wants to read it. Someone go through it. In August 2021, and by the way, Catherine, I think you do have, you and Sam have concerns on how this was worded, so I'll let you comment later on 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 how this was covered because this is Alex's first Twitter drop. So number two, in August 2021, Gottlieb told Todd O'Boyle, a senior manager in Twitter's public policy department, that tweet from Dr. Geroyer claiming correctly that natural immunity was superior to vaccine immunity was, quote, corrosive and might go, quote, and might go viral. Twitter put a misleading tag on the tweet. So based on Gottlieb's recommendation, they put a misleading tag on the tweet, preventing it from being shared. Gottlieb then went after a tweet 
uh, Gottlieb then went after a tweet about COVID's low risk to kids from Justin Hart. It'd be good to invite those people, Romy, if you're listening, to get Justin Hart and I, Dr. Garoy. I've been in contact with Justin uh, via DMs. We'll see if we can get him in shortly. He's on a plane, he said. Go ahead. Uh, okay, cool. appreciate it. Um, and Justin Hart is following me as well. So, yeah, Romy, it'd be good to invite him. Pfizer would soon win, uh, so put a misleading tag on the tweet, preventing from being shaken. Gottlieb then went after a tweet COVID li- by Justin Hart about COVID's low risk to kids. Pfizer would soon win the okay for its mRNA shots for children. So keeping parents scared was crucial. Okay, so I guess Catherine and, and uh, Sam, this is where your concern comes in. It's just a, too much opinion into the thread. Not just that. Okay, there's more. Okay, we'll see. Yeah, we have multiple concerns. Okay, okay. And oh, it's such so a much, so thread. much. Okay, all right. So, so in October 2022, Scott Gottlieb claimed on Twitter and CNBC that he was not trying to suppress debate on mRNA jabs. These files prove that Gottlieb board member that Gottlieb board member at a company that has made $70 billion on the shots did just that. And I'm going to open up any comments before I open up the Substack and start going through that. Joanna, do you want to kick it off? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I think, yeah. So you know what? I think we'll go to Sam for, cause I think he went through the study. So for, for tweet number two, where he's, uh, saying that, uh, he's Dr. Gear claiming correctly that natural immunity was superior to vaccine immunity was corrosive and might go viral. So I think the concern that, that the tweet might go viral is, is, is a legitimate concern. However, um, but, you know, I'll go to Sam because he, he read the study. And so yeah. there's some clarifying points there. I'm, I'm going to say this is going to upset people. Elon is molding this debate by giving these these uh, leaks to people that, you know, confirm the bias for a start. We we know that Alex Berenson is an anti-vaxxer, so he was given this to study. That's, that should not be, you know, we should have some people who are at least impartial over time, not completely on one side of the debate, but... Let's get let's get serious. The tweet said it's clear natural immunity is superior to vaccine immunity by a lot. Nowhere in the tweet or in the substack does it mention that the report actually says that um, individuals who had been infected with COVID-19 who were then given a dose of the vaccine gained additional protection against the Delta variant. That's in the report, but it's not in the tweet. And, and that is the reason why the tweet was flagged, because the report itself states that if you'd had COVID and you were then given a vaccine, you had better protection. But the person who put this leak together has completely omitted that. He's taken a photo of the report, so you actually have to like look it up yourself rather than link. Um, and, and the whole thing falls apart for me on the fact that he's, he's missed out one of the most important elements of the report, which is actually a very short report. It's probably 500 words long, and then obviously you can go in and read the full PDF behind it. But it it would not have been difficult to see that there was a clear statement in the report that said, if you'd had COVID and then you received a dose of the vaccine, you had better protection. That's not, why is that not mentioned in the tweet? And why is that not mentioned in the substack? Molly, do you want to respond? And, and go ahead, Dick. Yeah. And I just want to add that it's important to also note that he wanted the, the, the post to be tagged as misleading. So he wasn't calling for censorship or removal of the post, but misleading. And that in the context that Sam just provided seems accurate to to put in so yeah if somebody wants to uh yeah but, but if, Kat, if but Mari, Catherine, you want to call this this scott gottlieb guy is on a board of pfizer right why, 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 that is why, correct why he is have authority to control the narrative the narrative 
in the way he's censoring it that clearly benefits the company that he sits on a well, board for. So, Jim, I so he should not have an authority to censor, but you're using the word censor authority. He is suggesting this to Twitter. That is correct. And he may have undue influence on Twitter. That may also be correct. But is his statement also factual? And I would say that his statement is factual. So is he allowed to say, hey, this is not accurate? Am I allowed to say, hey, this is not accurate? So, so now, I don't have... Would you would you, say, would you say would you say I think you're both right? Like Catherine's point, and I'd love Dr. Molly's uh, uh, comments on this, uh, on the medical uh, medical claim being made. But before commenting on that, the Nelson's point is that maybe in this instance is not the, this is not the best example. But having someone who's on the board of a company making billions of a topic that Twitter has influence, like imagine imagine um, a mining company asks Twitter. Um, one that, that mines rare mineral, minerals asks Twitter to kind of censor a phone company that's not using their rare, rare, their, their rare metals. Yeah, but Mario, I don't think that's a good example. I think a good example would be if somebody said something about your product that was not true, should you not have a right to contact the company that facilitated that to go public and say, listen, this is not accurate. Can you take a look at it and please put a note on there? That's what we're saying here. This isn't third Fair parties. Point. This is the company. This is the company that produced the vaccine saying this report clearly did not say what this guy is tweeting. Can you at least flag to the public that this this tweet is not accurate? I think it's fair enough to be honest. Like, Molly, what, problem, what are your thoughts? Problem, I agree. Though, the problem though is asking for censorship of somebody's views. That is actually where we all thought... It's not censorship. Censorship is not the word. I mean, we're talking about this with Community Notes. I tweeted Elon the other day about this, and and Community Notes are looking at this. I think people don't understand what the the notes and thing is about. It's not about censorship. It doesn't change the underlying tweet. I do agree that the issue would be if the tweet became invisible. I agree with that, Um, and I I understand that. And and the way that Twitter are evolving now is to ensure that the original content is still completely visible. But this isn't about censorship. On a quick note, on just what was actually read about the say national immunity. The problem with approaching some of these things, again, somebody made a mistake to say COVID is new. We cannot rewrite medicine from one disease. Medicine is a long uh, discipline of decades of ethics around it and biology that actually we know. There is nothing that changed just because COVID came. Natural immunity has been proven to be effective. There was no lie in the statement. There was no need for somebody to write that. If you actually just go back to simple medical text, you'll actually read that. People that had SARS-1 in 2003, 17 years later, when the studies were done, still had immunity to the similar virus. We can argue about COVID. But that is a different topic. I mean, naturally... 1.5 might not even be COVID. So what is actually going on that we try to string something where the genetic lineage of some of these things is so diverse that Actually, from the first Wuhan virus to where we are now, we might not even be dealing with COVID. And yet we're still taking injections to the same original disease or virus that existed in 2020. So there's more... The issue is the report... Sorry, Dr. The the report actually said... The report actually said that natural immunity plus a vaccine leads to better outcomes. No, that no, is no. not that's what the tweet said. So I do, I've got, completely uh, talking, no talking about COVID, talking about COVID, guys, talking about COVID, I'll bring Dr. Sied up, but talking about COVID, um, so so uh, Damar, Damar Hamlin, who we covered in a space a few days ago, he has been released from hospital and he's heading back to Buffalo less than a week after he collapsed. So 
that's some good news there. We'll hopefully get more clarity that's on that. Great. And last I heard that there was no, I would love any comments and, and I just want to make sure that it, it, we have the facts that um, myo, was myocarditis ruled out? It's not comocortis. Uh, cause, I forgot what it's called. Cortis, whatever it was called. They, Go ahead, Nick. They have not commented on okay. that. So we have no official on statement that. on whether it's myocarditis or the cortis one. What is it called? Mocortis? No, sir. And I, I have a feeling we're never going to know um, officially because unless they re- – like the hospital is not going to release those records. Uh, it would have to be uh, – they would only release it if the if Damar had given them permission to do it, and I seriously doubt that's going to happen. So M- M- Damar will probably sell the story to some big uh, media company and then disclose it then. Um, that's my guess. We'll see. Um, well, that would be smart. Um, what's what's <laughs> that, what's that, what is it called? Cortis or something? What is it called? Commotion Cortis. Yes, yeah, so I, I want to go to, to Molly. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, would love your comments on that uh, before we... To Molly, Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, would love your comments on that uh, before we continue reading the Substack on that particular... A debate um, about whether the, the you know the, the natural immunity. I'll read out the, the point again. In August 2021, Gottlieb told Todd O'Boyle, a senior manager at Twitter's public policy department, that a tweet from Dr. Garor claiming correctly, he says correctly in capital letters, that natural immunity was superior to vaccine immunity was quote corrosive and might quote go viral. So, uh, Molly? Uh, Dr. Molly stepped oh, okay, away okay. to do her uh, doctoring, so she'll be back uh, in five cool. minutes. I will just, I will just clarify one thing, uh, just to respond to that point, is that natural immunity, that is something that is is debated natural immunity has been considered for a long time as a superior thing to getting a vaccine. Um, so I don't think that's what we're really debating. Um, I mean, we are dealing with a different virus. Um, this is one particular study. There may be many other studies. So what we, I think it's important for us to focus on this specific thread and these specific phrasings and w- words in this context. So, um, you know, uh, whether natural immunity was the superior course of action for COVID in general, uh, that is, I think, is, is a good um, discussion. And there's many, many good points to be made there. It's just something that I think is, is like a separate topic. Yeah, on just, its own. just to clarify, though, be, be aware that um, that is important as to this part of the files that Berenson's rolling out. But since then, the uh, and, and there was a real emphasis on uh, natural immunity plus vaccine at that time. That sense is not nearly as clear as it was being made out to be at that time, and Alex is actually probably very sensitive to that. So we can think about that. Yeah, we're we're bringing we're bringing Alex up now on stage, uh, Jim, as well. He's just uh, loading. Okay, go ahead. Well, I think I think That's a good another, point, pers- Thank another you. perspective to this though is that you must remember that we or many countries went into lockdown way before vaccines were available. Some places in the world did not go into lockdown, went to partial lockdowns or no lockdowns at all. So the claim that vaccine uh, immunity in addition to natural immunity is better is actually grossly unfounded because many other people had been exposed unless we were locked down. Um, many other people were exposed to the virus before. And we've known before that actually natural immunity is actually superior or, or is actually just as effective. Maybe I won't say superior, just as effective. So now when we go to the point of mandates, we're ignoring the fact that people who were infected actually did not need 
And only, the only thing you prove with the vaccine is that you add antibodies. You don't prove that it's actually prevent disease better. You can't because if you already are immune, how can you prove that having a, a boost of antibodies makes you better suited to fight a bug? So I think that was because the study was based on uh, the study was based on patient outcomes, and I believe there was about one hundred and fifty thousand plus outcomes that were studied. So it's not based on just blood I've, tests I've, and antibodies. Uh, just on quickly, Sam, if you don't mind, Alex, I've just sent you through an invite. Um, you should have it if you leave the space. And maybe try leaving the space, because uh, or request to speak again. I'll accept it. Or just okay, it works. Hey, can you guys Alex, hear me? We can. How are you? Can you hear me, Alex? Alex. I mean, he has his mask off, but we can't hear him. Alex, can, can you, you hear me? Hear? <laughs> Captain, you're wild. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, we can hear you fine, man. We can hear you fine. Oh, oh good. Uh, congratulations on your first Twitter fast job. Okay. Sorry. Can my, you hear me? I'm, yes, I'm on the. I'm in a car, and I, it's not, I keep getting called. I, I can hear you fine. Ah, perfect, perfect. Well, I was just, I was just congratulating you on your first Twitter files drop. Thank you. Um, so before we kick off, we read through the thread. We haven't read through. A lot of people in the audience might have read it themselves. We didn't read through the Substack live on stage. So yes. maybe um, we'll get, we'll get like a quick. I know you don't have a lot of time, but we'll get like a five-minute summary of. What your findings were and what the Substack really covers, uh, just sure. for the audience here. Sure. So, by the way, I, you know, I know that the trend with the Twitter files has been to put, you know, the sort of entire story on Twitter. And I decided I would take it in a different direction and keep it short because, I, you know, I, I feel like some of the best stuff, you know, for example, that's come out of Matt's has been kind of low in the threads at times. And so... Uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have the impact of a short thread. So that's why I did it that way. Um, the whole stacks, um, most everything is available for free. Um, you can get almost the same content. I have a delay for a couple days. I really want the largest money possible. Alex, uh, I've, I've got. Uh, I think we're yeah, yeah. Alex, uh, I, I was just waiting. Alex, do you mind? Uh, can I ask you a question? Do you, when do you arrive? When I know you're driving at the moment. When do you arrive to the hospital, to home, or to wherever you're going? How long do you need? You're muted, by the way. You just got to unmute. Oh, I'll be there in about two minutes. Ah, perfect, perfect. Uh, so I'll keep you on space, uh, so you're still on the stage. And then as soon as you arrive there, can you just put your hand up or just unmute and speak so we know you're there? Just because the co- will, connection's will, choppy. I will do that. Ah, perfect, okay, Alex. I'll do it. Literally, it should be about two minutes. Perfect, perfect. Thanks. All right, cool, cool. I'll wait for you there. You can stay on stage. Thanks, Alex. Um, Eugene, I see your hand up. Why don't we... Yeah, go ahead, Catherine. No, I was just going to go to Eugene, so that's perfect. Ah, beautiful. Same, same line. Oh, perfect. Oh, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, so... I'm kind of on my lunch break in between seeing patients, so I'll probably just say this, and then I might have to jump. Um, but what I just wanted to uh, comment on was the science behind natural immunity versus the COVID vaccines. Um, I think this is one of the cases where I would agree that uh, the science would be pretty dubious to say that natural immunity is superior to vaccines. Um, I would imagine, you know, as a physician and and learning about other diseases like chickenpox, usually it's the case that natural immunity is superior to any other kind of intervention. Um, 
it doesn't mean that everyone should just get, you know, sick with chicken pox or sick with COVID and then that's how we're immune. Um, I do believe in the, in the efficacy and, uh, of the vaccines. Um, but in this case, I have to follow science over politics. And I think most of the science, you know, throughout history would demonstrate that natural immunity for most illnesses are superior to the vaccine against those illnesses. Um, so I'll just um, end here and let you guys continue to discuss. But, you know, thanks for having me. Okay, so it seems- Mario. Yeah, go ahead, bro. I, I, I just want to highlight that that was from a medical doctor on the stage. And, you know, Sam, you know, I love you, my brother, but that, that goes against everything you were saying. And it brings us I'm, back. I'm reading, I'm reading data and, and, from 100,000 yeah, people. Yeah, 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 but, Sam, but, but Sam, we just had but two medical doctors. Medical experts. Sam, we, yeah, Sam, it doesn't matter. They didn't put together the Sam, study. Sam, 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 Sam. Just because a medical Sam, doctor Sam, doesn't Sam, mean Sam, you're losing a battle. In immunology. Sam, you're losing a battle. Nelson, you're losing a battle, I, Sam, okay? Sam, you know I love you, my brother, but you're losing You're losing now I use. What did you use the mute all button? I use the mute button. I think you're both right. Honestly, I think you're both right because I think there's a lot to natural immunity. Uh, I think that, as Eugene said, as as Dr. Eugene said, as as many doctors have said, I've spoken to many people, but also we're this was this tweet was in reference to a specific study. So in terms of accuracy, we're talking about a specific study. So yeah, I agree with you. We've we've gone too broad. We're talking about a the accuracy of the actual leak here and the validity of it um you know based on the fact that like a very pertinent part of the study was left out of the substack and the actual and the actual tweet itself um and and obviously yeah this is we're, we're discussing a study i i i've absolutely i've said 100 percent on these spaces that i believe that the covid vaccine needs a lot more investigation I've, I've, i'm not a denier of that I'm not 100 percent behind it but i'm saying that you know we're looking at a specific study here and and did twitter oppress something wrongly um based on a specific study uh, that's that's what we're discussing all right so and we should say that i want to yeah so just quickly alex did suppress something that was actually fact alex alex yeah we can hear alex we can hear you can you hear us so yes i can um this is a bizarre discussion there's zero question as a general rule of immunology that natural immunity is superior to vaccine generated immunity across almost every disease. I, I don't think anyone's found an exception yet. I just say almost to protect myself a little bit. But in the case of the COVID vaccines, uh, natural immunity is far superior. That's been demonstrated now in huge epidemiological studies. But, but over the report and over that you again. cited, Alex, the report you cited specifically said that um, a previous infection of SARS plus a single dose of the vaccine gave better protection than just an infection itself. You did not mention that in your tweet or your subs or your sub. Um, that, that's, that's, that's why that's did you irrelevant. leave out such What's a problem? Is whether or not it's irrelevant. Oh, sorry, I let you. I let so Sam. Sam. I let uh, Alex. This is, this is yeah, I let you. So Alex, I want to. I want to. If you don't mind, Alex, just to, I, I want an overview because I was going through sure. the um, Substack. Um, and I was about to read it for the audience. But if you can give us, you were trying to give us an overview earlier sure. and it dropped out. So we'd love an overview on what your findings sure. were um, from that, uh, from the, the files that you read and you summarized in your, in your sub stack. Sure. So, so, um, so again, this stack, uh, I, just a very quick because I don't know when I dropped out. My sub stack is called Unreported Truths. I've been uh, doing it since uh, last May. I've had a sub stack. I was not the first person to Substack, but uh, but you know I sort of joined, uh, you know I would say in the middle of the Substack rush, 
Um, uh, and I've written almost exclusively, not exclusively, but almost exclusively about COVID and about the vaccines. Uh, I joined in part because I was concerned about the pressure uh, of the Twitter regime. You know, the Twitter regime seemed to be facing. Um, but in but in any case, and by the way, anyone can join the Substack. It's free. You can also pay if you want. The content is roughly the same. Um, so I, you know, I do that because I want the largest audience possible for for my stories. And fortunately enough, people have joined that it's become something that supports, you know, me and our family, which is which is great. Um, so in, in any case, the, the the piece, this piece, which is the first Twitter files piece that I've written, um, is about a guy named Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Scott Gottlieb was the was the head of the FDA from 2017 uh, to early 2019. He was a Trump appointee. Um, he, he's a physician. Uh, I don't know how much he really practiced before he, uh, he's, he's one of these guys who, you know, has spent time at think tanks and, and, you know, consulting, uh, for investment banks and, but, but he is, a, you know, he's an MD and I think he did practice some, then he joined the FDA. He left the FDA, uh, uh, joined the board of Pfizer. Um, and when COVID came out, you know, when COVID, when COVID emerged, um, became a big voice, uh, uh you know, sort of, you would say a centrist, conservative voice on covid um uh and he called for lockdowns and he he called for uh you know contact tracing a lot of pretty aggressive public health interventions and again he's on the board of pfizer so it turns out that dr scott gottlieb in 2021 as the argument over vaccines came out he also he's on cnbc he's uh he's on cbs this morning a lot he's a very public figure he was secretly going to twitter to complain about uh, about tweets that that you know that raised, I, I would say raised problems for Pfizer about you know about about the vaccines. One you know in one he he didn't like me personally. I know this independent of these files, but one tweet that said that natural immunity uh, is superior to vaccine immunity, which to my mind again is not even a question, and we we could have a long debate about that, but it's not even a question. And then a second tweet, interestingly. Um, that didn't have seemingly direct bearing on the vaccines, but was about uh, school closings and how dangerous those might be uh, for, uh, you know, for kids. And so that was happening at a time when it was pretty clear that vaccines for five to 11 year olds were going to be uh, approved. And I shouldn't say how dangerous the school closings were. I should say how dangerous COVID is to kids. And so if parents don't think COVID is very dangerous to kids, they might be less likely to run out and get their children uh, vaccinated against COVID. And in fact, the majority of five to 11, 11 year olds have not been vaccinated against COVID. And in Europe, that's even more true. So, so, so Dr. Gottlieb, I would say, was secretly interfering with debate around the vaccines in a way that benefited a huge company of which he's the director or a director and which paid him almost since he joined the board has paid him probably in the range of a million dollars. So, so to me, that's a pretty significant story given his profile. Alex, did, did he go straight from being the commissioner of the FDA to uh, being on the board of Pfizer? And I muted you by the way, Alex, just because there was a bit of feedback sound from your end. So I just, you can unmute and continue speaking. Alex, you're muted. Um, uh, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah we can. Yep. Yes. Okay. So uh, he, he he there was a three month uh, uh, gap. I don't know if that's the minimum legal period or not. Uh, he left the FDA, I believe, in March 2019 and joined Pfizer's board in uh, 
in June 2019. And by the way, he's not just one of the board members of Pfizer. He's one of the seven members of the executive committee, and he's the head of the regulatory and compliance committee. So he's a, even though he hasn't been on the board that long, he's a very senior member of the board. So I was just wondering, uh, because the tweet uh, that you posted, it, um, it, it is labeled as misleading, but it wasn't removed. But you do refer to it as censorship. How, why do you view that necessarily? Why do you use the word censorship? Well, since it wasn't because, because the tweet removed. can't be liked or shared. So it, it, it does limit the, uh, the reach of the tweet. I, I think, you know, essentially okay. you only see it if you were following Dr. Gerard. I mean, what 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 Scott Gottlieb said um, to uh, to Todd O'Boyle, who's a Twitter employee, um, who and I think this is not a coincidence. Uh, Mr. O'Boyle was um, uh, the same person who the White House would go to when they wanted information censored. Um, and so so what what Gottlieb said to O'Boyle was uh, this is this this could go viral. And when you put these, uh, these these tags on it, you prevent it from doing that. So so Gerard only has a few thousand followers. So essentially, those are going to be the only people who can see that tweet. Was and do it, you think that... Was... Go ahead, Catherine. Oh, I'm just wondering, do you think there is the reason that he was listened to is because, like, where does his influence come from? Because he's the head of this company that is an advertiser, because there's greater power, or is it because, like, you know, Twitter might think, oh, he has a point, and that's their internal mechanism for moderation. So, so internally, they rejected this effort I mean, at, at first pass. And then at some point, this was slapped on anyway. Um, why uh, that happened at, at this point, I don't know. And that, you know, that's certainly that, that's a, you know, that's a possible follow-up story. Um, I don't think Scott Gottlieb went to Todd O'Boyle and said, you know, we, you know, we, we spend 30 or 50 or however many million dollars or, you know, 10, however many million dollars it is a year. I don't think he had to do that. And I don't think he would do that. Um, uh, he, th- you know, this is where the, you know, influence is influence, right? You don't, you don't, you don't tell people how important you are. They just know that you, you know, that you're on TV all the time and you're in touch with the white house. Cause Pfizer was, we know in touch with the white house at this time and that, you know, you you're upset about this, and they can respond or not. I mean, the, this is this is how the world works. So Alex, can you can clarify? Ask you, you can ask you very, oh, Alex, can I ask you very directly, just just to understand this? So the the tweet in question said, "Natural immunity is superior to vaccine immunity." The report said that if you're previously infected and you had a dose of the vaccine, you had additional protection. So, do you not understand where there's a contradiction there, and why did you not include that very pertinent thing in your Substack? So, so there's natural immunity, right? There, which is immunity post-infection. There's vaccine-generated immunity, which is vaccine immunity in people who have not been infected. And then there's what is sometimes called hybrid immunity, although it's not really clear how much of a thing that is, despite what vaccine advocates like to say, which is you are infected and then vaccinated or vaccinated and then infected. The comparison is if you have been vaccinated, and haven't been infected, 
how likely are you to become infected versus if you were infected in the past, how likely are you to be reinfected? But why why only those scenarios? Why only those scenarios, Alex? Why are you dismissing the scenario of someone who's been infected and then had a vaccine who has a better chance of not getting COVID? Why are you dismissing that as though it's completely irrelevant? There are are literally hundreds of millions of people in that situation and you're saying it's irrelevant, so irrelevant that you chose to leave it off your substack. Is that not just confirmation bias that you went into this process wanting to, to confirm your own biases so you decided to leave off the only part of the report that very clearly stated that the vaccine plus a previous infection gives you higher immunity why would you leave so, that let off? Alex, so, so let again, Alex reply please Sam. first of all there's first of all there's uh, epi data from very large studies following this showing that uh, hybrid immunity isn't actually superior to natural infection that basically two shots plus infection is the same as infection alone and I'm glad to send you those studies since I don't think you're aware of them Second of all, this tweet wasn't about that. This was about somebody comparing natural infection and vaccine-generated immunity. And this tweet said, was like, Sam, 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 please. Sam, please, yeah, just to, to get, I'll, I'll let Alex make the point. I, I understand your concern, Sam, but yeah, Alex. Please, 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 yeah, I will, I will tell Sam, yeah, whoever muted now, just, uh, I just did. Yeah, Alex, I'll let you reply, um, and then we'll go to Molly if you don't mind. So, Alex, do you want to finish your reply? Just you got to unmute, please. Uh, Alex, you got a, a mute. Sure. Thanks, bro. Um, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go around in circles on this. I've said what I've said about it. Yes, family's been dropped. But you can't. But guys, guys, guys. Sam, I understand. I understand your concern, Sam. I think the the audience understands the concern as well. Um, and Alex replied to it. I do because the report is pretty in depth. So, so the both points were made. I do want to go to Molly. You've been waiting patiently for a while, Molly. Hi, this is Dr. Rutherford. I know there's, I know the great Molly James is on as well. So just wanted to clarify, this is Dr. Rutherford. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, the, the study that claimed that hybrid, so-called hybrid immunity was better. I think it was based on antibody levels, which is not really a good endpoint, um, to determine if immunity is better. Um, so I just wanted to say that, and you know, if want, someone wants to argue, um, feel free. Yeah, I think it's a it's a point discuss the point we could discuss a bit later as well after because I know Alex doesn't have a lot of time, so I wanted to ask him more about okay. the report and anything else he found. But okay. it's definitely a discussion worth having after Alex uh, jumps off. Um, yeah, right. sorry, I let you finish, Molly. Okay. Yeah, I uh, just Dr. wanted to I just wanted to mention like in August of 2021, I was on um, Kentucky Tonight on a live program, KET which is the PBS channel in Kentucky. And I argued with, or not argued, but we had a discussion, kind of a debate. It was me and four other doctors. And I met, and I brought up natural immunity at that time. And by this time we were seeing breakthrough infections, um, so-called breakthrough infections of people who were fully vaccinated. And so it was clear that this, that this so-called vaccine did not work. Um, I just wanted to uh, bring that out as well. And I think I've shared that, that episode if anybody wants to go back and watch. Um, but I, I wanted to take this opportunity to um, just thank Alex for his reporting and also just to reiterate that w- we know enough now that these shots really need to be stopped. Um, they, they are causing more harm than, than good. They're not helping anyone. They don't work. Um, so I just, I wanted to get that in before I have to go. I've got patients to see, and then hopefully Molly James will chime in as well. 
Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Rutherford, and good to have Molly James here as well. Uh, before we go to Molly James and Our Voice Matters, um, Lindsay, Nelson, and Tara is back with us as well. Um, I want to get another question for Alex. Anything else? That you, so one point that I see that you've really highlighted, and I'm sure Nick has more questions for you, Nick and Catherine. They've read the report uh, before I did, so I'm just reading it now. Um, there's a, a, a serious conflict of interest on who had influence on censorship, without getting into specifics, within Twitter. Would you say that will be the highlight of your concerns from the report? Uh, the the question is for you, Alex. You just got to unmute, please. Uh, Berenson? Alex Berenson? You got to unmute, bottom left corner. Uh, perfect. Hey. Yes, yeah, good now. Sorry. That's okay. um, yeah, no, no, thank you for that. Look, I, I, I'm very frustrated, actually, with where this has gone because it doesn't matter whether... Brett Gerard said that the moon is blue and the vaccines make your leg fall off. Okay. He has the right to say what he wants. The fact that he was right about this and that natural immunity is far superior to vaccine generated immunity is almost irrelevant. It's not irrelevant, but it's almost irrelevant. And I'm really sick of people saying, well, prove it. Like it's not Scott Gottlieb's place to say what can and cannot be said on Twitter. And it's frankly not the federal government's place to say it. The federal government is the most, the U.S. federal government is the most powerful voice in the world. It's the most powerful force. It's the most powerful voice. If it can't overcome me and a few other people raising questions about these vaccines, then the vaccines don't work. Okay. It's that simple. All right. And I am sick You just dropped out, Alex. Oh, you're back with us? Scott Gottlieb. Oh, you're back. Yeah, yeah. Alex, you're back. Yeah, yeah. You just dropped out for a bit. Yeah, yeah we, we do, we okay. do. Uh, and and your, your message – yeah, I, go I, ahead. I, I yeah. Just, I, I, I'm very frustrated with this, and, I, and, I, and so – I think someone keeps calling him. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so, so, Nick, I know you have a question for him, so I'll let you jump sure. in and ask the question. So, Nick, Nick has a question for My you, Alex. Sure. I, have, I have a question sure. for uh, you yeah. as well. So, sure. so maybe yeah, sure. So, we've got two last questions, Nick and Tara. Go ahead, Nick. Alex, so uh, so you, you did get this this conversation. You did get to read the uh, the emails between uh, Gottlieb and um, and Mr. O'Boyle. Were there any responses to him that are notable? Uh, so 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 th- so to be clear, so and this is where uh, you know this is the first story. There will be more. I did not see the full uh, conversations. Okay, so one of the and I talk about this in a previous Substack that that I published yesterday. There are multiple databases that Twitter is searching here. Okay, it is searching, uh, it is searching its Slack channels, it is searching its email, and it is searching something called Jira, which is an internal system where they handle tickets, right? So, 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 let's say somebody's impersonating Joe Biden, and the White House is upset about that. Well, they would go to somebody. This is a good use of this. They'd go to Twitter and say, you know what, this is guy, this guy's impersonating. And we need to, uh, you know, you got to pull them. And that would get moved to a JIRA ticket for a quick response, quicker than what you or I would get if someone was impersonating us. Okay. So, so what I am seeing, because this is what is searchable quickly, is what was said in the JIRA tickets. Okay. It is not the full panoply of what Twitter employees were saying to each other on Slack, it, much less in other channels, so like a text or a you know, phone, obviously that's gone. It's not even email. So what Todd O'Boyle and Scott Gottlieb were talking about outside of JIRA, I don't know yet. 
And and that's true. You know, some people want the Fauci stuff, too. Right. They want to see. But because those searches are complicated and going to take a while, that's going, uh, you know, it's it's not something we can do right away. But I felt that this story showing that, uh, you know, a director of Pfizer had interfered um, with debate about the vaccines and then came on CNBC barely two months ago and said, I didn't do anything like that. Uh, to me, that was a significant. What, what did he what did he say? What did he see on what did he say on CNBC recently? So so this was uh, in October of this year in response to a story that I wrote about Gottlieb um, uh, trying to censor me personally. OK, separate from this other stuff. He tried to censor me personally. And he also same thing. He went to Twitter, tried to censor me. OK, so he said in response to that, I only. Someone called you again, Alex. About the of Tony Fauci. Sorry. Can okay, you hear me? Oh, good. Yeah, we can. Yeah, yeah. He said, I was worried about the of Tony Fauci and vaccine advocates, and that's why I got involved in this. And that that's clearly, I mean, you can read what he was actually worried about when he emailed uh, uh, Todd in regards to this tweet about that Gerard sent. He's worried about, um, he's worried about, something negative about his company's vaccine will go viral. So that's got nothing to do with the safety of vaccine advocates. It's him trying to protect his company's interest. And that's... So Alex, we do have Nick, do you want to go go to Tara for the next question? Well, last thing, then I got to go. Yeah, go ahead, Tara. Um, Alex, my question was, first of all, I want to say I'm sorry on everyone here's behalf for the way you were treated after coming in here and taking the time to do this because you are the first one out of everyone who's released any files to come in and do this on Mario's space. So appreciate you taking the time. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you think, and obviously this is probably more of a personal question, that lives would have been affected or perhaps saved had this information not been censored? And what recourse do we have now? Where can we take this? Is there legal action we can pursue? Or do you already know sure. that there's anything in the works? So, so I, too, I mean, I think it's too early to know at this point what the net benefit or cost of the vaccines is. I genuinely think that it, it looks worse and worse and worse as time goes on. Um, I mean, clearly last year, there was a period of time when infections went way down and deaths went way down. You can see clearly it's what I call the happy vaccine valley. Uh, in my in my uh, book, Pandemia. But that 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 era is long gone. And I think we're at a point of net negative right now where we wind up. I don't know. So so but what, what I would say is it doesn't again, it almost doesn't matter. What matters is that for the purposes of science and public discourse, debate should be open. People should not try to censor dissenters, even when they're wrong, even when they're saying crazy things. Let it work itself out. Okay. In terms of the uh, in terms of the question of um, de- debate, uh, or I'm sorry, in terms of the question of what can be done, the short answer is probably nothing. The companies have incredible legal protection um, uh, on this stuff. Now, I'm personally going to sue Pfizer as well as the White House for their actions in in getting me banned from Twitter. Um, and as part of that, hopefully, you know, I'll get some discovery and see what they were saying to each other. Um, but but in terms of larger issues of legal liability. The companies have incredible protection. 
So, so, I, so I, 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 then I gotta go. I have. Um, All right, cool. I'll let you go. Really quickly, Alex, I have other people who are filing lawsuits as well. If you'd like to DM me or have a way, a channel of being able to contact you, if there's an email address or anything, let me know because I can connect you to those people as well. Cool. Alex, it's a pleasure to have you. Tara is the co-host. You can message her to be connected. I appreciate making the time and joining us, and we'll be continuing discussing your job uh, on the panel here but it's a pleasure to have you on thanks a lot Alex you're muted other, by the way I'm not sure if you're trying to speak you are muted but I appreciate you being on the panel man um, I, I do want to I'm not sure if Alex is still with us but I do want to uh, pose a question for the audience first Joanna I'd love you to respond to the points made by Alex to see balance out the discussion and uh, before we go to other panelists with their hands up you with us Joanna yep I'm right here um, just for the audience Hi, everybody. I'm, I'm Joanna. Um, I'm an ICU doctor, actually. Um, I work out here in NYC, and I have a bit of a cold myself, but I think these are such important spaces, and I love to, to engage, um, given my background as an anesthesiologist and uh, intensive care physician. Um, so, you know, hearing a lot of the things that Alex had to say, I think it really belies the concern for the conflation of science and politics and, um, unfortunately, the suppression of information amidst uh, debate. And we need to be able to have comfortable conversation. And the fact that um, Dr. Gottlieb, who was the head of the FDA on the board of Pfizer, um, interfered with um, and perhaps encouraged the suppression of that debate is of major concern. Um, I think that there's an in inherent conflict of interest, you know, by nature of the fact that he was on the board of Pfizer, you know, the, the fact that um, the fact that we were unable to have these discussions and there was fear of retribution uh, among among physicians and scientists alike. Um, so I, I am just very grateful I have a, um, for his presence. I have here. a question for you, Sam, and anyone else before we go to Justin and Nelson. Um, so there was a, a piece I'm writing, uh, I was reading today about, and it's going to be covered in a video, which I might share uh, here in the space. It's about a... a, a an outlet called Vancouver Times, and they wrote a piece about the founder or, or no, sorry, the CEO, ex-founder or ex-CEO of Twitter, I think, can't remember, um, about him, about Elon giving a tip to the authorities, and they arrested him for for having child pornography. So that story spread like that was a yeah, I know, a I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but that paper. So the thing is, that story was was posted. And the, it didn't mention at the bottom that it was a parody. And that's why they're making a video about it. Even though the paper is known to, to have a lot of parody stories. But all it takes is one person sharing it. And then it just blows up. So it blew up on social media, especially Facebook. But my question is, for a story that everyone knows, including the, the source says, hey, this is not true. But then people are sharing it as if it's fact. Um, is that something that, would you say this is something that should be censored? Or even in cases like this, as the previous panelist uh, mentioned, just let let these things work themselves out. Uh, what's your stance, guys? Like, is there anything that should be censored, even if something that is agreed upon from the source that is untrue? Yes, Maybe. no, it shouldn't be. That's what community notes are for. You can add notations on the facts, and that's about it. I don't think anything should be censored, unless it's something illegal. Right. Labeling it as a parody cleared it up really quick, and then everyone knew it was a parody. But removing it just creates more, it creates the Barbra Streisand effect where um, you're, you're getting everyone to, to look away from what was removed to try to figure it out and uncover it. And it ends up getting more focus and more um, discussion around it. So I think 
really it does work itself out like alex berenson was was mentioning earlier as well uh, uh sam i believe you brought this up actually to elon you actually you tweeted this out to him and said that community notes needs to act quicker yeah it was really just to give community notes a uh an option to be to be flagged so if you see something that you i think people understand what community notes is it's not censorship community notes is a, is a kind of consensus mechanism where there are you know large numbers of people who have applied to be on community notes as as effectively moderators and and if enough of them agree that something is is valid um of of receiving feedback then that feedback will be published so effectively my my comment to elon which he's tagged community notes in to to set up was um that we should be able to flag something that we believe is incorrect and then the community notes team would then look at it you know thousands of them um and if enough of them believe that it's incorrect then they can put a note on that's how community notes works it isn't censorship it's a consensus mechanism with i believe thousands of people and there are queues of people um you know in the system to try it's, it's the same way that wikipedia works that if there is enough consensus but wikipedia actually has less consensus mechanism um in it on community notes one person cannot just publish something and it goes live it has to be agreed by many other people within the right system. so i'm so, i'm actually a member and of i think it's the point i'm actually a member of community notes and so i go on there and people people act pretty quickly right but there there's a lot of bias right that is still put into these things so it takes you know an hour two hours at a minimum to be able to get enough of a consensus to be, to put that notice on the tweet so I think that's the issue. That Can you fix the community note, Nick? Once a community note is put in place, if it's inaccurate, can it be it fixed? It can be fixed. Yes. Okay, because I got back. community. I got a community note claiming that I I like plagiarized a photo or uh, had like cha- altered it, and that that was the response from community notes, and it was in fact not an altered photo. I took a screen recording of it as well. Right. It was a tweet of of Elon Musk that had been flagged by twitter and then i i got accused of uh like editing the photo i guess so right. i thought that was pretty bizarre I, I do believe there was an well it kind of goes back to uh w- w- the conversation i just want to hear what nick has to say really quick i just want to hear in regard to that what were you going to say sure. nick? so elon musk had a tweet at some point i would have to go back and look to see which one it was but there was a note that was actually updated that said at the time we did not have this information in terms of uh, there was a lot of "quote unquote" evidence that the tweet was misleading, and then the, there, after some further uh, information had come out about the situation, the community notes team actually went back, updated it, and said, "Okay, here's a correction, and this is the new information we have, so the tr- the tweet is accurate." That's that's the one. That's the main one that Thank I know you. of. Thanks, I appreciate that. Sorry, Catherine. Yeah, no, I just I was just going to say that it kind of goes back to what um, Alex was saying uh, when we talked about, you know, what, why he deemed uh, the tweet, uh, what was going on with that tweet to be censorship. He said that it wasn't allowed to spread or sh- to be shared, you know, and so the, the limited visibility of that tweet is what made it in his eyes uh, censorship, whereas community notes is a completely different thing because it just adds context. It might not be perfect and you know, there is bias and all those kinds of things, but it's a tool. And I think while maybe an imperfect tool, it it gives context and, you know, people can use it or not use it versus like something like uh, when um, there's actually limited reach and and Twitter actually implements those things kind of behind the scenes. So that, that, that I think is a very important. I want to go back to the fire. Sorry, go ahead, Sam. 
No, just saying, I think Catherine's 100% right. And I think that the new version of Community Notes would have allowed that tweet to, to have full exposure, but with the caveat that obviously the report was uh, was cited where it contradicted the tweet. And then people could then draw their own conclusions whether they believe the report itself or the tweet. And that's how it should be. You know, that's not censorship. That's just allowing people to see, you know, what goes on behind the scenes in these tweets. If they're talking about a report, but they choose to omit something essential from the report that contradicts them, then they're effectively censoring people from understanding the truth themselves. So I think community notes should end up being really useful. Uh, I want to go to um, Nelson and then Justin. Uh, Nelson, what's up, man? Yeah, M- Mario, I appreciate you, brother. Um, Sam, man, I, <laughs> you know, it's it, it, it's funny as to how you keep bringing this up in regards to the fact that, you know, saying something in the report, you know, contradicted a tweet itself. You know, that's been cleared up here probably four times already since I've been on stage. But I'll, I'll skip that for now because I know you're about to jump off your mic and interrupt. Let me finish first, okay? <laughs> Here, here's my here's my conclusion on this, right? Censorship equals curiosity, and that leads to division, right? Which makes this COVID topic very polarizing, right? Because that's exactly what happened. You had censorship, people started asking questions, and people started getting divided. You know, that's why even though I love you, I love Jonathan Bing, we disagree on everything, right? We're divided, right? So... And, you know, just going back to these Twitter files, you know, for someone sitting at the board of a vaccine maker, you know, having access to social media companies to censor information that goes against their vaccine for the purpose of maximizing profit and revenue is wrong in any way you look at it. Right. Whether you're left, whether you're right, that is absolute BS, complete BS. And that's that should be one thing that we all agree on in this room right now, right? I, you know, I do agree with you, Nelson. But the fact is that the actual report contradicted the contents of the tweet about the report, and that's the only issue that I've got. Oh, yeah, the report yeah. did. The report did say that if you add a, a, add the vaccine onto natural immunity, so what your so, so Sam, immunity. what your what your concern is, and I know you can, it, it got a bit heated earlier, but what your concern is that there was something in the report that was omitted. Um, intentionally to kind of confirm a certain point, and that's so. Your your concern is not with the point itself; it's just that how this was written. Is that is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I just feel that you know the actual the actual study, uh, the synopsis of the study was really short. It was literally a few paragraphs, um, and everything we've seen so far. The tweet that was in question, the the Fauci files leak, uh, the Substack all left off the one sentence in the report that basically confirmed that according to their study, which I believe is about 100,000 people, um, they said that natural immunity plus the vaccine is more effective than natural immunity. That has not been said anywhere. So this is where community notes would be absolutely fine. Someone can say what they believe, and then somebody else Did can they, say, uh, ah, but don't forget. There are, I, I will say right now, there are, there are pending community notes for that tweet. And, and by the way, let, let's just keep in mind here, let's, in terms of Alex, so, uh, yeah, that, apparently it seems that, that that aspect of it was omitted. But, but what Alex is talking about in this drop is far bigger than what the, any omission of that might uh, draw concern for. So, so this is a broader issue. And, and I just, I just want to go back and put a point here on misinformation, disinformation. I just, I just want to reiterate, and some people have heard me say this before, but one of the greatest protections of the First Amendment in the United States uh, 
is the allowance for misinformation and disinformation. Like the reason for the First Amendment is that there will be misinformation, there will be disinformation, although those words were hardly ever in our vocabulary until the COVID thing came along. But but the reason that that kind of stuff's protected is because in the broader debate, when people get it wrong in a malignant or benign fashion, then we figure it all out in the end. And that's why this debate is so important, too, because people appreciate uh, others being held accountable. But it, but if it, it, it is not um, uh, censorship on Alex's part if he doesn't do everything perfectly. It is censorship that his imperfection cannot be processed in the public debate. And I think that's what's very significant in just what we went through on, in here a little bit earlier. Before, before I go, but before, if we only have one, we only have one source. I think like Elon, what's Elon gave one very un- unfortunate is that uh, rather than people who had very pertinent questions to what he did, uh, getting to ask those questions, that Sam was here to once again derail the conversation and sort of just make it about the Sam show. And it's so frustrating as a listener to be pulling my hair out and screaming at my phone, please do not treat him that way because we have him here. They don't show up to these spaces, Sam. And unfortunately, he was so frustrated, he didn't want to be here anymore. That's, that's that true, is though. just, not- that ends up just making the conversation worthless. That should have been a very valuable conversation to get to have with someone on how he was given the files, what the protocol was, how this all happened and came about. And rather, you're getting hung up on little minuscule details that he did or didn't release. Todd, and that is, minuscule- to me, extremely unfortunate. I don't, I think the topic is huge and I think you are pinpointing something minuscule to make it about yourself and overcomplate your ego, which is extremely frustrating for a lot of people to listen to when there are a lot of people with important voices who were shut down right here on this space who needed an, an opportunity to ask Alex a question and weren't given it because of you. And Sam, I think that's just very frustrating for a lot of us. Uh, Texas Lindsay is one of them who joined the space, was up here, was removed, and unfortunately didn't get the opportunity to ask her question. She was re- censored from Twitter for standing up against the vaccines, of all things. Were you, Sam? No, you were not. That would be a good opportunity to be quiet and let the important topic be talked about and then afterward you could share your issues with Alex or whoever and by the it way, may the, be. The key issue to this drop is not uh, having to do with does vaccine is natural immunity better than vaccine plus natural immunity. That's not the key issue here. Here's the key issue. The key issue of this drop is there is reason to believe not Alex Berenson's motives but Scott Gottlieb's motives because he's on the board of Pfizer and had a financial interest. So you can get through all the little details uh, like that, but the key issue is the financial incentive of shutting down people people's opposing speech. And we have got to make sure that we address that in the rest of this, because that's the key issue here. And we can well, go into those little details, but but that's what's really problematic about what's going on here is the financial interests. I want to, I want to, Jim, and that's what I want to ask you, Mario. What is your intent? What is your intention with doing these spaces? 
what is the intent of all of this? If it's not a means to an end, if it's not to help people or to connect the dots or to get the proper people and proper channels up here at the moment that you have someone like Alex up here, what are these spaces for? Is it just a show? Is, is the drama adding to the show? I don't understand. And I'm trying to. Yeah, so, so Sam, uh, the concern that you had, that, that, that Sam had, and I think it got too heated, I did DM Sam about it as well, is that it wasn't about the point of the, 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 um, the drop, is, uh, the, the point of the drop that was made. And I did mute Sam a few times. But Sam's point was that the, when someone shares uh, a particular fact and omits a part of the report, it's worth noting, but I think Sam noted it, but then kept pressing and pressing on it. Um, to make you feel better, Sam, that the, 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 the doctor did have to jump off anyway, so he actually stayed over time. But I do agree with Tara. I think um, mentioning the point once, he responded to it, and then moving on, because we did have a lot of other speakers that wanted to ask questions, would have been um, the, the, the better path. But I'll let you respond, Sam, because Tara you know, spoke to you. That's your job, Mario. You're the host. Yeah, yeah, I did. Tara, Tara, I understand. I, I wouldn't, I, I don't like, Tara, Tara, okay, I'll respond. I did mute Sam and I did DM him as well to stop interrupting. I was on the verge of no, removing he's him. Taking up a speaker yeah, position. He was a speaker position because so, he does so add I a lot of. Speak, I didn't speak for twenty minutes and you just spent five minutes. Yeah, go ahead, me. Sam. I'll let you respond. Tara, you, Tara, the point is, Tara. This was not. Tara, I let Sam respond, me, please. The point is, this was not a small thing. This was a part of the report that completely contradicted everything that was being said. There was a confirmation bias here. Uh, he, he was given a report to confirm his own anti-vaccine points, and he left off the one part of the report that completely contradicted everything. And when I asked him about it, he completely dismissed it and jumped onto the next topic. This isn't a platform for people to just come and push their agendas for us to listen to. Okay, I, I don't have an agenda on this. I'm reading the report and giving my opinion. And, and if we ask somebody to answer a question, you know, we should expect them to answer it. This, this was not a small question. This was a part of the report that completely contradicted everything, the entire basis of his argument. And rather than respond to it, he ignored it. So, you know, I appreciate oh, the feedback. But so I, I believe I believe Jim made a point here before uh, that's worth hitting on a little bit is, is we've now seen that a former FDA commissioner was, who is now a board member of Pfizer was pushing to silent speech, especially one that was under Trump. That's one of the most surprising parts about it. But what we don't know right now is how many other people involved with the federal government, especially the FDA, had a lot of uh, had a heavy hand in this where they're uh, because obviously he was done and in, in Gottlieb was out in 2019. Who came afterward? What did they say afterward under Trump and Biden? There's a lot more to this that we don't know yet, which is it's going to be interesting, and I'm really hoping that'll come out soon. Yeah, and just... no, I think these are very valid questions. We we need to know the answers to these. But I'm just saying that I don't think this leak shows us more than somebody's confirmation bias. I'd like to see a lot more. We'd like to see in, independent people That's studying so this untrue. data. That is not confirmation bias. The leak, the Twitter files, I'm guessing is what you're referring to, shows the proof that we've been waiting for that people were wrongfully banned. So what... If you believe uh, that to be the case, I've read it and I don't believe it to be the case. So so we're allowed Uh, to disagree. But they gave it to someone who had a clear position on the subject. They didn't give it to someone who's neutral. They gave it to someone who's for the last two years. And so do you, Sam, and you're not a doctor or a lawyer. Tara, guys, I do, I do, guys, guys, I do, I don't want to move on. Sam, Sam, Tara. Justin, you've been waiting for a while. I'd love you to, to take the mic, man. 
Uh, yeah, double cheeseburger. I'm going to need a Frosty. Is this a Wendy's? <laughs> no, Betty. Yes. Oh, oh. Will that be credit or cash? Oh, sorry. We don't take cash anymore. Oh, okay. Well, guys, thank you for having me on. I'm actually in a cab right now. I had a feeling that Alex's file might be uh, mentioning me, and I happen to be in flight back home from a long weekend. So I'm just grabbing you. Hopefully you can hear me okay. Uh, as sort of context, uh, I'm the, the, the founder sorry, of Sorry, just quickly, Brown. Justin, before you continue speaking, I'm not sure, just the co-host, sorry, uh, Justin, I'll give you the mic right after. Uh, but just please stop bringing up speakers. I see speaker after speaker. We have uh, doctors that are invited to join, and the panel is full. So uh, just DM me if you want to bring up speakers. Okay, I'll drop you. Sam. I'll drop Sam uh, to bring up the doctors. No, no, no. So don't drop Sam yet. You're just welcome. To, to, and Tara, that wasn't nice at all. Too late. That, that wasn't nice at all. Sam is, you don't know the background. Well, the, do- the, the people you're dropping should be up here because no, so they have, are the doctors. So, so, Sam so Tara, number one, Sam has helped do, to do tremendous research for various spaces. So brought a lot of input. And the other thing, one of the main things I focus on with every single debate is to keep it balanced. To keep the discussion balanced. That's the, there's a lot of spaces that are, Pro-vaccine, vaccine is the solution for everything. And there's a lot of spaces that a vaccine will kill you and, and it's really bad. What I'm trying to do is bring both sides together. So people that agree with vaccines, people that disagree with vaccines, people that are on the left, people that are on the right. And it's a really tough job that goes on in the background, a really tough job to bring both sides together. Wait a minute, Mario, time out. Didn't Sam just sit here and say he's not one or the other? So I don't Sam, understand. Sam, so he Sam is, is one or the other. So the, I'm not, I'm not going to put words in Sam's mouth. But if you want to bring anyone up, just DM me, DM the team in the background. It's doing a really hard. We'll do. Uh, sure. doing a hard. We'll do. Uh, doing a, a lot of work in the background to bring a panel. I would love to give everyone a voice, but as long as we try our best to keep every single panel uh, balanced. But Justin, really apologize for, for interrupting you, man. What was your Wendy's order, man? No worries. So, uh, yeah, I had a feeling I might be mentioned in Alex's uh, drop there. I was on a plane and someone... Uh, yeah, the, the short of it is I, I run the, a ragtag group of analysts and activists, moms and dads called Rational Ground. We've been going from early on We've been at war for, with Scott Gottlieb for a long time for his strong advocacy to close schools and lockdowns, uh, the quarantines on the slightest exposure. Uh, those of us who have kids know that uh, even though the schools were technically open in the fall of 2021 when I made this tweet, we were going through this terrible, uh, very unpredictable wave where uh, the slightest exposure that your kid had to a positive case within school would send them home. Uh, my wife, and I, Jenny, and I have eight kids between us, and we had uh, four at home. And uh, from, I think, October, from maybe from Halloween on, we had a kid at home every single day uh, until Christmas because uh, they all had, like, different types of exposures. And it was all nonsense because none of them had any sort of, you know, any sort of symptoms or anything else there. So we've been fighting this cause for a long time. Uh, I myself was suspended by Twitter in the summer of uh, 2021, right around the time that Jen Psaki made that infamous presser on July 15th with Vivek Murphy. Uh, with the Liberty Justice Center, I've sued them. Uh, we sued Facebook, Twitter, and uh, we also sued uh, the White House. Uh, the attorney's general lawsuit that's been going on has been more successful than ours. Ours got moved to the uh, Northern District of California, where it was assigned to a uh, Judge Breyer, who is not the retired SCOTUS Judge Breyer, but is the brother of SCOTUS, Judge Pryor. And he's actually not the worst judge in the court, but he's not going to do me any favors. And 
kindly, he actually left it open, but he dismissed it from Facebook and Twitter until we could find more information. We found a lot of information from FOIA information, especially around Facebook. So I'm not surprised my name came up in the, the midst of this whole thing. And we'll see where it comes out. But in the end, you know, my my, my statement or my tweet that he, uh, he wanted to take, take down was pretty spot on. We know that very kindly COVID spares our children in uh, significant ways. Uh, one study across 16 countries showed that compared to an 80-year-old, which is the average age of death, uh, someone who is under the age of 10 has a, a chance of dying that is 100,000 times lower than their great-grandparents or grandparents and who are octogenarians. So I'm not surprised the censorship has gone on. Uh, I fought very strongly. I've been working with Jay Bajtaria, Scott Atlas, uh, many others who are speaking here, Jeffrey Tucker. I see Steve Kirsch here. And we basically have formed a sort of ragtag network behind the whole scenes trying to fight the policies, which were dominating our jobs, our church, our barbershops and the like. And Scott Gottlieb was sort of target number one in many cases because he was on the air all the time uh, trying to advocate for closing schools. Uh, and then uh, when it became you know, obvious that he had to shift gears, he would shift gears. So uh, I'm not surprised he came after me. And you, you said there's litigation against the, the, you say the White House and Twitter? That's right. I was one of the first ones to file litigation against uh, Twitter, Facebook, the White House, uh, Jen Psaki, and Vivek Murphy. We've got numerous FOIAs that have come back from that, including information where Facebook gave uh, the CHHS $15 million And much of the same stuff has been revealed here Twitter files. I may lose you in just a second, but I'll be coming back on. Yeah, yeah, I think you're you're starting you're starting to lose us. You're already starting to lose us. Um, I'd love to give them the mic to to uh, our voice matters. You've been here and Lindsay as well. You've been waiting for a while. Uh, thanks, Mario. So um, right now, the argument that that Sam Sam was making was very much around um, on a very granular level, meaning um, he's picking one part of one part of the Twitter files and he's focusing on that. The reality is um, what he's actually focusing on and the data that he's focusing on is two, three years old now. So I've just recently, um, you know, posted the Australian New South Wales data and I did tag you in it, Mario. Let, let me let me read it to you guys so that way we could clearly understand what's, what's going on. So Australia is one of the most highest vaccinated countries in the world. And right now, the hospitalizations and ICU stats shows this. The number of vaccinated people that entered the hospitals and ICU with COVID was for the last six to seven months in my state, 99.79%. Unvaxxed, 0.21%. Let me give you the number breakdown. 14,853 people were vaxxed and 31 weren't vaxxed. That's over a seven-month period. So much for the pandemic of the unvaxxed. Further to that, Mario, we only had 906 COVID deaths in 2020. Zero excess deaths, right? Now we're moving into, well, we've just moved into 2023 and the 2022 numbers are out. Australia is facing 25,000 excess deaths. Now, for all the audiences, for the audience that doesn't know the stats on the vaccine uptake um, between America and Australia, uh, America's vaccine uptake is roughly around 60 to uh, around the 60% mark. 
Australia's vaccine uptake is 90% mark, is the 90% mark. So it's, it's all good and well to sit there and talk about these old Pfizer studies and all, and, and carry on like, like you're so confident with the data. But the reality is, guys, we're, in, we're still in the middle of a clinical trial. And unfortunately, the people that have taken the vax are the test subjects. And now they're being over um, represented, uh, like they're being, um, what's it called? The, the, the numbers are now stacking up in hospitals, in excess deaths, in ICUs. There's undeniable proof. Peter recently um, uh, tweeted about an article that I, um, uh, that I worked with uh, Greg from uh, uh, America Out Loud. Um, and basically, I've broken down all the data. Now, the best thing is about my state, and I'm going to land the plane right here. The best thing is about my state, on a weekly basis, our government gives us the deaths, the hospitalizations, and the ICUs for COVID. And I'll tell you guys this. Go have a look at the numbers. Only 20% of the population have taken four doses, but yet they make up 40% of the hospitalizations. Like, if that doesn't ring alarm bells, I don't know what does. And Sam, you know, I appreciate, you know, the opposing voice, but please stop citing data and studies from 2020. We're three, like, we're three years on, we're four years on from this madness, and you need to start looking at real life data, then anecdotal data that, that was pushed out without enough um, test subjects out there. That's all I've got to say. Okay, well, one thing I want to take a little moment to sort of refocus the conversation a little bit. So we are in a little bit of a different time frame right now, and especially with Twitter, with Elon buying Twitter, we've got a lot more freedom. You know, we have this opportunity to have these spaces like this. We can talk more freely. And so I wanted to pose uh, a question to to you know, the participants in this space, like um, we are able to have conversations that are more free. We are able to exchange data more freely. There's less suppression of uh, scientists and, and the discourse is different. So does this change things um, as far as how we can treat COVID and how we can talk about it, but also, you know, in, in the scientific community, um, how things can be dealt with in a more sort of um, neutral way that's less politicized, that's more science data oriented. And I would love to, in particular, maybe hear from um, some of the science, you know, doctors and medical practitioners in the space. I don't know, Mari, if you have a, a suggestion of, of who to maybe go to for that. Uh, Please, so, uh, Lindsay, go ahead, Lindsay. Texas Lindsay, she took unmuted. Um, I was just going to jump in. I think the the one thing that we're we're a little off base on with everyone talking about data and who's pro vaccine and who's anti vaccine, the basis of Alex Berenson's Substack is the point that there was collusion with someone and our government and Twitter. I don't know if the government aspect has dropped yet, but Alex has written about this before about Scott colluding with the White House and members of the White House to censor. And so this debate is amazing and everyone's sharing data that's relevant to share what their views are, what they with what they see as benefits or what they see as harms is great, but we were never able to have this before. And the whole point of sharing this information was that whoever at Twitter received these messages agreed to censor someone. And yes, it was not removed, but censor 
censorship doesn't have to be removed to be considered censorship. It just suppression is the definition of censorship. So without without um, going too far into the we- into the weeds with data and debating the vaccines, the fact that we can do that here is is the whole point of these Twitter files dropping. If this was never exposed, it would continue and we wouldn't even be able to have this space right here right now to talk. So I just think that, that you know, we can veer off and discuss and debate all these things, thankfully, but the whole point of it all was, was the censorship and who was behind it. And that's really the crux of it. Uh, died suddenly. Good to have you back. And then Nelson and of course, uh, uh, Jeffrey afterwards. Died suddenly, you there? Yes, we are. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate this. Good to have you back. Uh, I'm sitting here with, with Matt. Um, this is Matthew and Nick Stumphauser. Um We're here in pre-production on a, a follow-up film. We've been paying attention to this conversation and the Twitter files and so on. And um, we're, we're trying to educate ourselves as much as possible. And one of the things that we really feel is imperative is that there shouldn't be any kind of middleman. Um, we're hoping for somewhat of a WikiLeaks sort of dump of of everything and uh we're hoping that that comes soon and if anybody has whether it's alex or or whomever some of this information about the sort of censorship and collusion between the fda and the united states government and then the media outlets um, we want to include that in this follow-up film because i don't think people understand how deep it really goes and will your your follow-up film be focused more on the censorship aspect of it uh, we're primarily focused on the legal aspect of this. We are going to be collaborating with an attorney that uh, we won't announce who that is yet, but there's a lot of ramifications to this, and there's also a lot of recourse that we have. There are things that can be done. People think that because of the NDAA that there's actually no legal recourse. That's not the case, and we want to focus on that. And additionally, obviously the film got – uh, an immense amount of criticism and there were a lot of questions opened up. And so one of the things we want to do is to answer those questions directly. And we're going to hopefully do a live extraction of a blood clot and get it stained by a pathologist such as Dr. Ryan Cole, so that we can demonstrate that it was in fact an MRNA induced clot as opposed to a wild type spike protein and uh, really just confront a lot of these things head on. And Nelson, I've got a question for you, man. What's up? Doing good, my brother. Let's uh, talk about man, it. Man, look, what, the first question is what should be censored? Because saying nothing should be censored is pretty extreme. Like no one wants to see photos of, of uh, you know, I'm not going to mention them even because they're too disgusting. What do you think should be censored? And then who decides what should be censored? I'm, I'm going to – we moved away a bit to censorship before we go back to the to the vaccines and COVID. Wow. That's a – that's a that's a heavy question, my probably brother. The, probably the that's... second one is more important. Like who decides? Wow. Um, man, I mean, it's – bro, that's a really heavy question. Because <laughs> it's easy, cause it's easy I, for I, all of us. I'll tell you why. Like it's easy including myself. Like we say censorship is bad. This shouldn't be censored. And whatever someone censors something, hey, you shouldn't censor, which is fair. And I've, I've been leading that – You know, I've been playing a big part of that bandwagon. But then, then who's responsible to drawing that line of, of what is just purely inappropriate? To be posted. I mean, if something isn't criminal, if something doesn't go against our constitution, there's no reason why it should be censored. Bullshit or not. Right. I mean, 
there, there are a lot of things that I quite, quite frankly think are bullshit, but I'm pretty sure someone like Sam or Jonathan Bing, you know, don't think the same. That doesn't mean that information should be censored just because I think it's bullshit, right? If it's criminal, we all know the Constitution in the U.S. We all know what's criminal and what isn't. If it's criminal, then, yeah, let it be censored, right? But, I mean, something else where, you know, one person say, says yay, another person says nay, no, so it's it's it, it's it's a tough it's a tough question, my brother. But I'll, I'll, really I'll give you. I'm, I'm going to give you two two questions, two two examples. Can I give you two examples? You tell me what you think on, about them both. Let's do it. All right. So the first one is something is R-rated, and um, you know people don't want to see that on Instagram. They don't want to see that on Twitter. I guess um, is that something that should be censored or nope? It is what it is, and you just got to decide who you mute and who you follow. What do you mean by censored, Mario? Because it already is censored. There's a, a label put over it and you have to hit view to view it. So do you mean removed as in that type of censored, like so, doctors being removed from Twitter? That's a good point. Or yeah. do you mean censored as in a label put over it? That's a good point because there is different types of censorship. Um, so you think censoring, like putting different levels of censorship for different material would make sense for you, Tara and Nelson? So something that's R-rated, yeah. blurring it would make more yes. sense. Something that's criminal, just completely not allowed. Would that be a good line to draw that everyone should follow? Yes. That's in your. It would be United yeah. States. It would be United States law, right? Because that's where Twitter is based. United States. I agree. Yeah. Right. So I, I think where this comes in, where this ends up becoming a problem, is because Facebook, uh, in particular, I know there's been a lot of public fines and stuff that have been levied against Facebook from especially EU countries. So it's been a big thing. They find them hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for not censoring the speech that in particular Germany uh, has not wanted to be on the platform. So how do they handle those situations? I think that, that, that that's, that's a huge conversation that needs to be handled because how do you, how do you run a business when you're fined hundreds of millions of dollars a year by one single country. I mean, doesn't that set a, uh, a precedent that, you know, that they have to follow the individual country's laws and censor them? Uh, Jeffrey, Joanna. Uh, yeah, listen, I just, this is a quick little uh, intervention here uh, uh, to put in context some of Berenson's comments about Scott Gottlieb. Uh, he doesn't mention this, but Scott Gottlieb is a very important figure in the whole pandemic response from the weekend of the uh, March 12th and 13th and 14th when Trump was surrounding himself by his immediate family. Instead of calling doctors, instead of calling epidemiologists and virologists outside the White House, he uh, relied entirely on his son-in-law. And his son-in-law brought in two tech executives, uh, Nat Turner and Derek Lyons. And and they're sitting around saying, what are we going to do? Let's just keep in mind, everything I'm reporting now is, is in Kushner's own book. And they're, they're saying, oh, gosh, we really need to have some guidelines for the American people. We're, we're about to do these extreme things. The people don't have any guidelines. What should we do? And so uh, Derek... And Nat and Kushner say, I know what we should do. Let's call Scott Gottlieb, who served as the head of the FDA between 2017 and 2019 and was now a Pfizer board.
Yeah, you dropped out then. Jeffrey, you dropped out. Just as just as it was getting juicy. Yeah, no. I'll uh, try to bring him down and bring him back up. Um, I'll give the mic to... Let's maybe go to Joanne yeah, next. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm happy to jump in. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm an intensivist for the audience members who are listening um, and an anesthesiologist. And I just, just want to kind of take a step back um, and again reiterate that amidst all of this, I think, you know, I, I have a lot of empathy um, for some of the scientists and physicians who were making very hard choices kind of amidst the beginning of the pandemic in particular. Um, and we know that science does help outcomes, even just looking in the past five years. And really just, again, kind of reframing this, I think certainly there's a problem with the suppression of of debate. We have to be able, that is the nature of science, we have to be able to struggle through um, through those questions. And this was an unprecedented um, situation where decisions were made at, 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 you know, I mean, literally it's called Operation Warp Speed. The fact that we went through phase one, two, and three clinical trials, um, you know, not on the scale of 10 years plus, but instead on the scale of, you know, months. Uh, I, I think just kind of putting all of this together is important for me as a clinician because, the reality is COVID did kill many people and I saw that firsthand. And, you know, as time went on um, and before the introduction of the vaccine, I, I don't, um, I don't know what other people's experiences were, but when I was in Boston and in New York city, um, you know, really the height of the pandemic was reached in, in the springtime and started to taper off in the summer. Um, that doesn't mean that all cases stopped altogether. Um, but the vaccine was made available, I believe, in the fall and the winter time, at least to healthcare professionals in the winter time. Um, so I just, I just kind of want to offer that that context. I think that, um, you know, certainly the discussion about suppressing information um, in the interest of suppressing debate is the biggest problem that really belies this this um, Twitter drop. I think that that, for me, is. Um, is really what I wanted to hone in on as far as um, the the lesson to learn from this moving forward. And Joanna, have a, a yeah. Joanna as, as someone that works on the front lines. Joanna, have you seen uh, an increase? Because going back to a lot of these things being censored, right? Especially uh, as we see in the uh, Twitter drops today, um, have you seen an increase in uh, some of the the things that were censored before actually coming true, such as you know, let's say people coming into the ER with uh, issues that were previously shut down by Twitter. And before you answer, Joanna, Jeffrey, I'll give you the mic right after. I know you're back on stage. I'll give you the mic right after Joanna responds. Go ahead, uh, Joanna. Great. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Yeah. So, so what you have to understand as far as, you know, my um, my line of work goes, I work with the six patients in the hospital, you know, in the ICU. And then also I work as an anesthesiologist, um, you know, but those are for healthy patients who are medically optimized, ideally. Um, so I think it may be a more beneficial to ask, uh, to pose that question to perhaps a cardiologist. Um, I, I don't want to mislead your audience. Um, I think that I personally have not seen an uptick necessarily in those downstream sequela that many people are concerned about, but it's because of the nature of the patients that, that I deal with. Um, it, and that's, doesn't speak to really 
um, an answer. It's just that's that's the honest position that that I have with my limited perspective as an intensivist. We also have another ICU doctor here, Dr. Molly James. I don't know if Molly, you want to chime in real quick and add anything before I don't we go think, back. Uh, Molly's Jeffrey. on stage, is she? No, I don't think she's on stage. Yeah, she is. Oh, I can't see her. Maybe it's glitching. She's right next. I think it's glitched out. Yeah, it's glitched out. Leave the stage yeah, and... I'm also not seeing Yeah, you. she's not on, unfortunately. She dropped out earlier. It's glitching out. Yeah. Um, but... I, do, I do think it's important to, to, when we are in these spaces, though, I do think it's important that we have a bit of nuance, right? There are people who think that vaccines are just killing everyone's dropping dead and uh, p- other people who think that the vaccines are absolutely safe and effective. And the truth is like, we just need to be, it's much more important for us to focus on, Hey, we need to be able to have open conversations, look at data and, and not have censorship. And I think it's more about choices and things like that and freedom to choose. And for me, it's always been about that, you know, the, you know, freedom to choose freedom to not suppress speech and, and to be honest. And I think the truth sort of will end up lying somewhere you know, in the middle, there's probably, you know, some deaths and, and we need to sort of be able to look at that data very honestly. And there's some lives that are being saved by the vaccine. So, and I think we need to be able to come together and not be so extreme in our, in our positions and, and really be flexible with our thinking and, and, and hopefully get more Can people talking question, to each Catherine? other. Yeah. Can I- question i'm just going to ask you point blank have you been affected or has anyone in your family that you love or care about been affected by covid vaccines here's the thing tara i i do know some people have been affected here's the thing uh there are people who have been affected there are people who have also died from from covid right so and that's why I think to, I think to, to sit here and act like there's not going to be a level of emotion or an emotional response to certain things is just out of question. I mean, it's going to happen. Um, doctors, doctors such as Molly, who was just up here, uh, who's up here with her hand up, who was told that she couldn't treat her patients. Uh, she couldn't do the things to save their lives that she knew would save their lives. Those people have to live with that. So to act like there isn't going to be an emotional response to what happened and, you know, is hopefully never going to happen again. But unless people stand up and point out how awful this is, as you can see, the media is silent. They have not talked yes, about I this. So without, we, those are without issues Mario that we can... doing what he's doing, without all of us doing what we're doing and raising our voices and whether it gets emotional or heated or not, we're human. We're all human and that's all we are and that's all we'll ever be. But at the end of the day, we need to be able to do this. We need to be able to have these conversations and we also need to make sure that we get to the correct people, to the correct sources of information who were there, who were actually in the midst of all of this and censored and shut down. Those are the people that should be heard from, especially when someone like Alex is up on stage discussing just that topic. Well, Tara, no part of what you said do I necessarily disagree with, but there are people who have been, who have different opinions also, who have been also in the middle. I don't care about opinions. I care about the facts and I care about who was actually affected by the vaccines. At this point, those people may have made a different decision had doctors and professionals and medical professionals not been shut down and shut off from being able to speak out. People like my so grandmother probably with? would have made a different 
decision had this information been allowed to be talked about rather than shut down and suppressed and censored. That's all I'm saying. People like my grandma would probably be healthy and well like she was prior to the vaccine and boosters, uh, prior to her heart, open heart surgery and several strokes that she's had since. Well, Tara, I, I specifically said that none of this discourse should have been shut down and people should have been able to make choices for themselves. So that's exactly. what I'm saying. Sure. So um, let's go back to Jeffrey, because uh, I know he was booted <laughs> yeah. off the stage. So. so Yeah, I wasn't booted off. I just, I don't know. I, I mean, not booted off. Uh, yeah, <laughs> another phone call or God knows what, you know, just crazy. Yeah, yeah, technical. Glitch. Anyway, my, my point is that God, uh, Godlieb is a much more important figure than Berenson really uh, uh, explains in his in his uh, tweets on, on all this stuff. He was uh, very important in the early lockdown days because he was uh, the few, one of the few experts, actually maybe the only expert, that Kushner called from the White House when they realized they didn't have any guidelines for uh, how they're going to handle the pandemic response. Kushner brought in his two friends from the tech industry to sit around going, oh, no, what are we going to do? we got to do something. And instead of calling Marty McCary or, you know, any other competent expert out there, among, among whom there was you know, many thousands, uh, they called, of all people, Scott Gottlieb, who was the head of the FDA uh, just a year prior. He began in 2017, left in 2019. Next thing you know, he's over at the American Enterprise Institute and a board member of Pfizer. And his response to the White House on the phone was, and this is a quote from Kushner's book, um, you know, what should we do with these guidelines? He says they should go uh, uh little bit further than you are comfortable with when you feel like you're doing more than you should that is a sign that you're doing them right now on what basis did he say this you know none whatsoever we'd never done lockdowns before in the case of a pandemic disease this is just all made up stuff out of nowhere and he was a, a directly a board member of Pfizer which ended up being of course tapped as one of only three vaccines uh, that were permitted in, in the United States, which, you know, raises its own uh, problems of um, uh, conflict of interest. Then a year later, March 21, he goes to the pages of the Wall Street Journal and says, oh, you know, the social distancing stuff, now the vaccine's out and Pfizer's on the market and selling like gangbusters. Uh, you know, the social distancing stuff, it really... It was all done without any real evidence. You know, this pandemic response was really an unscientific undertaking and really just, you know, went too far. You know, we really need to dial all this nonsense back. Okay, so he says this now that the vaccine's out. So that's the larger context. And this happens before, of course, he's intervening uh, in, tw in Twitter and telling them what posts they have to uh, pull down because some one guy actually turns out his successor at the FDA said, based on this Israeli study, that natural immunity is more protective than vaccine immunity, which every single competent uh, epidemiologist or virologist or immunologist could have told you uh, long before the pandemic that that's just sort of axiomatic within this field. So there wasn't anything controversial. Gottlieb says, take it down. So I just offer that as a, a larger a perspective on Gottlieb's role in this. He's uh, very instrumental in ending the civil liberties, freedoms of, of, of all Americans uh, back when the pandemic first broke out. Thanks. 
Nelson. No, absolutely, absolutely. We appreciate. Well, I appreciate you, Jeffrey. Um, You know, so I I just wanted to add that you know, us having these conversations in a in a way whereby no one's being censored from you know saying anything, I think is very important. Uh, Not just for us, but you know, for people listening to these conversations, right? Because that way they're able to make a conscious decision, right? Conscious decision by hearing all the facts hearing all the information from both sides, right? The left side, the right side, or whatever the case may be, and make the best decision for themselves. You know, not just on vaccines, but everything, quite frankly, right? I mean, I've seen, (laughs) trust me when I say that, you know, from these rooms and spaces we've done, I've literally seen hardcore Democrats convert and go red. Same thing, vice versa, right? Just by listening to stuff that they haven't been privy to by way of mainstream media, you know, who's always censoring stuff, you know what I mean? So, you know, again, you know, Mario, you know, I've told you this, you know, um, behind the scenes, Tara, you know, you guys do a phenomenal job, you know, putting together these spaces in order to, you know, allow for, you know, information to flow from both ends of the spectrum. And that's what it's all about. And I believe that's what, you know, Elon would like, you know, creators on this platform to do. Right. So, you know, even though I disagree with, you know, the, these, these, you know, the Fidgetals and the Ed Krasensteins and the Jonathan Bings and the Sams, you know, I mean, I, I, I love them. And I love the fact that we get to debate. But Nelson, my question, I have to interrupt you because my question is, why is Fidgetal up here when I've seen answers for Sam and Ryan, who both have been affected directly by vaccines, sitting on requests still? And I, when I bring them up, they're dropped down, but then Fidgetal cuts in line. This is what I don't understand, Mario. So I'm really trying to get to the bottom of what are the purpose of these space? What is the purpose? How do you get the floor up here? How does someone get allowed an opportunity to speak and share especially information pertaining to the conversation versus someone like Fidgetal who comes to derail the conversation and and, and kind of just mess with everybody. Yeah, so so Fidgetal was invited, had an invite as soon as the space started because he read through the report and he wanted to comment on it as as an attorney for any legal aspects relating to the report. And we had doctors mention that they've got a case, they've got a case against the White House and the... uh, and the uh, White House and Twitter. So I thought it would be good for him to comment on those two points. But his invite was from when the space launched. Uh, I hope that answers your question. Um, and Nelson, I've got a question actually for Nelson and the audience and Utah and everyone else. Uh, let me put it into a poll. Because I, I did mention two statistics earlier when the space started. That 53% of Republicans have a, a Democratic friend, a Democrat as a friend. And then 33% of Democrats have a Republican friend. And then another statistic that 15% of people lost a friend because of politics. And that's mainly about politics. But I'm seeing people, and I've had this in my family, at an extreme level. And that's what really inspired me to start spaces where I bring both sides together. I've been like this since I was a kid. Um, where people disagree on topics, but instead of putting these behind them, it starts impacting their personal lives. In my case, I had two uncles that I adore. They were brothers, so two of my uncles, they were brothers. And they were 
that they were on the verge of, of harming each other because of their political differences. And they were on two completely opposing sides. And again, they're brothers. They've lived together. And, and I have both of my families are on completely different political spectrums. So my question to the audience, um, I'm going to tweet it now. Would you befriend someone who fully disagrees with you on topics like vaccines or politics? Because um, those are two polarizing pol- uh, topics. There's a lot more of them. Uh, I'm going to put a yes or no question. I'm just really curious. And can try, and, and, and can just, we go to, to Ryan really quick? Because he can attest to, uh, he used to be, I think, one way politically until his experience and everything that sort of took place. He has a really important story, I yeah, think, that he could share with you, Mario, I'll, in regard I'll, to what you're speaking about. Yeah, absolutely. So I've just done the poll, before I give the mic to Ryan, I've just done the poll for everyone to have a look at. Um, and be honest with the answer. Uh, I can't see who answers. No one can see who answers what in polls. So you have to be honest. I'm genuinely curious, um, and I'd love to know what people uh, really believe. But I'll go to, to, to Ryan, as Tara mentioned. I know Died suddenly and Steve have their hands up, so we'll go to them right after. But Ryan, go ahead, man. We've never met, so I appreciate being on the panel. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thanks, Tara. So, yeah, I was the pandemic police. I was actually on the other side. I was the one enforcing all the mandates. I was the one writing the mandates. I have a master's degree in emergency service management disaster preparedness. And uh, I did happen to write a paper on when civ- when the government would violate civil liberties in the name of safety. But for the entire first year, I was the one pushing, enforcing, crafting, and putting out everything that, you know, a lot of people disagree with today. And, and I thought it was the right thing to do. I thought it was my time to shine. I thought we were doing what was best for the country. But... Uh, I did get vaccinated within week one of the vaccination coming out, and I had a cardiac issue, and I completely flipped from being pro-mandates, pro-shutting everything down, writing it, being a part of corporate America, interacting with the government through these fusion centers, and implementing everything to having a 180 running an attorney general campaign to stopping and shutting down these mandates. And as it is today, I'm in heart failure. So I went from a person with a very rare specialty degree that understands emergency management, disaster preparedness, specifically as it relates to pandemics and being on the side that implemented everything to going 180 degrees to suing the government to stop the shutting it down raising nearly a million dollars to stop to shut it down, suing different states to stop the mandate, stop the closures, and ensure that we all have the freedom of choice at the end of the day. So I think Tara made an important important point there, right? We We can have this debate, but we need to be able to explore each other's perspectives. And the censorship that has occurred, I witnessed it firsthand. I was getting those briefings in which, They were telling corporate America, your Fortune 100 companies, what to do, what to say, what to tell your employees in order to control the narrative. And I'm shamefully a part of that. I am 100% shamefully a part of that narrative. And because I was vax injured, because I was a part of it, I flipped and I've spent the past two years since then fighting for it. And Tara, I appreciate you advocating for me to get the mic here and, and, and tell this. And I know there's a lot of other people that want to come up. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. I just think it's an important topic to discuss, and especially when Mario's 
bringing that up and saying, you know, what are, what are the odds people do change their stance? And then also, you know, can you befriend people who are opposite of the spectrum uh, as far as politics go? And I think the answer is yes. Um, I think with a level of respect for each other um, and not walking all over each other, I think the answer is yes. I have friends on both sides of the political spectrum personally. But I, I, I'm looking at it now before um, – uh, uh, Lindsay, I'll give you the mic in a bit and then died suddenly Stephen Fidgetal um, and Eugene, good to have you back as well. Um, but I do want to say like look at the votes. For, and first, I appreciate the audience being honest because um, it's easy to say yes and it's easy to believe that it's a yes and most of us would say yes. And, and obviously most of us would be accurate in saying yes. But I've seen, I've witnessed people on stage, on my stage so many times that have each other blocked. No, it happens almost every week. And they sit there on stage chatting normally and agreeing on many points. Yet they're blocked so they'll never actually meet each other if it wasn't for the space. And it just shows so they've blocked each other on the space which means they're not, they don't want to interact with each other. Which means in the physical world, they, they, if they block someone, they're not going to be friends. And it's just sad to see, and, and, and I'm not surprised by the results, that 40% of people um, that, ha, you know, that, that are voting know that they wouldn't be, befriend someone that fully disagrees with them. Uh, I'm not saying it's the wrong decision. You might believe something so strongly that you just can't have like, – Mario, it, it do you block people? Say that again. Do you block people? Really, like I usually block when someone like intentionally attacks me or or just something personal, exactly, and I unblock yeah. them afterwards. But, but it I, could be over politics, couldn't it? No, 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 no. If someone disagrees with me or anything like that, I never block at all. Uh, I've had people make. Can, fun if, of you me. Read, if you read, people, I'm saying people Tara, attack Tara, people Tara. attack people over politics all the time, and it becomes very, very. Excuse me, Nick. It becomes very personal. So I've had those attacks, and I don't unblock people. Once someone's blocked, unless they reach out and are, are kind and show me that they're not going to do it again, I don't unblock people. And I don't think anyone here should be required to unblock people who have harassed them or said god-awful things to them on the internet or wherever. Um, I don't think that that's necessary, no, whether it's over politics or not. It doesn't matter. People get ugly and disgusting sometimes. Yeah, I and they that's, usually do it so, from that, that, fake accounts. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's kind of goes back to the point. It, because As I said... That's exactly what I said. I said it's personal. So when you say someone harassed, that's personal. It's not politics. If I some say something about, obviously I'm never, I never talk politics, but if I say, hey, I support this politician, and someone just says, no, of course not, this politician is shit, and gives me a whole list on why this is shit, I'll never, and keeps saying that constantly on my tweets, obviously it becomes too spammy. Every every tweet puts 10 comments is different. But as long as it's just opinions-based, if purely based on politics, then, then I wouldn't block. But I'm not opposing people blocking each other. Uh, I'm not saying it's the wrong thing. There's a place for it. The, the feature is there for a reason. I'm saying this is not what I do. And I unblock people. My team hates me that I unblock people after a while. Sometimes I regret it as well. But that's just going back to the. You should see. Go ahead, Nick. You should see the personal attacks that Mario gets in his his mentions. You should see mine, Nick. Block the people. So there is a lot. <laughs> and, and right. I mean, we, we, it's a we different level than what Mario space. gets. <laughs> it's a whole different level. Well, I can send you Nick, screenshots. I, I've been to mine today, <laughs> so. The only time I've always said that, listen, I've always said that if you, you have the right not to listen, just like people have the right for their sweet speech. That said, I personally don't block people for their opinions at all. I do. The only time I've blocked people and I didn't used to block people at all, but now I do block people. If they sent me like literally rude, harassing, cursing kind of speech, that's different than, than an opinion, you know? 
Exactly. I want to say and that physical threats Mar- on, on your body. Yeah, that's totally different. I think Steve was waiting next and he's been waiting quite a while. Uh, fidgetal. Yeah, let's go to Steve next and then let's go to. I just, uh, I, I just want to yeah. say one quick thing. I just want to say that I, I know for a fact that Mario was maligned and accused of things, uh, by another group of people I associate with and he didn't block them. He actually came into the space and talked to them, uh, even though it got heated and I don't think he blocked any of them. So, uh, I know for a <laughs> I think we've all been called to other rooms to defend ourselves at times. And it can be difficult because people come up with all kinds of theories about, I've seen the theories about Mario. I've seen the theories that I'm somehow associated with Mario and there's some big conspiracy to control the narrative between Mario and myself. And that's why I think it is important today. I'm being especially combative and I'm sorry, Mario, it's nothing personal, but I think it is important that people understand that there isn't some grand conspiracy between myself, Mario and other speakers up here to withhold information or only share certain information. That's the media's job. That's not our job. And as far as I know, Mario doesn't do that. I know I don't do it. And I don't think anyone else on this stage does it either. So um, if you guys could kindly just knock it off with those crazy stories. But I mean, I don't mind going into those rooms, like you said, Nick, and defending myself and Mario as well, which I've defended over the weekend several times for people coming up with these wild allegations against him specifically. And it's because he has large spaces. So can we, can we go to Dr. Goo to get back on the topic? Uh, Steve, yeah, I, Steve yeah, was, I, next. I was next. Uh, Steve, Steve, yeah, go ahead. Steve and then died suddenly. And then we go to, to Eugene, Eugene, sorry. Yeah. So, so first of all, I, I was, uh, I'm here because, uh, I, I was told that uh, Mario invited me here. Uh, was there something specific that you wanted me to comment Yeah. So on? we, yeah, of course, Steve, we kind of went a bit off topic. We were discussing the, not sure if you saw the drop, uh, that we were discussing earlier. Have you had a chance to read it? Um, well, I read the uh, the Berenson uh, uh, Twitter post about um, Scott Gottlieb. Is that what you're referring to? Or yeah, that's what I was discussing. What, what, what would, would have loved your thoughts on this? I know we kind of veered off topic, so I apologize for that, Steve. But would love your thoughts on that drop uh, if you well, did get a chance to read it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I could only comment on um, my, my personal experience with Scott Gottlieb is that he was completely non-responsive. Um, I got his contact info. <clears throat> I told him about the uh, the work we were doing with early treatment. I appealed to him for uh, more funding for early treatment research for uh, testing these drugs um, that could be used for uh, treating COVID. That was, you know, the whole thing. And and he was completely non-responsive to me. So, you know, that's the only thing I can give you, you know, from a personal point of view, that I was just shocked that anybody who cares about human life um, would completely uh, ignore my pleas for funding, uh, for help, for visibility, for support. He was just completely non-responsive to anything I had to say. Um, and, and I just want to make uh, three other points uh, while I'm here, and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll leave. Uh, I just got off the phone with a former top FDA official. Now, this guy is in the, he, he's in the top five of the FDA. And I asked him, what the heck is going on here? Is this organization corrupt? Is it, you know, what, what's going on? He said, basically, it's a bunch of blue pill people. Um, and he, he actually, after he uh, joined the FDA, he didn't even know what, what blue pill uh, meant and, until just recently, in fact. Um, but he says it's all based on trust. And the people um, who make these decisions are put in power. And he mentioned this one uh, woman who's in, in, in charge of CIDER, which is uh, CDER, which is the, 
the drug um, uh, um, uh, approval uh, part of the FDA. And she came from Pfizer. She was a former top paid executive at Pfizer, and she was probably making millions of dollars. Why would some, he, he said, why would someone at Pfizer who's making millions and millions of dollars leave her job at Pfizer to come to work at the FDA for peanuts? And, you know, he just kind of left it at there. But he said he interacted with this woman who's, who's that, uh, uh, the head of, uh, of, of this drug enforcement part of the FDA. And he said he was, he got, she just got stonewalled every time he brought up an issue to saying, Oh, this is, this doesn't look right. Um, he was told to, to shut up. It wasn't answered. I mean, it was just a complete disaster. And they did an ethics check of this woman and she passed and he, he doesn't understand how that happened. But there's a huge conflict of interest there, and he was just completely shut down. So if you think that the FDA is on the level at the at the the the, the top officials are on the level, boy, someone someone needs to hear this. And he tried to go talk to people in Congress. It's a former top FDA official, and nobody except for Ron Johnson would talk to him. The second thing I want to say is that the elephant in the room that people are not talking about is the 15,000 excess deaths in the VARA system in America. Now, there are more than that in the VARA system, but there's just 50, there's <clears throat> somewhat over 15,000 excess deaths in the VARA system for the COVID vaccines, but not for any other vaccine. Not for any other vaccine during the same time period. There are no excess deaths for any other vaccine except for the COVID vaccine. Now, this is important because 15,000 excess deaths translates into somewhere on the order of 500,000 or so dead Americans. Now, I've always been asking the question, hey, if the COVID vaccine didn't kill these people, then what did? You know, if you're telling me correlation isn't causality, I'm fine with that. Just tell me what caused these people to die, but only people who got the COVID vaccine, but no other vaccine. So... Nobody's been able to answer that question. And I think, Mario, if you had a room that was just focused on the elephant in the room, that would be really interesting. And just focus on that one issue, because if we can resolve that one issue, I think it'd be go a long That's, way. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it's a pretty deep issue. I will, it will need a lot of preparation for such right, right, a room. But right. I, will DM you, I, will, I will DM you, Steve, to maybe organize it maybe later right, this, this right, week or next right. week. I do, I do want to get uh, – Steve, no, there is no, a no, Gottlieb no. – uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, one, one final point, which is that, you know, I hear a lot of anecdotes. Like I just published an anecdote of a, a nursing home facility where the death rate went up by six times after they rolled out the vaccines. And so I asked people to, you know, tell me your experiences. I want to hear the anecdotes both ways. So far, I've only gotten anecdotes that are against the vaccine where the death rate has gone up uh, dramatically. But my question to people who are discussing this issue is, where are the reverse anecdotes? Where are, you know, like Wayne Root has an anecdote where he's got, you know, 100 vaxxed, 100 unvaxxed, and the vaxxed are like, you know, eight people died in the vaxxed group and zero are dying in the unvaxxed group. Where are the reverse anecdotes? Where are the anecdotes where it's just the vaccinated people, the vaccinated people aren't dying at all, and it's the unvaccinated people? Like, I can't find these reverse anecdotes. So... Just I'll keep that in a, mind when, when you hear Steve, about yeah. these anecdotes. 
that, stay that, on stage. I know you wanted to jump off because I would love – before we got – Scott Gottlieb did a thread about an hour ago that Catherine pointed out that I'd love to go through. So, Catherine, if you could read it and then explain it to us, we can go through it. I can read it out to the audience. I haven't read it yet. Uh, but before that, Eugene, I'd love yeah. you to reply uh, – you're Joanna, just replying to Steve's points. He's made some pretty important points. Uh, if you're with us, uh, Eugene. Oh, hey. Thanks, Mario. Yes, um, and just before I start, I wanted to say that when it comes to the, uh, the this particular Twitter files drop, I believe after I you know I read about it, it seems to be about censoring tweets um, in support of the theory that innate uh, immunity from to COVID was um, more beneficial than vaccines. Um, so what I wanted to comment that real quick is, I think this is the case where science and politics should be completely separated. Um, and if you don't separate the two, you can get into, um, you know, pretty egregious issues. So the science, I don't think, ever really supported that innate immunity to um, COVID vaccines was inferior. I mean, innate immunity to COVID uh, was inferior to getting vaccinated. Um, and, and so I think that's where maybe many people on the left were perhaps wrong. And then to use that information to censor others uh, with labeling them by saying they're misinformation tweets, um, I think that. Do you was think? Do you think well. they? Do you think they did it because they they didn't want people to? I'm not saying it's right, of course. Uh, we all agree it's not the right thing to do. But do you think they did it? The reason, trying to put myself in their shoes, is that they didn't want people to misinterpret this or to use this information to attack the vaccine. Because we saw a lot of the censorship is going around supporting the vaccine. Would, if you put yourself in their shoes, do you think that's how they were thinking? Um, yeah, so I think they're, they were uh, thinking internally that they were justified because the pandemic, and which I believe this as well, the pandemic uh, is extremely dangerous. Many millions of people can you know, potentially die from something if you don't get it under control. Um, and so I think they had a lot of good intentions in supporting the spread of COVID vaccines uh, in order to end the pandemic and to save as many lives as possible. But sometimes good intentions, if not actually backed by the, the most up-to-date science can go wrong. And I think that's this Twitter files drop is just an example of how it could potentially go wrong. Cool. Um, Eugene, anything else to add before before I go to Catherine? Uh, Diet Suddenly, I know you're waiting um, for a while. I do want to go to Catherine just to read the thread that was just dropped, and then we'll go back to Diet Suddenly and Fidgetal. But I'll let you finish off, Eugene. Yeah, sure. I just wanted to make it clear that as a physician, you know, I believe that the vaccines have uh, much greater benefits than risks and is here to, to save as many lives as possible. Um, I know that that opinion might not go well with the rest of the people in, in this crowd, but um, I just want to thank you all for giving me the opportunity to express that opinion in a forum where you know maybe the popular sentiment isn't in my favor. Um, but I just want to have as many opportunities as possible to talk to the other side in a civil way uh, without ad hominem attacks, um, without getting into cancel culture and things like that. And I think both sides are guilty of such a thing. And, um, you know, just as a one example of that, and I, I hope that this is seen as objective as possible, is I think earlier we were talking about blocking others um, on Twitter. Um, I happen to have blocked Alex Berenson, the person who was actually doing the Twitter files raw. So it's a little bit ironic. Um, but, you know, that's because in the past, Alex Berenson had made an ad hominem attack on me. Uh, for things that were not true. Um, and, I don't, and this is not to pass judgment on Alex Berenson. You know, I think I just wanted to have that as an example of how both sides can actually get into ad hominem attacks that makes civil discourse impossible, even though there may be a perception that only the liberal side is doing the cancel culture thing. You know, I think both sides do it. 
I think that's the worst part of social media. And if we can find a way to get around that, maybe by having Twitter spaces and talking to each other uh, on opposing sides in a civil way without attacking each other, um, I think that's a great step forward for social media because the way so far is really bad. Dr. Gil, we sincerely appreciate you coming onto the space every single time. Uh, you bring a different perspective, which is exactly what we want on the space. And it's it's great that you can engage in discourse without without those ad hominem attacks. Uh, so, you know, anytime you want to come on, uh, we'd really love to have you. And, I think uh, if we had more of so this, much. we might not have this mess, honestly, okay. if we had this on both sides. More <laughs> open dialogue. Yeah, I, I want to go to the thread you sent me, by the way. Uh, yeah, Nick and, and uh, uh, Dr. Gu, appreciate you both. Um, Catherine, the thread that you sent me, I haven't had a chance to read it, obviously trying to, to, to you know, moderate the room. But uh, what, what did uh, Gottlieb say? So I read the first part. I actually yeah. read it. I'll read it out for the audience. What do you think, Catherine? Do you want me to read it out Let's for the audience? Okay. So, so, yeah, so sure. Scott, go, go for it. So Scott did a, a drop, uh, not a drop. He did a thread 12.35, two hours ago now. Is that correct? January 10th. Yeah. So two hours ago. Yeah. I'll read it out. In the past. It was basically in response to the Twitter files drop, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I think uh, in the space as well. So he follows me. I'll try to send him through an invite if he wants to join. In the past, I've raised concerns with Twitter related to the safety of me and others and threats being made on the platform. This included direct as well as specific threats. Sometimes it included statements that I believed were purposely false and inflammatory. The selective disclosure of my private communications with Twitter stokes the threat environment. So does actions that empower people who've shown little restraint when it comes to purposeful vitriol. It instigates more menacing dialogue with potentially serious consequences. So he seems to be criticizing just the fact that uh, his private communication with Twitter was shared. If the goal of Twitter files is transparency, here's some of the private emails I had with Twitter related to threats and safety which weren't released and which I repeatedly highlighted in my communication with the platform. Safety remains an existential concern for Twitter. Uh, I'll read out one of the emails. So it's an email to Todd no, Todd, no, Todd O'Boyle replying to uh, Gottlieb's email. Hi, Scott. Sorry to hear that. So Scott, uh, Scott told him the following. Todd, this doxes me, invokes my wife. So that was in 2021. So obviously Twitter shared something and Scott wasn't happy with it. And, and he says the following. Todd, this doxes me, invokes my wife. I have given it over to some security folks, but wanted to flag for you as well. And then Todd Boyle from Twitter replies. Hi, Scott. Sorry to hear that. I'll send it over to our team right away. And then we go to the next one. So he's sharing. So I, I'm going to, Catherine, if you can pin it above for the audience to see. Okay, there's a comment. He execute this bastard. One of the comments made um, in, in uh, a thread that was tweeted about Scott Gottlieb. So being a public person is difficult. Like um, I understand and I empathize with, with Scott's concern. But being a public person and not being, especially in, in such a topic, when it comes to such a topic, and not facing such scrutiny and threats. It just comes with the game. Like, you know, I, I, I'm not going to say I never received any threats in starting such big spaces, but I'll continue. Another email by Scott to Todd. Todd, just want to flag this for you. This guy has sent a number of messages calling me, among other things, a, quote, murderer, and then saying I will soon be, quote, judged or need to be held accountable, all while he talks about his gun rights in various other tweets. Being on the receiving end of these, it does feel to come close to inciting violence. I've included some tweets below, but there are tweets about Every, about me every day or two along the same lines. And then there's one last tweet in the thread. Um, Scott Gottlieb sending something to Boyle. 
um, sending him an example of another tweet by Miss Mainstreamed. Um, so he didn't even blur the name. They wanted to kill your children. Hyperbolic? Maybe, but I'm not going to give any benefit of the doubt to these soul-sucking bastards that will give children a vaccine that puts them in, in more danger than the virus. Uh, there is a special place in hell. So I do want to empathize. I'll give my thoughts, which I don't usually do. I don't want to empathize with Scott. I also want to say these threats are relatively – like you'd expect such threats when you're such a public – like imagine politicians, how many threats they get. So um, yeah, what do you think, Catherine? You read it before before anyone – yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm mixed on this. I don't have a, a particularly strong stance because, I mean, I've gotten, <laughs> even I just doing these spaces, I've gotten some threats. You know, I think when, I, I kind of tend to agree with you when you are in a position like that, you're going to get it. So I, I, I haven't had a time to like fully process um, this and really fully digest and think about it. But, you know, I, I think... I think there is some consequences to to being in the public eye, having a position. I mean, nobody should be getting threats, that's for sure. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I think when you use speech, you should be using it responsibly. Um, you know, when especially when you do have many followers and you're sort of igniting them and, you know, you should be accurate in your accusations, especially when people, as Tara mentioned, people are emotional. They, you know, and, and sometimes in the heat of the moment, they do respond in these kinds of ways. Um, sometimes they don't mean it, really. But uh, I don't know that, like, is he saying, you know, therefore you shouldn't you shouldn't criticize me? Because in a way, it's almost like he's saying, you know, because I get these consequences for my speech, you you can't just like out me like that. I, I don't know. There's I, an underlining of that yeah, just, a little just, bit. The threats don't seem – and again, I don't want to uh, uh, undermine the threats in any way. But the, yeah, I, I just expected worse threats. I think just when, when it comes to such an emotional and polarizing topic and when you're such a public person that has so much influence – um, uh, uh, you know, when it comes to COVID, um, you know, um, it just shouldn't be a surprise. But I'd love to get, uh, you know, died suddenly, Fidgero and Steve's opinion on this. And Tara, of course, I don't see your hand up. You can jump in at any time. Go ahead, died suddenly. Hey, thanks, Mario. And uh, I was glad to hear Steve Kirsch talk. And it looked like Ryan Cunningham had a very similar experience to Steve, where, um, you know, they they started poke line and sinker on believing and understanding and championing the vaccine only to be personally injured and then people around them to be injured and to realize that uh, something's wrong here um on the subject of censorship here you know matt and i this isn't our first rodeo in terms of films the last film we made uh was about child sex trafficking and the previous filmmaker to make the exact film that we made was murdered and the subjects of the film were murdered and after died suddenly uh, a business partner of ours got swatted twice with ar-15s and riot, riot shields outside of his house one of our embalmers who was in the film uh his power was shut off at his home his phone was hacked he got death threats so this is real and when you get to a point where uh, people are trying to put you in this box, this paradigm of are you pro or anti-vaccine? Uh, I'm outside of that now. Matt and I are outside of that now. That's not what this is. This is something far more sinister. And when the people who have the data and had the data and knew from day one that this was not safe and then mandated it and pushed it and took away your jobs and uh, spent tens of millions of dollars funding CNN and Fox News to make dancing videos for it. There's something way bigger going on. So this idea that 
uh, yeah, of course, emotions are running high. <laughs> of course, people are throwing out homonyms because people's relatives are dropping dead. And this isn't this isn't a small thing. It's 15,000 excess deaths on bears. That's reported by a factor of one in 100, maybe, if you're lucky. So we, we have to take a look at this, not from the perspective of are you pro or anti-vax or are we going to be kind and nice to each other? or Is there a slight amount of censorship? This is... Uh, a level of warfare of psychological and spiritual and fifth generation warfare that no one has ever seen. And it's the real deal. And Steve Kirsch still has an offer on the table. If anyone wants to take it seriously to get paid to go on the record and explain why every single decision made over the last three years led to more death and more disease, not less. That's not an accident. Uh, Steve, do you want to jump a fidget? Actually, you've been waiting for a while before going to Steve. Sure, I'll, I'll be quick, and I think the perspective actually covers a lot of the topics we're, we've been discussing. Um, <clears throat> I always try to be as objective as possible, right? Also very clear that these things may be my opinion, and they're my opinion, and we're all entitled to opinions, right? Um, it's when we start saying that your opinions don't have merit or are patently wrong where, where the emotion comes in. And I always say that emotion is a gap between science and knowledge, Actually, uh, Neil, deGrasse, Neil deGrasse Tyson says that, um, one of my favorite humans. Um, there was insinuations that, or assumptions that as someone who leans left socially, which I do, I lean right uh, uh, fiscally and uh, in, in foreign affairs. Uh, the first week uh, after COVID was uh, announced, uh, March 14th, whatever it was, uh, I was at my doctor's office and we finished uh, a regular checkup. And he said, hey, I'm, uh, this is not medical advice, but I'm going down to the infirmary um, to intentionally catch COVID because I think this is a, uh, this is a herd immunity situation. No opinion about the vaccines because there weren't discussions yet, but we had a discussion about the virality of it and, and the likelihood outcome. And I went down with him and I got COVID intentionally. Um, I then did get the vaccines because I thought to myself, what would be the what would be the overarching goals? Why would they be doing that if they wanted to put things into my body? They would again listen to the whole story before you jump down the throat. Um, if they wanted to put microbes or or whatever the the conspiracies were into my body, they could just poison the water. Uh, and then I made a personal decision that I thought the benefits of of taking the vaccine were better than uh, even though I'd already gotten it. Um, risking getting it again for my family members and elders. And those are my decisions. And if you decide not to get it, those are your decisions. Um, but I think the important part is thinking through facts and being able to have conversations. Your post about would you be friends with somebody? If you're not friends with those people, if you're blocking those people, you're not hearing that information. And you can't make the best decisions without the most information. So I, incur I don't block anybody, uh, even if they slander me, even if they malign me even if they're completely on the other side of the spectrum. Um, people need to understand that uh, balanced conversations, not in terms of we all agree kumbaya, but our honest um, fact-based fact discussions are what's important here. And getting emotional about things, it doesn't solve anything. So I appreciate the spaces for the balance. Um, make your own decisions. Hear all your information. Uh, don't be left or right on anything or everything. Don't be... Don't vote one way or the other just because of the person, the candidate, or what you're seeing on TV. Talk through the issues. Think through the issues. Make decisions that you balance. Maybe social is more important for you. 
So you vote left in that regard or right in that regard. Maybe you have family abroad that's affected by uh, foreign policy. You make your decisions there. But don't make your decisions based on what anybody is saying here. Listen to the facts and make your own decisions. I'm done talking. Uh, Steve? Okay, so uh, let me just uh, comment on uh, Scott Gottlieb's um, uh, uh, response. I, I thought it was amazingly weak because what he did is he changed the topic. He didn't address the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is that he was actively involved in su suppressing people's speech. And so he then deflected in his response saying, oh, poor me, I've been attacked. But he never addressed the issue. So I find it very telling uh, that he chose to change the that's topic. A, that's a very, and before you continue, it's a very, it's a valid point, and I, I'm trying to be very sensitive here, and, and I'm, I'm sensitive of, of you know, him getting threats, and, and I think we all, we all empathize there. But he did not address the specific allegations or comment on the, on the point of censorship. Um, so it's a good point, uh, good thing you've pointed out, Steve. Yeah, and then uh, the other thing, uh, you know, people making their own risk-benefit um, assessments. Um, I've been in, uh, doing direct uh, DMs uh, uh, with uh, Eugene, uh, asking him, well, you, so you, you um, to, to show me the, his evidence because I'm, I'm still waiting to, to see the evidence, and I want to hear how he responds to my evidence. So, uh, so Eugene, I just want to let you know that you've got a bunch of messages from me waiting for you, so um, so we can exchange evidence and be um, uh, be delighted to do that and see if you're perhaps aware of something that, that I'm not aware of. Because if, if you are, I would love to hear it because I've got a, a half a million dollar debate with someone. And if there is evidence that I'm wrong, I definitely want to see it. So make no doubt about it. I want to see your evidence uh, that this vaccine, uh, that, why you think it has the benefits outweigh the risks because I, I just haven't seen it. And the other thing that people should be aware of is that there's this, this thing called GMP, which is good manufacturing practice. And any drug that you're given in America today has to be GMP. And what's interesting is that the vaccines were not GMP'd. In fact, there were at least 25 million doses that were manufactured and distributed. They were distributed into the U.S. and into Europe. And I don't know what the distribution was, but... 25 million doses were not GMP, and that's that's a minimum. At least 25 million doses are not GMP. Which and, and it, had I known that, had I been informed about, hey, this is not GMP material that we're injecting into your bloodstream, I would have. I mean, I would have run as fast as I could have in the other direction that is absolutely unheard of where was where, never... did you, where does that information come from um it comes from the european medical association I, i'd like to see the, that the i'd like to see that because gmp is something oh, yeah, oh you will you will you will pay attention to my Substack. it's coming i'm a little bit backlogged i'm i'm writing it up but but here's the bigger thing okay folks that you don't even have to uh, 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 believe me on any of this stuff, okay? What you need to do is you need to look at the FDA monitoring of drugs in this country, including the vaccines. There is no quality control being done on any of these vaccines where the FDA is going in and taking vials off the shelf at Walgreens 
and testing them and looking for mRNA integrity, looking to see if there's graphene oxide or anything else in these vials. None of this stuff is being done. And the FDA has a staff, it's like 1,300 people at the FDA who are supposed to be responsible for doing this, but there is no drug safety monitoring program that assesses the quality of the drugs in the United States. And I just, like I said, I just got off the phone with a former FDA official who told me this, and boy, was I surprised when I heard this. And I'm not hearing this from some conspiracy theorists. I'm talking with a former top official of the FDA um, who was in charge of this stuff. And he's actually now looking at trying to put this stuff in place on, on a, a, a privately funded scale. But, you know, it really is a, it's a huge job that the FDA is not doing. So just be aware that there is no monitoring, there is no active monitoring of the, for example, the mRNA integrity, there's no monitoring of what's in the files, um, anything that's, that's um, manufactured outside of the United States, which most, I, I think most of these vaccines are, are manufactured outside of the country, I don't know, but if it's manufactured outside of the country, the FDA isn't monitoring that. Um, since the COVID lockdowns, they haven't been, been sending teams. And when they do send teams, the teams have to provide notice to the country and have to go through all sorts of diplomatic uh, procedures. And so everybody knows in advance that the FDA is coming. But in the United States, the FDA can show up at any time and do their inspections without any notice whatsoever. So <laughs> when, you, when you're looking at a drug which is being manufactured outside the United States, and there's no quality, there's no end-to-end -end quality control being done in the U.S. And I defy anybody, anybody, any of the speakers to tell me, where is the quality control? Where is showing me the mRNA integrity, the, 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 the gene sequence? What's in the vials? Like, show me that. I have never seen that at all. We should all be very concerned about that. Um, and that's on top of, of course, the the existing concerns and the showing up in the VARA system and the, the CDC ignoring 770 safety signals were ignored by the CDC using their own database and using their own safety signal metric. They were, it was all triggered. They ignored them all. They wrote it off as uh, just over-reporting and they have no evidentiary uh, basis for doing that. They did the same thing in 2009 with the Slade report, with the HPV vaccine and it's got to stop, you know, sometime. Physicians need to wake up and they need to, to look at what's going on. So I'm done. Thanks. Thanks, Stephen. And before I get, <laughs> before I give the, before I give Lisa the mic, because I know she was trying to reply, um, Eugene, I am, Alex might be joining us back again. The team just messaged me. So um, I know that you guys had a back and forth in the past. So you probably could bury the hatchet here. Uh, but yeah, Lisa, you were jumping in uh, uh, while Steve was speaking. Uh, I, 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 while I agree 100%, there should be absolute. I don't see her on stage, brother. Oh, she's speaking now. Yeah, she's speaking now, Nelson. I think you can't yeah. hear. It's glitching for okay. you. Go ahead, Lisa. Um, yeah, so um, while I agree 100%, there, there should not be censorship. So let's, and, and there should have been discussion about um, the pros and cons of a variety of different um, measures that people took. Uh, what I do keep on hearing is a lot of anecdotal um, information. And I'm not trying to say that, um, that, that people don't uh, have real uh, reasons for uh, feeling strongly about uh, the way um, things have 
worked with the vaccine. I'd like to point out that there is now because of, and I think it's partially because of the censorship, there is, there's not, there's suspicion about vaccines in general. And I think that that has potential to do great harm. Um, like I said, I do just, like I said uh, earlier, Lisa, before you continue, Steve, on the points you've made, just got an MD that's DMing me, but can't come on stage uh, because I'm guessing they're with a patient. Um, Steve, they say the following. Many other countries have stricter drug controls than the U.S. and that have approved the COVID vaccines. They've got their own FDA. Switzerland, for example, has the strictest um, strictest controls, drug controls, and they approve those vaccines. So I just thought, wanted to share that with you, Steve, um, if you wanted to comment and on it. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think show that, me, yes. show me the monitor, show me, show me the monitoring. I'll, I'll ask them. I'll ask them to send and, it to you. So, so yeah, the the and Liza, you know, I asked you to read Turtles all the way down and find a mistake in that book. It talks about all the other vaccines. I think you need to go and look at the data before you comment on it. That's all. Okay. I I think that I have. I think that vaccines are critically important. I think that that there is good manufacturing processes and good laboratory processes followed by multiple uh, companies that put things on the market. Um, and it's not just a U.S. exclusive thing. So, I a, uh, Lisa, I have a question for you, and, and go to Eugene because you know you, you've been supportive of the vaccines. How? What, what would be your thoughts on the Chinese vaccines, for example? Because that hasn't been mentioned much. Yeah, I have. To be honest with you, I haven't followed very much about the Chinese vaccines, so I wouldn't be able to tell you. Um, what I can say is that I paid very close attention to the mRNA vaccines in particular. So, um, and, and I think that uh, uh, they've been good at preventing deaths in high-risk people. And COVID is a bad disease for a, a certain groups of people. I agree that children aren't quite as much at risk, and so there's nuance there, but. Uh, I think that that for for people at risk, the COVID vaccine has uh, been very good at preventing death. Where where is the nursing home that I can contact, Lisa, that can show me the data? Because none of the nursing homes will talk to me and all the data I'm getting out is negative. Can you please give me the name of a nursing home I can contact where the death rates went down? Please. So, so Steve, I can't give you the name of a nursing home in particular. What I can say is that I suspect a lot of people, if they're afraid of litigation uh, based on innuendo, uh, that that they they may be reluctant to talk. And it's not because they they think that their 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 facts are wrong, but it, it's it's they're they're concerned about that problem. Okay, but shouldn't people that have been uh, just absolutely maligned for two years now about this vaccine, shouldn't they be the ones that are actually worried about being challenged on spaces like this? Why, why is there so much trouble in getting people that are supporting the theories that you are throwing out there to come on spaces and chat? And I, I, I greatly respect the fact that you are here doing this, but you know, what is the issue? What I'll is get, the... I'll, Eugene, Eugene, you'd be perfect to answer this because I, um, I don't want to share their replies with the audience. Uh, but Eugene, you might you might be able to tell the audience and tell Nick why we're seeing that resistance. Uh, yeah, definitely. So just to rephrase, you're saying the resistance about just having a civil discussion about the vaccines? Yes, sir. Yep. Yeah, so I think the issue here, uh, for, for every side on this issue, uh, we need to separate, you know, what the science is 
from what we want the science to be. And I think like anybody can be guilty of the latter um, instead of paying attention to the former. Uh, for myself, you know, based on the evidence, I do believe that the benefits of the vaccine vastly outweigh the risks. That's what I've seen from what the science is telling me versus, you know, I think we need to separate that from what we want the science to be. I also want the science to show that vaccines, you know, are effective. And the reason why, um, for me personally, I, I would like for that result to be true with the evidence appears to say it is, is because I'm... Yeah, Mike, your mic is uh, messing up, Eugene. Uh, so while you fix your mic, oh. I'll, uh, I'll let Dr. James... Oh, you're back with us, Eugene, before Dr. James replies. Uh, Eugene is cut out. Dr. James, please, sure. go ahead. Hi, I think you're... I hope you're talking to me. Um, I, I am, yes, Molly. To, yeah, thanks. Hey, I just want to hop in because when I hear terms like, you know, people have an emotional response to this, yes, we do, because this has defied any sense of logic and common sense the fact that people lost their jobs, lost their livelihoods, and have been treated like second-class citizens with no basis in medicine. And we have watched, you know, the people who say, I've never seen a vaccine injury, I would say, open your eyes, because I've seen them in the ICU since March of 2021. And, you know, to say, like, follow the data and follow the science, Steve Kirsch is presenting that to you. And I want to know, you know, we're thrown with labels like mis and disinformation. I want to know what doctor thinks their opinion is more valuable than mine, because I would never come to somebody and say, you may disagree with me, but you deserve to lose your medical license. I mean, that is why we are emotional about it is because we are way outside the bounds of normal medicine. Guys, jump in. I was just getting my food. You know, everyone was quiet waiting for me. I was just yeah, getting um, my can food. I, can I jump in? Yeah, go ahead, Eugenie. Go ahead. Perfect. Yeah. So maybe um, it would be helpful if we circle back to um, like the main point of this Twitter spaces, which is that Twitter files drop and the content of it. Um, and I think this, it's a perfect example to talk about, to answer everyone's questions here, um, because this is one example where maybe uh, those on the political left were guilty of putting what they wanted the science to be versus what the science actually was telling us. Really? Right? And, and in this particular example, it was whether acquired immunity um, or natural immunity to COVID-19 was uh, either superior or inferior to the protection conferred by the COVID vaccines. Right? Yeah, and, and, and Mario, to, to bring it back to the Twitter files, not to interrupt, but just this is this is what it is, okay? We, in fact, I was going back and forth with Alex. Alex was asking me, this is Justin Hart was mentioned in the, the Twitter files today, but he, he mentioned, why did he go after you on this? So this was on September 3rd, 2021. Uh, and I noticed it was late that the, the tweet I had, which was kind of a little play on sticks and stones. Uh, and then about two hours before that, I had retweeted, uh, a video in which he was on CNBC. And if you have just a minute and 20 seconds, I can play it for you right here. Is that okay, Mario? Uh, please I, do, I, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, so this is this is from September third, twenty twenty one. This brings all back into bear. So this is something I tweeted out, and I said, "Ha ha, more gaslighting from Scott Gottlieb, Pfizer board member." The first two shots really served as primers, he says. Apparently, three or four shots are where it's at. I was being a little snarky, but here's the here's the actual context of that discussion online with CNBC. Are we talking about the need for boosters at all because of the initial group that was part of the study for the vaccine is now showing that their immunity has worn down? 
Yeah, there's evidence that there's a decline in immunity over time. It's more pronounced in older individuals. A lot of that data comes out of Israel, where Israel has undertaken a broad campaign to make boosters available to their population. But there's also evidence of declining effectiveness in the U.S. trials as well. Um, you see declining efficacy over time, not against hospitalization. The vaccines are very protective against severe disease, and that seems to hold up. It's protection against um, infection and also protection against less severe disease where you see a decline in efficacy. And the concern is that if you start to see a decline in efficacy against uh, any symptomatic infection, even mild infection, eventually that's going to translate into more severe infections, particularly in a vulnerable population. And that's really the impetus for, for providing the boosters. So, so he's asking and advocating again for more boosters. And, and this, again, you, you remember previously in the context of this whole thing, was that, you know, if everyone got vaccinated, we could all go back to life. Uh, and then, you know, in August, it was you got to get a, a first booster, then a second booster. And look, the uptake right now on the uh, uh, on the bivalent booster is barely hitting 30 percent. I mean, so I, I think people feel there's a, there's a little bit of a kind of a cry wolf moment, which is like, look, I've, I've given you two shots. And I think, you know, 70, 80 percent of the population got at least one shot. And I think people are just they're done with this sort of narrative that it's just going to be one more shot that will get you over that. That's what I was responding to. And then two hours later, it looks like uh, I, I tweeted out something about uh, there was sticks and stones will break our bones, but it's not going to impact us when the fatality among among children is almost zero percent. And I was talking about our children losing almost three years of school at that point. And remember, the context is the fall here. And in September of 2021, every single school district in many of the large blue states, I'm in San Diego, California, they were threatening our kids again with close downs for the slightest exposure. And there was there were threats that they had to get boosted. The EUAs were coming out for kids. So that's the context of Scott Gottlieb sending the request into Twitter and saying, hey, you've got to take down the comments. And I'm, I'm guessing that he saw this uh, retweet of, of that went pretty viral of, of what I was uh, of that, that video from CNBC. And then found the latest tweet that I had and just said, hey, this guy ought to be taken down. At least that's how I interpret it. I do want to read a question from the audience before going to um, uh, answers for Sean and uh, silenced, um, silenced Survivor. So I've got a question here. Sorry, I'm eating, so I apologize. Question to the physicians in the room. Every drug comes with a risk-benefit profile. We as physicians were not permitted to risk stratify with these vaccines. Do the physicians like Eugene and Lisa, so Eugene Lisa for you for you guys, not ask themselves why? We were censored rather than allowed to vocalize this. From what I've heard you both say before, I think you'd agree with that statement, but I'd love your take. Maybe Lisa, you want to answer first before Eugene? Sure. I think that, yes, I think that there, the response to the whole pandemic has been problematic. And I agree that you should be able to risk stratify your patients. Um, I, I also, you know, think that things are usually out of compassion used off label. And there was no discussion about that. That kind of discussion was squashed. And I don't think that that was uh, a legit uh, thing to do either. So, yeah, I think that, that there should have been open, frank discussion about but risk. I, 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 I'll, uh, I'll add on to the question, Lisa, before going to Eugene. Like, But would you compare, so playing devil's advocate, would you compare COVID to any other um a drug or illness because it was such a it just it was such a shock to the world that in hindsight okay a lot of mistakes were made but it cannot be compared to other illnesses would you agree with that statement 
I, I think it depends on the on the illness. Once again, yes, the retrospectoscope is 2020. So it's very easy to look backwards and see what mistakes are being made um, and, and, and past judgment. So I think that that's one of the things that we need to take into context. But as things were unfurling um, and people got to know, th- you know, got to know about things more, I think that there should have been a more robust discussion about uh, the risks and benefits of a variety of different um, interventions and whether or not they were worth it. Instead of having doctors have a in medical journals and journalists and everybody got into a big mudslinger um, and tried to shut each other down rather than which which the general public was sort of watching back go back and forth and not knowing who to believe because you had top tier physicians from top tier institutions and top tier journals arguing with each other and also trying to shut each other down. So I think that that really um, poisoned the dialogue um, and it has set us up for failure going forward. No, I don't think that there's been another pandemic that's like this in terms of the, politi- of the politicization of it. And that's where it became a problem. The politics got in the way of clear headed not, only, not only politics like the whole world was locked down i think we shouldn't forget that as well it's just an insane well, that, don't, exactly. but don't the, 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 the exactly. don't confuse the politics there's there's the science right and then there's the application of the science into public policy so yeah. my team for example we were one of the key people helping scott atlas when he was at the white house and a lot of people said well he's not a virologist He's not an epidemiologist. No, but he's got 25 years of experience of public policy. That was his expertise. And and somehow we get this brain set that the science somehow dictates immediate policies. The reason this went political is that the first dictates from the science were you need to lose your job. You need to stay at home. Your kids need to stay away from school. And and that's the public policy application. You can't go to your barbershop. Oh, no, but this group over here, you're fine to go and, and, and work. And it's like, well, what is going on, right? So we shouldn't be surprised that it becomes political. It became political the first job that you crushed yeah, under the weight of the science. So, so, okay. Yeah, actually, uh, Dr. Nick, do uh, go first. Then I'll yeah, because he was mentioning oh, okay. the question. Oh. Yeah, go ahead, Dr. Do. Oh, perfect. Um, so I just wanted to say that for me, I think the COVID-19 pandemic was a lot like a war. Like, you know, um, we had a war on terror and you saw a lot of uh, attacks on people's civil liberties and privacy rights. And I think in any kind of warlike environment, you're going to have attacks on people's civil liberties, which I don't agree with. Like whether you're on the right or the left, I think we need to protect our civil liberties. Um, And this is one instance, uh, this Twitter files drop is one instance of how those civil liberties were trampled upon a little bit, right? Like labeling tweets as misinformation, saying that the science is incorrect when, in fact, the science may actually be correct, right? I personally believe, you know, based on the evidence, that having acquired immunity to COVID is probably superior to having a vaccine. That doesn't mean that the vaccines are important. That doesn't mean that the vaccines don't save a lot of lives. Um, And that doesn't mean that the benefits of the vaccines don't outweigh the risks, It just means that in the case of that one kind of scenario, um, I believe people on the left and the right should have just listened to the science um, rather than their own narratives and then using their power over, you know, social media, journalist articles to kind of push their narrative over the science. The science doesn't dictate policy. Science is different than the application of science to policy. And so we need to when you you, as soon as they hit the policy button, you as an American citizen have an absolute right to make it political. 
right? Because that's what it's all about. It's like, I need a representative there. Like, I have my unelected health official here in San Diego, Wilma Wooten, August 2021, saying your best bet is just to assume that everyone in the country, everyone that you come across has COVID. And I said, that's a dis- disastrous public policy, right? And, and so the idea is like, you have the science. That's great. We have, you know, good, rigorous, hopefully debates on that. There's been a lot of back and forth on that. But as soon as it hits the policy debate, we should, you know, that's when it becomes political and it should be. Because you're now impacting people's, you know, right for the pursuit of happiness, that basic pillar of our American society. And Dr. Gu, Dr. how much do you think um, it influenced, for example, in the case of early treatments? How much do you think of a role did censorship play uh, in terms of, you know, prohibiting sort of doctors to try and treat COVID differently. And right after Gu, uh, Dr. Gu, after you answer this, I do want to go to answers for Sean and uh, silenced uh, survivor. Uh, go ahead, Eugene. Yeah. Um, um, so in answer to your question, Catherine, um, I do think that the culture of fear and perhaps censorship regarding discussions, especially on social media and elsewhere about COVID-19, um, was pretty high, especially in the beginning of the pandemic when a lot of us didn't know all the facts. Um, but I think over time, as we gathered more evidence, especially as the vaccines have been out longer, many millions of people have gotten the vaccines. Um, the, the evidence has proven, for the most part, that these vaccines, are, the benefits far outweigh the risks and they're safe and effective, uh, even if they're not perfect. So um, answers for Sean or silenced uh, survivor would love you to respond to this and make the point you wanted to make as well. Hi, Mario. Thank you very much. Love you, Tara. I just want to say my perfectly healthy son, who played hockey his whole life, took one Pfizer shot and died 33 days later. He was found dead on the floor beside his bed. And the cause of death is unascertained. Of course, that's what the cause of death is. My son was murdered by this vaccine And I don't want to hear anyone saying they're safe and effective anymore because it really pisses me off. And I'm getting mad now. And I'm still being silenced. The other night, Yoko Ono made a post about what do you wish for for 2023? I said, I wish for the truth for why my perfectly healthy son died 33 days after his vaccination. And it didn't get any responses. Hardly anything. My son was named after Sean... Yoko Lennon. That's how much I love the Beatles. And my followers always follow me and respond to everything I do. So I'm still being censored. I thought Elon Musk was going to fix all this. It shows that I'm not shadow banned, but that's bullshit because sometimes I click on my own posts and for a split second, it says nothing to see here. I'm not a whack job or conspiracy theorist. My son died 33 days after a Pfizer vaccine, a hockey player who was perfectly healthy and had no underlying conditions. The vaccine killed my son. There's nothing more to discuss about it. Anyone who says I'm wrong, come and tell me to my face. We'll talk about it. I'm sick of being censored. I want the world to know my son. My son died. Thank you so much, Mario. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. God love you, brother. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming back to the panel and appreciate you. And again, um, I'll give you my number now. I think I said I'll give it to you last. I'm not sure if I did, if you have WhatsApp. Um, And if there's anything you're facing issues with Twitter, uh, if there's a shadow ban or anything else, 
I'm just sending you my number as we speak, and uh, I can try to help there. I appreciate being here, man. And I'm sorry about, obviously, uh, I think we're all sorry about your loss, man, and the pain you're feeling, and how hard you're trying to to fight to get that story heard. That's the second time we come on the space. I've seen you in the space multiple times as well, requesting to speak. I'm guessing you've spoken in other spaces, and and look, I don't want to even discuss the points you've made. I just want to, you know, the pain you're feeling is something I cannot even. Yeah, man. It's unimaginable. I'm just going to say, I'm That's just going to say, sure. I am, and I just I am really quickly, Nick. <laughs> Go ahead. I said I'm currently I'm, I'm on here on Gibson Go right now. It's on his profile. I'm donating $250 to the cause. So, and I would encourage everybody else in the audience to do the same. And I think what something important that was said in you know the previous space that I've heard you say is that you cannot you know have closure until you have answers. And to be left with a response of unascertained, we don't know, you know, is not fair. And it's not fair for Sean. And it's not fair for you as his father. You deserve to know the truth. You deserve the answers that you are asking for. Exactly, Tara. That's all I want. Just someone tell me the truth, please. I hope by doing all of this that that's what comes from this. And that's what I was getting at earlier, Mario, is just what is it that we, as a as a group of people, you know, you, Mario, putting these spaces together, which I commend you for doing because they're not always easy. They're not always easy to balance. And there's a lot of real emotion involved here, obviously. Um, what is the goal? And for me, it's just that. We all deserve answers, and especially those who are directly impacted and affected by the vaccines. They deserve the answers. And Silent Survivor, I think you fight for the same cause. I'd love to give you the mic. Yeah, thanks, um, Dan. My heart to you and your your lovely wife. And, um, you know, you always have a voice with me. Um, I acknowledge you. I see you, and I love you, and I'll help you. And But he's not the only one. There are so many stories just like his, not to undermine yours whatsoever, Dan. Um, So anyway, yep, I'm Silence Survivor. I had one dose of Moderna. It's coming up on two years. I had an immediate anaphylactic reaction, ongoing neurological issues, and some cardiac issues from it. Uh, It's been difficult. I have been censored. I've been deplatformed. I am currently in the last three days of a 30-day Facebook suspension. I'm not usually on it for one month, um, and then I get suspended again. I got suspended for sharing a picture of a billboard of Maddie DeGarry where Maddie DeGarry was in the Pfizer 12- to 15-year-old trial. And she was severely injured after her second vaccine. She today is still in a wheelchair, has an NG tube, and is suffering. Pfizer reported her vaccine reaction, the most severe one, as constipation and stomach pains, and then functional neurological disorder, meaning anxiety. That is not anxiety. That is fraud. That is what Pfizer did. I had a um, meeting with FDA after a year of requesting it um, with FDA, CDC, and NIH. 
uh, NIH, well, NIH didn't show, but FDA and CDC did. And they said I could bring my my team. I don't have a team. I, I was doing this alone, but I had Angela Walbrick, a nurse who had the vaccine in 12 minutes, was in the back of an ambulance, tell her story. I had Ernest Ramirez, whose 16-year-old son died from myocarditis three days after the Pfizer vaccine. And then Steph DeGarry and Maddie DeGarry also on that call. We asked for follow-up. We asked for specific information. There has been none. I run Twitter spaces now for the voiceless, the vaccine injured who have been censored, have been silenced, have been maligned. My other name is misinformation. I got that name from a bunch of evidence-based doctors who called me that, among a lot of other things like anti-vax or garbage, fake news and killer just for sharing my story. And then they took a picture of me and they tweeted it out. I don't understand. I've never met a person, doctors previously that would do something like that. We just want to be acknowledged. We want to be researched and we want help. So um, in regarding, and then I'll stop and maybe Steve can, if you're still here, Steve, address this one thing. If you haven't seen it, I encourage everybody to please look at one Steve Substack. He has a good summary of it. But just yesterday, the um, there was a leaked video that came out from the Israeli MOH where their um, director of their Ministry of Health and their researchers that had been looking at the vaccines, it was them discussing their findings. And their findings show, surprising, not surprising to me, all of the neurological issues that are not short-term. They admitted in the video, these are long-term issues, yet they still push the, the jab. Steve can maybe talk if he has a minute, a little more on that, because everybody needs to see that. Thank yeah. you so much, Mario. Tara, you're yeah. a bulldog. I love you. Thank you for fighting for us, every one of you. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Thank you so yeah, much for coming. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I'd like to, to follow, follow up on that. Um, Maddie DeGarry um, was injured just as, as described. Uh, within 24 hours after her shot, she went from a perfectly healthy young girl of 12 years old to she couldn't get off the bus in less than 24 hours after she got the shot. She's now in a wheelchair um, She's a paraplegic. She may become a quadriplegic. She has to eat through a feeding tube. I spoke to, to Janet Woodcock, who is the head of the FDA. And I said, Janet, you really need to investigate this because this is clinical trial fraud. And Janet Woodcock assured me that she would have the FDA investigate this. I just checked with Stephanie DeGarry two days ago. Stephanie said, no one from the FDA, CDC, or NIH has ever reached out to them to find out what happened. And regarding the Israeli dump, there was a meeting between the Israeli Ministry of Health, the top officials, the number three person uh, was there at, the, at that meeting, along with a staff of about six or seven people, and... 
there was also a group of scientists, about five scientists. They had asked these scientists who they've been working with uh, for a long time to go in and do the safety study for uh, the the, uh, the COVID vaccines because for over a year, they were not doing adequate safety monitoring to assess whether or not the vaccine might be causing um, events that are um, that severe adverse events. And so what the scientists um, determined, and they determined this through longitudinal surveys of people, and I'm sure Eugene is, is aware of this, uh, this data because it's really important because it shows a causality and it shows that severe adverse events that do not resolve are in fact being caused by the vaccine and that the health officials are aware of this. And what the health officials did is they said, thank you very much for your research. This is excellent research. Thank you for uncovering this. And of course, we want to continue funding your research so that instead of just looking at the five most common symptoms, we can look at at all of the symptoms. And so we can, instead of having to manually go through the free text, we can use AI to turn the free text into uh, more actionable things because it's too difficult to mine all these results with the free text. And gee, we should convert some of these things to checkboxes so it can be more easily reported. So what happened after that meeting is that all funding was cut for the research. The research was squashed so that there was no communication at all to the Israeli people as to what the scientists had told the Ministry of Health. They covered up everything. They said, there's nothing to see here. There are no new results. And there has been no investigation by anyone in parliament in Israel. There's no investigation by anyone in the mainstream media. All of the people in the mainstream media in Israel refuse to see the video of this. So they don't even, it's, I'm, I'm, we're not even talking about writing a story. They don't even want to see the evidence. And I personally tried to bring that Israeli evidence, uh, which is n- not refutable. It was, in fact, it was even fact-checked by Reuters as being authenticated. It was a, this is the authentic tape. It was done legally. It was recorded legally. And uh, the Reuters fact checkers, in fact, didn't even view the video, the entire video. They just said, oh, it was just taken out of context. They refused to view the entire video. So I tried to bring this to the attention to the head of the ASIP committee at the CDC, because they're supposed to be the outside committee. They're supposed to be free of corruption. I, I had to go to a professor, Stanford professor Grace Lee's house. She lives about 10 minutes away from me. And the reason I had to do that is because she was non-responsive to every form of communication I tried. So I had one last opportunity, which is to go to her house, which, in fact, is where she works. So it's like visiting her at her workplace. I knocked on the door. She refused to answer the door. She called the cops on me. And the cops said what I was doing here. And I handed them the note I just left to, to Professor Lee saying, Professor Lee, would you like to see the Israeli safety data Yes or no, it's important. People's lives are at stake. That is the note that the cops read. The cops said I had done nothing wrong. Um, Grace Lee should not have called the cops. Um, and in fact, what she showed 
is that people in the United States will do anything to avoid looking at the safety data of these vaccines. So, um, so Dan Hartman was, was just on here telling how his son died. Dan, your son was killed by the government and the government refuses to look at any safety data or acknowledge any safety data that goes against the narrative. And this needs to change. And unfortunately, uh, the only person in, in Congress who is a bulldog on this, Senator Ron Johnson, he's not in the, in the majority. I wish he was. But, you know, things have got to change here. And, you know, it starts with people like Dr. Dr. Gu and and Lisa and 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 all the other people who are saying all these things. Oh, I've seen the evidence. It's safe and effective. I'm I'm convinced. You know, you really have to look at the evidence and have a hard discussion and and not have this willful blindness where you're only looking at part of the things because anything that gets published in these peer-reviewed medical journals goes through a filter. And if it's not supporting the safe and effective narrative, it gets crushed. And a perfect example of this is when when Peter McCullough co-authored the paper with Jessica Rose. It went through peer review. It got published in the journals. And then the publisher of the journal unilaterally decided to take it down. Okay, And there was no outcry from the medical community on how dare they censor this peer-reviewed science and this, this kind of thing happens every day. I've talked to some of the, one of the, the, the most respected, in fact, he's probably the most respected guy in science. And he said, you know, I'm having trouble getting my papers published. They go through, they, they pass peer review. They never get in the journal. I'm not going to say who he is because he asked me, asked uh, for confidentiality, but this is the kind of thing we're dealing with. And so these doctors who think, oh, it's all, it's not going to be in the peer reviewed literature. I'm sorry. Uh, that's not the way it works. This is why anecdotes are so important. And this is why I keep asking you over and over and over again, show me the nursing home. Show me the nursing home uh, uh, where the numbers are down and I and I hear silence. I'll let, uh, and, you know, uh, uh, this, has, uh, this has got to stop. Yeah, I'll let, I'll let Eugene and, and Lisa reply because you mentioned them. But before that, there's two breaking news. So first one, we're talking about censorship. So Facebook and YouTube are removing content backing the Brazil attack. So they, they disclosed it. Facebook, so Meta and Google's video platform YouTube said on Monday they were removing content supporting or praising the weekend ransacking of Brazilian government buildings by anti-democratic demonstrators. Uh, and I'll read out what the quote is. In advance of the election, we designated Brazil as a temporary high-risk location and have been removing content calling for people to take up arms or forcibly invade Congress, the presidential palace, and other federal buildings, a Meta spokesman said, which kind of links back to the thought process that Twitter had during the January 6 uh, events that we talked about a few weeks ago. Another breaking news that's a bit unrelated, but breaking for news shared with, with me. They've been on the stage a few times. Breaking-for-news or underscore, underscore, uh, underscore four, underscore news. They said, Justin, U.S. attorney reviewing classified documents from Joe Biden's vice presidency found at private office. Um, another one there from the Washington Post. No, from AP, sorry. White House, Justice Department reviewing potentially classified documents found at Biden Center from time as vice president. So we don't know anything more, just something to keep an eye out on and appreciate breaking four news for sharing this. But I'll let Eugene and Lisa respond to, to Steve because a lot of points made towards you guys. Okay, sure. Yeah, was, um, oh. Do you want to go first, Lisa? Sure, sure, just briefly. Okay. Um, 
once again, just to kind of draw back and take the eagle eye view, we started out in a really big pandemic that was killing lots and lots of people in New York City. Um, and, and we, this, we were learning things in real time. So I, I think to make, you know, allegations that, uh, that, you know, people were, you know, acting, uh, you know, uh, that they, that they were nefarious is, is incorrect. I think people were doing the best of their ability to deal with a deadly pandemic that seemed to have a very high, high mortality rate. Um, and the, the thing about New York, which is, which was sort of ground zero for this. And I, I spent time in New York. I trained in New York. I knew the people who were who taking care of these patients and they're very good doctors, but you had, you had 9 million people crossing 30 square miles every day and living on top of each other. So you had much more easy transmission of this virus and it had an extraordinary mortality rate there. Um, what you don't have in flyover country where I'm from and in other places was that much close contact. So I think that the virus was transmitted much more readily there. And the model that wound up taking sort of being be, taking the lead was the model in New York, whereas in, in places where you had natural so, social distance, distancing because people were in their cars and things like that, you didn't tend to see so many people get sick. So I think that that sort of skewed people's ideas of how, how deadly this disease was. Multiple doctors were seeing in intensive care situations, we're seeing really, really sick people and people out on the streets were seeing sort of people with runny noses. And so they didn't there was there was a disconnect in how people perceived the the degree of um, problem there was with this disease. And I think that doctors got frustrated because they were seeing so much illness and 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 maybe responded in a way that was condescending to to people who had genuine questions. And I think that that's really unfortunate um, because. So, so, so excuse me, let me interrupt. 770 safety signals were triggered in the VARA system. You're using that as the excuse for how the CDC can ignore all the safety signals and how nobody at the that, CDC Steve, wanted Steve, to see the Steve, safety data Steve, from Israel? Seriously? Steve. Steve. I'm, I'm not referring to that at all. I'm telling you what it was like for the doctors that I know who are working in this environment. And I, they were doing their best to take care of very sick patients with, with a disease that nobody knew about. It, 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 so we were learning in real time. And yes, a lot of, I think that there was a lot of mudslinging. I think that there was a lot of judgment thrown around and things like that, but people were all scared and they were behaving the best that they knew how. I, so that, that's all I'm going to say. I think the real tragedy is that this is going to bleed out into other vaccines and those, and I, I think that that's that's a that's a true tragedy. Um, can I talk for a, a few seconds? Yeah, go ahead. So, um, I think the main point that maybe we can circle around is whether the impartiality of social media platforms 
um, is something that we should consider when it comes to things like the COVID-19 pandemic. And then Mario, you mentioned uh, Facebook and Instagram or something. They were removing posts about the Brazilian um, like the unrest and so post and that, yeah, or whatever according to what they said yeah posts that were encouraging others yeah. to come and, and uh, join the the protest or, or or the invasion of the senate etc so i think the tricky question gets to um what rights do you know social media companies like twitter or facebook uh, and others have to influence public discussion for something that is in you know contention that goes for the covid19 pandemic that goes for also, you know, political coups across the world, right? I think the reaction would be very different if, if instead of Brazil, it was like Venezuela doing the same thing. It might be supported by, by the U.S. government and social media companies, right? So, so, like, how do we disentangle our own political wants from, like, the public discussion on social media without labeling things as disinformation or dangerous just because they're an opposing viewpoint? And I'll, you know, stop right here and open it up for discussion. Can I just jump in here? I'll be real quick, which is I would like to have Dr. Gu and Dr. Dunn both issue public statements condemning the CDC for ignoring 770 safety signal in, in the fair system. That is corrupt. And I think that is in plain sight. Those safety signals can be verified by anyone. I verified the death safety signal myself. Nobody believed me. The Freedom of Information Act showed that not only the death safety signal was triggered, but the CDC admitted that 770 other safety signals were triggered. They didn't notify the American public. I think Dr. Gu and Dr. Dunn should publicly call out the CDC for that sort of behavior. Will they do that right now and commit to do that? Well, I think that rather than publicly calling them out to do that, maybe that is a conversation you can have. Um, but I do want to address uh, Eugene's uh, point, and I think that is a very difficult one. I mean, I, I just as a as a parallel point, I, I've had a situation where you know, just for example, in, in regards to the the Russia Ukraine war, uh, you know, there there was a call, for example, you know, in Russia, uh, there's a tremendous censorship and suppression of speech. But um, I was speaking with a Ukraine group where the same sort of situation where they were saying, well, there's there should be like, for example, in Germany, they, they have a lot of laws saying you can't say certain things um, in regards to the war. So so it's very difficult unless you have you either have sort of no censorship at all because you uh, or you have censorship and then you decide rightly or wrongly that certain speech is not allowed. And so you, you really can't have a middle ground ultimately. Right. Because then somebody gets to decide what is appropriate and what is not. And they're going to make, you know, mistakes or not mistakes. Somebody's going to make decisions and, and decide for everyone else what's what's correct and what's not. Well, I, you know, I, I want to jump in and ask a question real quick to uh, I want to hit on a point that Dr. Dunn brought up earlier. Uh, and we were talking about going up to and, and listening to what the highest tier of medical professionals were talking about. Uh, it, it, it's It's a point worth mentioning that one of the aspects of that people are really skeptical of when it comes to the pandemic response, it drove a lot of people away. You know, it, it was very divisive at the time was the fact that they perceive the federal government and their statements as lying to them. Do you believe that, you know, when it came to the NIH and Dr. Fauci coming out and saying that this vaccine will prevent you from getting COVID, 
Do you believe that was a lie? Or was that based on actual data at the time? Because if it was based on quote unquote data at the time, that's really sad for the amount of money and resources we give them every single year. Yeah, no, it it was data driven. You know, this is something that Operation Warp Speed. We had what we had multiple. <laughs> well, we and that's that. the thing, and 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 that's the thing. I think that this really kind of belies a greater question: how we go about how we go about testing our vaccines. You know, going through a normal ten year process. Um, you know, doing three phases to trials appropriately looking at longitudinal effects. Um, I, I'm, I don't mean to criticize. Um, I, I am in agreement with many of the things that have been said here, but I think that we're talking really about three different issues. First being the initial COVID response. Second being the vaccine itself. And third being censorship. Um, the initial COVID response, I, I really do have so much compassion for the scientists and the physicians who were involved in trying to care for truly sick patients. I think that we were all very afraid and many of us were very brave in, in responding to um, a real national and international threat. And I think that that's one thing that, that Liza has kind of brought up. And I just want to really underscore that point. The vaccine response itself, you know, subsequent to that, I think that there's so much room for improvement. Um, you know, thinking, thinking about how we conducted ourselves, weighing civil liberties against the potential for um, even future bioterrorism. Um, you know, we need to think ahead. We need to, we need to be very careful in how we approach this moving forward and, and formulate uh, uh, a system that, that makes sense. Um, and, and I, I do want to see the silver lining here. Again, I don't think that this is something that we necessarily handled as, as optimally as we could have. And then lastly, again, exactly what this drop is about censorship. This is about um, the fact that, that, we were unable to have civil discourse and debate. Um, and that was, that was because of censorship by social media through conversation with our leadership. And I think that really underscores a, a dangerous um, or potentially dangerous relationship between government, science and medicine um, and, you know, you look at you look at the American Medical Association, the AMA, even right now, they are deeply politically entrenched, um, making recommendations for things like gun ownership, for instance, um, which is a whole separate topic. But but I think we really need to to take a step back. It starts in part by by voting, uh, you know, and I'm speaking as a physician, you know, I'm, I'm an intensivist. Um, but but I'm just hearing several different um, several different issues. And I just, again, want to kind of pull it all together um, for, for the audience. Right. But, but when it does come to, this is kind of relevant on the topic of censorship because you had the official federal government narrative, right? In the beginning of the pandemic, Dr. Fauci, especially and the NIH had said on record that masks uh, are not effective at preventing the spread of COVID-19, right? And so once we, we very quickly figured out that that was a blatant lie, that was a lie. That was not true. And the way they justified that was was by saying, uh, just to try to be obje objective here, was that they did not want to have a run on masks because 
the uh, the health officials or, or, and and medical professionals needed that in the hospital to uh, protect themselves and other patients, right? So when you go to when it comes to vaccines, so I, in have the future, a, Nick, Nick, I have a question for you. Actually, on this particular point, if you don't mind, that's for you, Nick. So if you were making those decisions, okay? Because when you're when you're dealing with emergency. Uh, when you're when you're dealing with with the war or, or any emergency, you're bound to make mistakes, and you you know you're going to be in the firing line. So, a question about the masks. I'm genuinely curious. If let's say this information is fact, they that you know that you were told by your advisors that hey, uh, Nick, the masks work, but we don't have enough. We need them for the doctors because if the doctors don't have enough, then we get the doctors sick. Then we don't have people to deal with the patients, and that could lead to a lot more deaths. They do work, Nick, but people, if we tell them they work, and they go out and start buying them in large quantities, we're not going to have enough for the doctors. So you have two options. Either lie and have masks, and this is hypothetical, by the way, everyone. I'm not saying this is what happened. But lie and have masks ready for the doctors versus say the truth. Always stick to the truth, but that could lead to more deaths based on my Again, hypothetical example. I'm curious, what what would you do, Nick? So we don't necessarily know whether or not there was actually going to be a shortage of masks, right? We do know that the there, that the federal government of the United States does have a strategic reserve, right? They do have uh, millions and millions of masks that are stored in warehouses all across the country that can be deployed at any time, right? I do think that it is much, much more damaging and I believe a lot of our panel would believe this, to lie to the American public because this is what sowed the division in this country right now and, and all over the world because people are watching the United States response and they did back then as well. Once you are caught in a big lie like that, then why do I have a reason to trust you in the future when it comes to telling me, oh yeah, this is, this is, this is what's effective. This is what you need to do. And I'm going to mandate you do this. For this reason, why would I trust you on that? A fair point. Before I give, Nick, me... Nick, Go ahead. Nick they weren't <laughs> lying though. They weren't lying. They were telling the truth. The masks do nothing. These, the the masks that they're recommending do nothing to stop the virus. This is the one time they were actually telling the truth. Fauci even went on sixty minutes and he said, "Hey, it may might stop a droplet or two." But it's not effective against viruses. We've known that for a very long time. The World Health Organization has admitted it for decades that masks do not are not effective against these viruses. And so if you really want a mask that's effective, you need to get a PAPR, which is a powered air purifying respirator with a P100 or better filters. Uh, you know, I, I got my mask set. It, it cost me $800 for a mask that will filter out uh, COVID and other viruses. And if you have anything less than that, like these N95s, they are completely useless. Right. And, and so that's, that is what I was referring to, was N95. Before, before, that's the word I, I should And I do, I do want to quickly, I want to jump in, Jim, just quickly, everyone. I want Lisa to comment on this as well. But before that, uh, Mataya, you've jumped in with the breaking news about the, the top secret files uh, with the the... the um, the, the classified material that was found on Biden's desk. Can you elaborate exactly what the story and what we know? What are the facts that we know right now, Matthias? Uh, yeah, that's right. Thank you for having me. This story broke about a half hour ago, first reported on CBS News. Uh, CNN has put out a significant um, article with information about the situation. 
It appears that in the fall of 2022, there were un, uh, less than a dozen classified documents discovered in the office, one of the offices used by then Vice President Biden and uh, presidential candidate Biden. Uh, but what's very interesting and what I find to be the most uh damaging possibly to the Biden administration, aside from the fact that the DOJ is currently looking into this, is a sentence in the CNN article that is deeply troubling and reminiscent of what we were hearing coming out of the Trump investigation after the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago also earlier this year. I'm going to read for you that statement. It says, the classified materials included some top secret files with the sensitive compartmented information designation, also known as SCI, which is used for highly sensitive information obtained by intelligence sources. Now, we do know from this article that immediately after discovering these documents, the attorneys who were sifting through this information notified the National Archives and have been cooperative in the investigation. But it it certainly is not going to help President Biden's case and will embolden Trump supporters who will compare and contrast the handling of the similar situations. And what you mean, but when you say handling, can you elaborate on what you mean by that? The censorship in the previous situation versus not the censorship, the heavy-handed response by the uh, by the Fed relating to the Trump files versus those ones, the current ones. Absolutely, uh, the Trump administration has been very critical of the handling of the investigation and the raid itself, calling it unprecedented, saying that they would have cooperated if the if the raid hadn't gone on. Uh, we're not here to share opinions. We're just going to give you the facts of the as they are uh, appear, but both of these situations containing this SCI, highly sensitive information, um, it, there is what to compare and contrast to. And it's very interesting to see how this story develops, being taken very seriously by the major media, as well as us independent journalists. I mean, I appreciate you. I was just writing a couple of notes on this. Appreciate you coming in. Just DM me whenever there's more breaking news. I'll bring you back into the space to get your thoughts. Thanks, Matthias. Really appreciate it, man. Absolutely. Have a good Thanks, one. brother. Take care, man. And for everyone else to check this, Matthias from breaking underscore four underscore news. Horrible handle, but great work that they're doing. <laughs> Thanks a lot, brother. Um, uh, sorry, uh, Lisa, I wanted to also respond to that point that was made earlier um, and before we go back to, to all the hands that are up. Yeah, yeah, I, I do think that um, in the scenario that you mentioned, that it is a difficult decision to make whether or not you are trying to protect doctors and things like that. But ultimately, looking back at it, by by have, having that that decision to to make those claims about masks not working and then saying that they do work, actually was at the probably the seed that sowed doubt in the general population about anything that was coming out and, and, and other other things followed. So I think in the long run, um, it was short-sighted to uh, mischaracterize the the uh, use of masks that way. So I, I think, that, and then the back and forth after it was, it was destructive too. So I, I, I think it's important to try to tell the truth. Yeah. And to Steve's point, the, the term, I guess, is respirators that are, that were effective. Not necessarily masks. And so I want to be clear yeah, on that. And yes, and 95 respirators. Um, Nick, I'll let you moderate just briefly. You, I want to go. Sorry, Steve, if you don't mind, I just do want to go. There's a few hands up, and then we'll go to you right after. Uh, we'll go to Justin first and Olivier. And Jim as well, of course. Jim could jump in any time. And Viva. Go ahead, guys. Hey, thanks. Uh, yeah, Liza, thank you so much for being on here. I, I love the 
the dynamics that you bring and some of the, the information you bring there too. And you mentioned this important issue of immunizations and the drop that we've seen uh, over the, the years of MMR, you know, and, and there's some good debate on that. I think uh, a lot of people now are looking at how the sausage was made with COVID-19 and it's tough to go back and say, what else are they not telling us, right? But more importantly, we should note that the largest drop in immunizations was in the spring of 2020. And that's because of the lockdown. So here's this great irony that, you know, why are so people distrustful of vaccines? Well, the major drop happened in the spring of 2020 as doctor offices. Uh, I, I had a child who was one and two and three at those times. And so, uh, you know, the, the shots that you could get, the, the doctors were making appointments. It was only for emergency only. Uh, you know, they were trying to, to, to do these stay at home orders. And so that fear, um, and this was noted, these were the first people to bring the alarms were pediatricians. By the time, uh, June and July came around 2020, they noted that up a 50% drop in immunizations. So the, the irony of, yeah, we do see a drop in immunizations and primarily is because of terrible, terrible decisions around the lockdown. So I just wanted to pop in and make that comment. Yeah. And I might, I want to throw something in here uh, in general, like here, here's, there's a fundamental problem whenever we're talking about all of this. And it's this, the difference between the experts as I'm using the air quotes on my hand and uh, everyone else. And when it comes to science, there are two parts of science. There's the inductive end and the deductive end. The inductive end is the side where the scientists who are truly trained do all the work to gather data, to process data properly, to validate that uh, how data was gathered was done so correctly, which is one of the major aspects of peer review when it comes to papers. But then there's a, the, the deductive side, and that's where we take the data and we draw conclusions. To get to any conclusion, we must, uh, by the means of deduction, we must use the basic rules of logic. And that, that's why the, the Aristotelian paradigm that led ultimately after centuries to the scientific method that began to establish uh, in the, the 17th and 18th centuries, that's, that's the part that really matters in every advancement that we've made because inductive processes do not immediately give us answers. It's the deduction. And human beings are either good or bad at deduction, whether they're experts or not. There are many experts who are bad at deduction. Of course, we just talked about one example of a malign <laughs> poor deduction end where, you know, someone says, as Fauci did, that masks are not effective, and then says they were, we know that they aren't. But see, this is where the American public, they, in, they intelligently understand that at the end of the day, they have just as much right to look through to make sure that the proper things are being said from all the data as anyone else, as even the scientists, we're on the same level. I mean, unless your skills and logic are poor, we're all in the same level here. This is why, and Dr. Gu was talking about something earlier. This is why we should have all the information out, even when there are bad actors, because when that information gets processed through the filter of everyone responding to it and, and listening to what's going on, that's how we get to the best information, and that's where the mistrust is there. We have a ma unrelated 
only specifically to the government response to the COVID pandemic. We have a massive problem in government everywhere, in this country and anywhere else. In fact, in third world, what we quote unquote, and I'm using air quotes here again, what we term third world countries are always hiding information because people want power. In the United States, where we have all ostensibly set up processes to make sure that transparency exists, and we've also do have people who generally aren't always wanting to take over power at any cost. Well, you can only maintain trust in that system with more, not less transparency, with more, not less debate, with more people expressing what their ideas and opinions are based upon the information they have, have rather than less. And that's the fundamental problem with this entire situation. We used to be a lot more like that, where everyone got to talk about it. And now we've got to this place where we're so afraid that social media will weaponize bad opinions that we want to find any bad opinion and shut it down. And you can't figure out what the good and bad opinion is always because it takes a lot of people to work through that. And that's where I think the real problem is with what we've been going through. Hey, Olivier, you've had your hand up for a while. Do you want to respond to that? Yeah, sure. Um, I just first wanted to say that no one really doubts that many doctors here had good intentions uh, especially at the beginning, um, the evidence wasn't really clear yet, right? But meanwhile, it definitely is. And I think I think there's so much evidence that has been brought forward uh, that you can't really deny it anymore, like uh, Dr. Kirsch said. So I think we, we have done enough talking uh, and the mainstream media won't do anything. They've proven themselves over the last years to be very corrupt, in my opinion. Uh, I think... Uh, I would like to call out to all the doctors here. Uh, the best thing you can do to help today and to restore the, the confidence of the public is to make public statements recognizing the mistakes that were made um, and also asking all your peers to make public statements uh, immediately. Also call for um, uh, like your moratorium on vaccinations uh, because the evidence now is is really bad, right? Also, recently, there was, was something published that said the more vaccines you have, the more risk you have to get COVID. So it's it's criminal at this point to to vaccinate people and boost them even further because you're 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 making them more sick in the end. Um, data was falsified and people were lied to, and we need to recognize that, right? So um, I don't think anyone should be hiding anymore and. Yeah, I do. if you don't if you don't say anything, trust will be completely lost. Uh, and I I know uh, many people were helped and saved through alternative treatment protocols from the FLCCC, uh, myself included. Ivermectin helped my family tremendously. Um, so, like all these lies, it's it's incredible. Um, and also, um, I have another question. Before before the question, Olivier, be before your question, because so, you made a few points, Olivier, yeah. and I'll give you the mic right after to ask the question. First about just about the media, because I know that we, uh, and I always, you know, you know me, everyone. I try to be balanced. Just with the media, I think there's a lot of uh, two things. I don't want to put all media companies in uh, in one basket. I think many of them are more biased than others. And I think there's a misalignment of incentives, such as, you know, we, we know that uh, when we were covering the FTX story, I won't mention the, the platform, but they didn't cover the story earlier because, you know, they mentioned, quote unquote, FTX is a big advertiser. So, yeah, I do agree with you. Um, I just want to give it because I'm 
I want to give credit to the media outlets that are trying to do the right thing. And we have a lot of journalists that come here. A lot of the journalists, independent and non-independent, are trying to do the right thing. But I do think the system does need work. And there is a lot of flaws that Olivier mentioned um, that we all agree on. The flaws we can easily see that should be addressed. Uh, on the second point you've made, if you don't mind before asking the question, uh, you, you did make a statement that the evidence against vaccine is very clear. Um, so I just wanted Joanna, uh, Lisa or Eugene, just to respond to that one before giving you the mic, Olivier, for the question, if you don't mind. Sure. Lisa, did you want to take this one or Joanna? Go ahead, Joanna. You know, I just, I, I, I hear what's being said and, and, um, and while, while answering, and I think, I'll add one point to it and I'll let you answer. Uh, one of the audience members was asking a question. Anyone in the audience can ask questions, bottom right corner, uh, about the censorship of Ivermectrum um, in the early days by social media platforms. Uh, what your thoughts are on that as well? Yeah, you know, as far as censorship on, on social media, you know, I, I was one of those that was censored. So I think that my frustration um, is, is shared with, with your users. Um, and I think that one thing that the audience really needs to understand, um, you know, and and perhaps perhaps you know taking taking a vocal position is the right way to approach this. Um, for for all of us physicians, we need to come together and um, and actually accomplishing that without fear of retaliation is a whole. Um, whole issue and currently you know I, I don't i don't know if you noticed but a lot of the members of this pan panel not not even just this specific panel but you know they're retired they're writing books you know there are very i i have noticed you know um as far as physicians who remain gainfully employed through hospital systems you know it's a big risk coming out and even being here um on a platform like this um so i i want to just kind of point that out um to, to, to all of your users and, and to all of your, your listeners um, that, that we're doing the best that we can, um, but we're doing it within a system that is not always necessarily so supportive. Um, and, and I, I can't speak to every, to every physician. I can't speak to, to every um, region, you know, what their, what their experience has been. But um, during the pandemic, you know, if, if there was disagreement, it was very much shut down um, very quickly by by members of leadership and administration at some hospitals. Um, so so just be mindful, um, you know, that we are trying to unite. And I think that this platform is is in some ways an opportunity to invite conversation um, and and to create solutions. I think, you know, we're all we're all certainly interested in the problem, you know, and and we want a solution. We want we want to know how to to go about fixing this in the future and and presently. Um, but just to kind of um, point that out to, to the audience. Yeah, I'll give the mic back to Olivier just to ask the question. Um, I do want to just an update on the poll that I did. Um, just I didn't expect it to be that split. Um, so the poll states the following: Would you befriend someone who fully disagrees? with you on topics like vaccines or politics. And I chose those two topics because politics we discuss all the time. We're discussing a bit today and vaccines we're discussing today. 40% said no. They wouldn't become friends with someone who disagrees with them. And 60% said yes. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's sad. It just makes it just kind of highlights how difficult it is to, to have dialogues like this one and have discussions like this. Almost every space, including today's, I found out, as I said earlier, panelists blocked each other, uh, agreeing on some points. 
Uh, but I just wanted to highlight that that um, uh, the results of that poll, which yeah, it did surprise well, me. You, you know, Mario, having uh, done politics <laughs> on for thirty years, those numbers they're a little bit higher, but they're not a whole lot higher. You you really have had for some time in this country, long before this recent problem, a a an issue where people were firm on their opinions. And would and, and you know you have the the stereotypical uh, don't talk about politics or religion at the family gathering at Thanksgiving or Christmas, you know that sort of existed. That's actually somewhat encouraging to see sixty percent say in the positive direction. There, I, I think we're going to come out of this in the long run. I actually, well, well, Jim, ha, Jim, Jim, I want to, I, I want to be. When you say we're going to come out of this, I hope it diminishes, but it's worse in other countries. You know, if you go, we, we saw Brazil's polarization yesterday. We saw it on stage. And we've seen some underdeveloped countries where brothers and family members go to war against each other. Again, I'm digressing a bit too much. So I'll, I'll let you finish your point. Sorry, Jim. And then we'll go back to Olivier. Go ahead, Jim. I'll no, let you finish. no, I think that's a good point. But um, but actually, that it's been like that. Now, maybe it's getting worse in some countries I haven't been to recently. But it's kind of been like that. Like the United States and I guess Western countries in general – have been, by comparison to other countries, a lot more open in debate historically. Some Asian countries, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's just the Western countries. But um, but you go into countries like India. I've been to India quite a bit. And even though I think there's a, a decent ethic there for this, you still have, like, if you're Hindu driving down the road and you hit a, a Muslim pedestrian, well, and I know of instances like this. Well, you get out of there because you're going to have a problem. If that happened in the United States, people would seek justice for it. Now, not necessarily harsh justice, but some justice where, you know, whoever was involved and harmed should pay the price for that. And and I think that's fundamentally expresses the difference between the United States, some Western countries and some other countries. So, you know, I, I actually I have to tell you, I'm seeing evidences in our public discourse. And by the way, what we're doing here proves that we, we have our times, but it proves that there is a move that people are now starting to talk. Twitter opening up is opening up discussion. And I and even though there's still a lot to go through, it's not resolved by any means. I'm just in, I'm impressed by how much more positive that I am seeing. Uh, Olivia, I want to give you the mic again. Sorry to interrupt you earlier. Thanks. Um, yeah, so in regards to um, doctors not speaking up, right, this is a problem of our times today. I think doctors are obligated to, sp to speak the truth, and they should have the courage to do so, because if you don't do it, society will go to, to shit, basically. Like, that's just reality. It's your duty to speak up, even if you're at risk of losing your job. We trust you, right? We trust you to say something if something is wrong. All the doctors I know... They all were thinking what I was thinking, but no one dared to say anything. I have like many doctors in my in my in my friend circle. We disagreed initially, right? So I, I showed them the research. They're discreet. We stayed friends. I, I I don't want to be with friends that don't want to be your friend when you disagree with them. They're not worthy of of being your friend, in my opinion. But that's a different discussion. Uh, but in the end, they started seeing the evidence, and they were like, "Well, I agree, but I'm not going to say anything because I might lose my job." And everyone thinks this way. Society, it happened in the past. Like World War II was a great example. I, I don't want to raise that even, but people have to speak up when they see something happening that's wrong. It's, it's, it's a critical thing for society. It's your duty right now to 
to say something. You know, the evidence is overwhelmingly against vaccinations at this point. Um, a lot of a lot of wrong things happened. You should say something about it. If you don't do it, I don't think you deserve your, deserve your job. Um, and the question I had, um, maybe for, for Kirsch, is I, I think we did enough talking. Uh, besides doctors making public statements at this point, is there anything we can do uh, as as a society uh, in terms of suing people? Who can we sue? Are you putting some group together that we can put money towards too, so we can actually take action? Because I think as long as we're just talking about things, no one is afraid of us, but we have to actually do something, right? We have to take action against sue people. I don't know what to do, but just talking about it, it's not going to change anything, in my opinion. Yeah, Steve, that question is for you. And then I know, Eugene, you wanted to comment on the other point that, uh, that Olivier mentioned. Steve, do you want to respond? Yeah, there is a lot of stuff being done on the legal front. The problem is, of course, that the federal government is very good at protecting itself against any kind of lawsuit. So they've made it virtually impossible uh, to sue uh, any people uh, responsible uh, for this. That doesn't mean that people aren't trying. Uh, there's the false claims action um, uh, that's that's taking place that can take it might take five or ten years. I mean, then and Pfizer's defense on the False Claims Act is that um, that the federal government was in on it, and so therefore it's not fraud. Um, it's a it's a novel defense, um, and but it's going to take years uh, before the stuff uh, comes out. I think that the 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 easiest, simplest action in the meantime is for physicians to say, hey, it is unacceptable for the CDC to basically not notify the American people of safety issues. It is unacceptable for scientists to basically turn the other way and not look at the Israeli safety data. I mean, the CDC should be all over this Israeli video now. It's out in the public, and we have heard nothing from the CDC or any mainstream scientists about this, I mean, that is shocking to me that nobody would comment on the Israeli safety study that was done. It, they collected much more detailed information than would be put in the VAERS system because they collected longitudinal information, which typically is very difficult to enter and update uh, into a VAERS record. And certainly can be done, but it typically isn't. But these people were re-challenged with the same vaccine and uh, the symptoms that they uh, had the first time uh, came back, which is the which is the telling indicator of causality. And nobody here is speaking out. I don't see uh, Dr. Gu uh, saying a word, and, and, oh, can I say and Liza isn't, isn't saying yeah, a word Dr. either about Dr. this. Yeah, Dr. Wu, you've mentioned a few times. I'll let you respond. Okay, perfect. Thanks. So I just wanted to say that many doctors, um, including myself, uh, believe that getting as many patients vaccinated as possible during the pandemic would save the most lives. You know, that's what we believe based on looking at the scientific evidence, um, what our peers uh, believe as well, and the standard of practice in medicine. Um, but there's always going to be segments within the population, uh, Steve included, who don't agree with that, right? There are going to be people who don't believe that the vaccines are effective, or there are going to be people who don't believe that the vaccines are safe, right? The ethical question to me is whenever there is a population that disagrees with us and we consider it quote-unquote misinformation or quote-unquote anti-vaxxers, uh, is it ethical to use social media platforms to silence their voices or 
should we let everyone's voices be heard and then let the marketplace of ideas, you know, the basic public square, let people's opinions be freely heard. And then the, the opinions that make the most sense, the opinions that are backed by the most up-to-date scientific evidence that should prevail. So, so I have a question. I have a question for you, Eugene. Um, where does, so there's a saying that I, I forgot what it is, but like the person that's, that is the best speaker on, a t- on the table will essentially be heard more than the person that has the facts. In other words, without censorship, doesn't it become a battle of who tells a better story versus who t- who's saying the facts? Well, that's a good question. And I think that gets to, you know, democracy versus authoritarianism, right? If, if you believe that democracy always works, and oftentimes it does, sometimes maybe some, it, it doesn't, right? <laughs> um, but usually it does because the person with the best idea usually in the public marketplace prevails, right? Sometimes it doesn't happen like that. So authoritarianism is when you go, hey, I want my idea that I believe to be right to dominate because sometimes the public marketplace can be wrong. Sometimes the public marketplace can, you know, boost the wrong idea, in which case that's my responsibility as, I say, an authoritarian <laughs> to fix that. Yeah. Right? So that's where the ethics come I, I agree. No, I well, do we really have... A public marketplace because, um, you know, we have institutions and institutions have uh, different mechanisms for control and we have politicians. And I'd love to get maybe Aaron yeah. to chime in on that because we had a lot of direct experience with that. Yeah. So uh, thanks, Catherine. I'll just mention um, an update on the censorship issue. I published a piece along with my lawyer in the Missouri v. Biden case where I'm one of the private plaintiffs in that case. Uh, and we published a piece called The White House COVID Censorship Machine today in the Wall Street Journal. I don't know if anyone can pin that here so you folks can see it. I'm not going to go through everything that we uncovered uh, in terms of documents on discovery. But a short version is that uh, the, the documents we talked about in this piece showed clearly that the White House was pressuring social media companies. We talked mostly about Facebook and YouTube um, in this article to censor COVID content that was disfavored by the current administration. And one of the striking things that I learned with this newest tranche of documents, in, and by the way, this, this case is basically alleging that the federal government was pressuring social media companies to censor, which would be unconstitutional. Social media companies arguably can decide uh, how to censor as private companies. And, you know, we could debate Section 230 and so forth, but no one doubts, no one debates that the federal government cannot censor. It's a clear First Amendment free speech violation. They also can't suborn private entities like social media companies to do the work of censorship. They cannot place any pressure on them to censor. But that's precisely what we're finding, both in the Twitter files, but also in this case, some of the documents we got on this case, even before the Twitter files came out, showed that this was happening. But this document, uh, the documents we mentioned and linked to in the Wall Street Journal piece today, showed that uh, the federal government was also pressuring Facebook to censor private messages on WhatsApp. So uh, Facebook, by the way, owns WhatsApp. So it was pressuring Facebook to censor not just on Facebook's uh, public social media platform, but also on this app that I think most people consider to be analogous to like a private SMS type of uh, um, application that, you know, if, if I'm sending to my family or to a friend 
uh, a link to an article or some information on the vaccines. Uh, I don't think anyone imagined that Facebook would be reaching into those private uh, text messages and limiting their reach or, you know, um, uh, smacking labels on them or, or simply blocking your ability to send things, perhaps without you even knowing it on on WhatsApp. So the censorship regime, the more we dig into it, uh, the more vast and pervasive uh, its operations look. And so we had a situation during the pandemic where not only was the information on, you know, that you post publicly on Facebook or Twitter censored, but even information that you shared privately on an app like WhatsApp was was censored. Again, just creating this false sense that there was a scientific consensus on some of these policy questions, whether it was lockdowns or vaccine safety and efficacy or the ethics of vaccine mandates. The, the, the second comment I want to make just very so, briefly. So just before, before the second comment, Aaron, can you go yeah. back to the point you made about censoring on WhatsApp? That's the first I hear that. Yeah. No, it's it's there. It's well, it's there in the in the Wall Street Journal piece, and uh, we've got links to basically we we have redacted names on on the documents, but we have links to the redacted emails uh, back and forth between uh, this was uh, a guy named Flaherty who was basically the White House what was his title head of digital communications or something like that at the White House. And an executive whose name we redacted at Facebook. And basically, Flaherty's leaning on Facebook, and Facebook tries to push back a little bit initially, and then they, they sort of finally give in and start changing their policies according to the directions that Flaherty is, is, is pushing. Sorry, them. sorry, hold on. Facebook is changing their direction to more censorship They're, on WhatsApp, or did I misunderstand? Yeah, more censorship on, on their platform, on Facebook. But um, did they hint – what was their response to the request for, for potential um, – uh, probably they don't call it censorship, but for potential censorship on WhatsApp? Their their response was to send Facebook a list of things that they were going to do um, to censor on WhatsApp. <laughs> so, well, uh, or to change their WhatsApp policy to be in line with what the White House was pressuring them to do. And that's not that's not even remotely a surprise to me, right? But don't doesn't Facebook or Meta claim that WhatsApp is is end to end encrypted? Exactly. That, right? That's that's my, that was my next question. That, that's what I that's what I thought. I mean, I use Signal because I no, so, realized so, I, I, that it was end to end encrypted. And recently, Facebook announced that this was end to end encrypted. So I, I don't. So, so but we, we don't know, but we don't know the specifics of the censorship because, like, for example, you cannot forward a message to too many people. You can only forward it to five people. I'm not saying that's censorship. But that's like limiting the spread of information. Um, you cannot forward messages to more than one group at a time. Uh, so I'm not sure whether you'd put those under the category of censorship because if they're actually censoring specific content, that's a whole different discussion. Right. It is. Well, it is censorship if uh, if they're doing it based on content. It's exactly. not censorship if it's a blanket policy that, you know, because of. Uh, you know, data or just the way the app functions, you, you know, you can't send something to a hundred people at once. Um, but if it's, if it's different rules based on content, then that would be under federal law. That would be a form of censorship, which again, maybe Facebook could do that as a private company. They should disclose that they're doing that 
to their users. So users can use a different application if they want to. Um, but, uh, but the federal government can't pressure them to do that. But uh, wh- what we're alleging in this case, and what I would argue the documents that we link to here uh, support is the notion that the federal government was leaning on them to do this specifically in relation to COVID, COVID policy content. So, uh, uh, go ahead, Aaron. Yeah. So, I, I mean, the other thing I wanted to say, and sort of on Joanna's um, comments about, okay, if, if there are doctors that realize that um, maybe I, I acted in good faith, but now I've changed my mind, or doctors, many of whom I've talked to, who feel like I, I'm seeing things, I'm, I'm observing things, I'm forming opinions, but I don't feel like I can either disclose those to patients or speak out publicly about them. Um, I, I just want to comment a little bit to those physicians who are maybe working within a healthcare system that's putting pressure on them. Uh, and just remind uh, all of us physicians that our primary fiduciary responsibility is to the patient. It's not to a healthcare institution. It's not to even a state medical licensing board. It's not to uh, a professional association, voluntary professional association of physicians. It's to the sick patient in front of us. So, so if we formed a clinical judgment about, let's say, safety and efficacy of vaccines, or maybe vaccines for a particular population, and we're afraid to uh, we're afraid to say that, then we may be compromising the health of our patients, and that's something that we simply cannot do. And I, I know it may cost you. I mean, my own personal story is I was a, an academic physician. I was a professor of medicine uh, at University of California, Irvine, where I directed the medical ethics program, spent 15 years there, basically my entire career. Um, <clears throat> and in 2021, I filed a lawsuit in federal court challenging the University of California's vaccine mandate because I thought it was unethical and I was arguing that it was constitutionally illegal. The university fired me in, in response to that that challenge to their policy. So, um, so I lost my job for speaking out. And, you know, I can't promise anyone out there working for a large corporate healthcare system, that by speaking out, you're not going to be retaliated, retaliated against or punished in some way, you might be. Um, But I think I think I think yeah, no, I I think that I, I, I hear what you're saying. And, and I I actually, I think it's, it's terrible that you had that experience, but, but my question is really about how to be effective because sure, you know, individually we can, we can question, um, you know, uh, a particular standard that is delivered and we can educate our individual patients. But as far as, for instance, ending mandates over vaccines, you know, doing this on a large scale that has impact beyond, you know, the, the individual that we, interface with in like, in clinic or in the hospital right please say something can i say something you have to go to the science to address this issue if you want to end a mandate remember why the covid vaccine was actually authorized it was because the idea that a vaccine would give you training make you less likely to be infected so you would be less likely to pass that disease along to somebody else in the group that was why the mandate was ever put in place. Now, that all falls apart if the COVID antibody 
which is the training and the memory that you get from an infection, has no path into the lung airspace. I disclosed this problem to Fauci in, Feb in October of 2020. My mentor is the director of Ophthalm at Johns Hopkins. When I told him this fatal flaw with the COVID vaccine idea, he thought I would win a Nobel Prize for this crap. Now, this is the problem. Our lung is an airspace. Our body is 70% water. If water fills our lungs, we drown. Our lungs have a blood-lung barrier, a essentially waterproof barrier that can stop water molecules, which are 18 Daltons in size. COVID antibodies are made outside the lung. They are 145,000 Daltons in size. So relatively speaking, if a water molecule looks like a Diet Coke, a COVID antibody looks like a small car. And this is why censorship is so stupid. Because I informed Dr. Fauci of this in October of 2020. He acknowledged receipt. Dr. Erbelding, the director of infectious disease, replied to me and said, well, Dr. Lee, our data looks great. I replied to her and said, no, 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 it doesn't matter if you think your data looks great. The COVID antibody has no path into the lung airspace. And if the COVID antibody, if there's not a single peer-reviewed paper on Earth that describes how this gargantuan antibody crosses the blood-lung barrier into the lung airspace, which is where infections are occurring, your COVID vaccine is pure shit. And the only reason why it looks like it's working, which I sent in 73 pages in February of 2021 with the U.S. copyright, I said, Dr. Fauci, your vaccine, I don't believe all the scientists involved in this are lying. Your vaccine looks like it's working because of its side effect of chemokine induction. You get muscle aches with the COVID vaccine. That's because it tricks the body into producing interferon. Interferon is antiviral. If you were to compare the COVID vaccine to the flu vaccine, which does not create a COVID antibody, and yet it still prevents COVID because it also produces muscle aches. And the flu vaccine will also trick your body into producing chemokines, including interferon, which is antiviral. So the vaccine, pure stupidity. It's not even a vaccine. It seems to work because of, the, of its side effect of tricking your body into producing chemokines, including interferon. And that was never studied. And the moment Fauci got this information from me, any scientist on Earth today who reads my 73-page letter to Fauci in February of 2021 will say, oh, well, look at that. We know a lot less about this vaccine than we ever thought we did. We don't even know how it works. And why is a neutralizing antibody in the lung the way they thought it worked? Because Dr. Belding actually thought she needed to defend that. So I have all these receipts. I have all this paper trail. And look carefully at the year 2020. Look very carefully. Did a COVID antibody exist in the year 2020? No, because to get a COVID antibody, you have to have an infection to wait two weeks. Or you have to have a vaccine and wait several weeks. 20 million of us got COVID in the year 2020 without COVID antibodies, and 99% of us healed. And the bigger question is this. If you understand how we actually healed, then you can help the human body. I'm a LASIK surgeon. I've done 80,000 surgeries. When I do surgery, if a tech is next to me and doesn't know what I'm doing, they are not helping. If a tech is used to me and has worked with me for a year, they are helping because they know what my goals are. 
if you don't know what the human body did to heal us from COVID in the year 2020, when there were no COVID antibodies, if you don't know what it did, then you're not helping. And I t- I'll tell you exactly what the human body did. Our lung cell. The COVID virus injects the RNA into our lung cell. Guess what? That COVID virus inside our lung cell is the enemy. And guess what? The COVID virus infected as many cells as it wanted to. Why? There were no antibodies to stop it. And yet 99% of us healed. If you acknowledge that that viral RNA inside our lung cell is the enemy, the way to destroy that, and you acknowledge it has to be destroyed, there is only one enzyme known to man to destroy viral RNA inside our lung cells without killing the cell. That, that's a ribonuclease enzyme. Dr. Good, did you want to respond? Ribonuclease to enzymes uh, uh, are the reason yeah, why... Can I respond real quick? Yeah, so, yeah, because uh, we're getting pretty finish, technical. And then you can yeah, respond. I'll let you finish, Joseph, and then we'll let uh, Eugene I respond. I yeah. hate to cut off anyone, even yeah, including the host, yeah. but this is the critical part. Go ahead. The viral RNA inside our lung cell is the enemy. You want to destroy it. Ribonuclease enzymes destroy it. COVID antibodies were not around. Everyone in the world knows about a COVID antibody. It wasn't even around in the year 2020. It had nothing to do with how we re- recovered from COVID. The ribonuclease enzyme did infinitely more than the COVID antibody. And the way to activate these ribonuclease enzymes? Fasting. So every school kid on Earth knows that viruses do not grow on their own. They grow within our cells, correct? And our cells don't always grow at the same speed. When you're not eating, our cells grow a lot slower. They grow the virus a lot slower. Less of your cells are sick. You cough out less virus. Less people around you are sick. And that is how this pandemic is over. It was never the COVID antibody. It was always the ribonuclease enzyme in the early phases of COVID infection. Eugene? Yeah, I just, can I correct a few things that um, Dr. Lee was saying? And, and, and Dr. Lee, I don't doubt... You want you to correct me, Dr. Lee, 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 I've given you a lot of time well, to... I'm, and I'll keep interrupting you, Eugene, because you don't Joseph, have the truth. Joseph, Joseph, it's unfair. I've given you... Joseph, Joseph. who looks at this data... Joseph. Joseph, that was a bit unfair, because I gave you a lot of time to speak, and I'd love... And it was very technical. scientist who looks at this data... Joseph, 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 Copyright Joseph, off. I hate using there the mute button. There is no option. Okay. You have jo- no option. Joseph. Joseph. Your COVID vaccine is a neutralizing Joseph. antibody concept. Joseph. It never gets into the lungs. Joseph. Then you have to <laughs> okay. explain I've had to mute- how Joseph. you... I've had to mute you, Joseph. Joseph, it's really fair. I, I just really want to get a response because you got very technical on the discussion, things I can't respond to and most of us don't understand. Um, so we'd love Eugene and others to respond to what you just said, Joseph. Uh, but I do appreciate you coming on stage and I'll let you respond back to Eugene if you want to co- correct or, or comment on anything as well, Joseph. Uh, Eugene, go ahead. Oh, perfect. Thank you, Mario. And I just wanted to say, you know, I don't doubt Dr. Lee's expertise and I believe you're an ophthalmologist, board-certified ophthalmology and a LASIK surgeon. So, you know, thank you for all you do for your patients. Um, but I do want to correct uh, a few things that you said. And I want to tell the audience, since there's a lot do of... It one think, thing at a time. Joseph. One thing yeah, at a time. Okay. Can, I, can I speak? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. One thing at a time. Okay, yeah, we'll, one we'll do one, one thing at a time. Yeah, one, let's go. Okay, okay. We'll get one thing at a time. Go ahead, so, Eugene. Yeah, yeah. So... Because we have a lot of uh, listeners on this podcast, I think there's like what over ten thousand people listening. So I just want to correct some of the facts here and let them come to their own One conclusions. Okay, we got it, Joseph. We got it, Joseph. Joseph, we got it. So I just want to explain how the COVID nineteen vaccines work, especially the mRNA vaccine, and at least give the other side of the story here and, and, and the facts. 
So how it works well, is there three is years, a messenger RNA. There's a messenger RNA that's encased in a lipid nanoparticle. And when that gets injected into your deltoid muscle, those lipid nanoparticles cross the cell membrane in your muscle cells, and they go straight into the cytoplasm where there's something called a ribosome. The ribosome is like the protein factory of the cell. And the messenger RNA that's encased in that lipid nanoparticle goes to the ribosome. It's translated and it turns into uh, a protein. And this protein is uh, very close or almost exactly mimics the spike protein in the coronavirus. And so that gets, you know, expressed on the surface of those muscle cells. And then that's your immune system goes and recognizes that, that protein on the surface and it activates the antibody response and other parts of the adaptive immune system. So that's how that's our best understanding of how these vaccines work. I just wanted to say my piece there and let the audience know that that is also, you know, important to the actual science behind it. Um, not that I'm going to try to silence, you know, Dr. Lee. And, you know, Dr. Lee, you have the floor now to respond. You didn't. You didn't explain how the antibody crosses the lung barrier. You, you said you were going to correct my statements. Explain how the gargantuan antibody that's 145,000 Daltons in size crosses the blood-lung barrier. You, you've heard about the blood-brain barrier, Eugene? There is a blood-lung barrier. I didn't invent the phrase. There are millions of Google hits on it. It's not yeah, new. So, so, when, so the coronavirus, uh, when the coronavirus goes into the lungs and into the alveoli, right, they cross the, barrier, the membrane. And they go into our bloodstream and they infect our cells, right? You and, did. And that, you that's did. how the coronavirus invades our body. So you the vaccines let me, are here let me to prevent that. that from, from, from Stop for a minute. You, you made your point. Eugene, you made your point. Let me correct that. By the time the blood-lung barrier is destroyed because of a, a bad infection and white blood cells come and nuke the area and water rushes into the lung and you have whiteout, at that point, you think your antibodies can get in because the virus can come out. Oh, great, because at that point, it's a little bit too late. You've already used your Apache helicopters to destroy and nuke the area. And now you're going to send in your Boy Scouts that are the antibodies and tag the enemy? No. Your whole point is you are vaccinating patients that are healthy with an intact blood-lung barrier where the antibody has no path into the lung airspace. And by the time the infection is well established in day five, day six, day seven, and the infection is really bad and the blood-lung barrier is destroyed, at that time, you're saying that the virus can get into the bloodstream? I agree with you. And at that time, you're saying that the antibodies getting into the lung are useful? I disagree with you. You haven't thought this through. I have for three years. And you guys shut me up for three years. Okay? So if I'm rude right now and arrogant and mad, well, yeah, you guys are idiots. Oh because yeah, yeah. Joseph, who Joseph, looks at Joseph, this data Joseph, right now, Joseph, Joseph. What I presented, they're like, Holy Joseph, shit. Joseph, Joseph. The FDA got you gotta correct, thousands of Joseph. You this. Let's let's avoid personal attacks of calling idiots, etc. But otherwise, continue, please. So go ahead, Joseph. You're muted. Okay, Joseph, you got to unmute. Uh, go ahead, Viva. I don't know, Joseph's or, Mario. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, good man. Good, good to uh, have you back. Yeah, well, I've been listening. It's great. I, I was listening while jogging, so it was a little enraging. Uh, question for Eugene. Uh, first of all, Eugene, I, I'd love to have you on and have this discussion because I've got more questions than I can ask right now. But uh, as I'm running and I'm hearing you say safe and effective, uh, the, 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 the benefits outweigh the risks. The, the question I have for you, what, what when does it become what is, like is if one in 4000 and change myocarditis for young men is, is a stat that is now recognized? Is that safe? Like, what is the criteria, the threshold? 
after which something is no longer able to be called safe. Well, I believe your premise uh, and the evidence that you're citing um, may or may not be correct. You know, what I've seen in the largest study in the New England Journal of Medicine is that the rate is 2.5 people per 100,000. Yes, but I'm, I'm going by specific demographics. I'm going, I'm going by specific age bracket because this is another problem is, 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 is mandating a vaccine across all age brackets without, I think the term is stratifying it. So you might be right, although I won't concede that you are on the aggregate statistic. But when it comes to young men, and there was a study that came out of Canada uh, recently at 10.2 million doses, for the Moderna vaccine, it's one in 4,300 and change. Uh, and now let's just say let's just say that that's the number. Agree with it or disagree with it? Would you then still call it safe for that age bracket? I think we need to look at the data and have those discussions, especially when it comes to lower risk groups like younger males. You know that that could be a legitimate investigation, but I think the conclusions have to be based on the evidence, not based on people's narrative or based on anecdotes okay, or based. Forget on the narrative, Fusion. Forget the narrative. How about this? The early 19th century, do you know which antibody was the number one cause of morbidity and mortality for children under 20, including boys? In the early 19th century, the one antibody that wreaked havoc in humanity, it's very well documented, was the number one killer for boys and girls under the age of 20. Do you know which antibody that was, Eugene? Do you know? Uh, maybe uh, you can tell us what it was. Yeah, well, it, uh, Rheumatic heart fever, rheumatic disease. Have you heard of that? Well, yeah. Are, uh, okay, so do you know what the pathophysiology behind that is? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of uh, physicians here know <laughs> what, what the pathophysiology <laughs> of that is. You know, you that can, your, okay, your, so your, your body makes an antibody to the... the you wanted you know, me to alert you to it. One antibody was the number one killer for boys under 20 in the early 19th century. One antibody. The streptococcus antibody. And you are injecting spike antigen. Now, let me explain to you. Your spike antigen, when you injected it, you looked for one antibody, correct? Because when a virus has a spike antigen on it, you only see the top of the spike, correct? Do you know that when you inject the free spike antigen, that you're going to make antibodies to the bottom and to the side also? Did you check for those? Do so, you know so what I the, just want to I just want to I'm point asking out you a question. Do you know the make spike? A false equivalency Eugen, here Eugen, between rheumatic fever Eugen, when anybody attacks no, the I'm not. Cell, no, right? I'm not. And then, and then saying that the I same thing would happen antibody, with COVID-19. Eugen, I am saying an antibody can have severe side effects and can be the number one killer for boys under 20. And that's well documented in history. And you have two antibodies that you never even looked for in the COVID spike antigen. The antibody to the side of the spike antigen, which would not occur if it's on a virus, and an antibody to the bottom of the spike antigen, which would never form if it was on a virus. But you injected free spike antigen into the human body, and did you ever look for these other two antibodies and the side effect profile of these two other antibodies? Did you or did you not? I think you're getting you kind don't of... Know what so Joseph, 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 just let, I let, I let Eugene, Eugene go... You, Joseph, you ask a yeah, question, it, and then when the person says two words, you jump in and ask another question. You guys kept this quiet for three years. What do you say, you guys? It's, three it's years. not us here. We're not, not, okay, I understand. I okay. understand. Joseph. And you think in science, right. censorship is a... Joseph, 
I love your passion, man. And I really hate meeting people, but you're driving me nuts. Joseph, I want you to, I actually told the team to always invite you to future panels. You're very passionate. You know what you're talking about. And I think this makes for a great debate. It just makes it hard to debate it when, when it's just you speak. I know you've been censored for a long time, so I empathize with you there. I promise you'll have a stage with us. You've been on my space before. Censorship in science is not appropriate. I agree. Because I get to it add- is not, I think it's also very difficult because like the other people in the room, like you have a lot of knowledge about science and this is very technical. So it's also really difficult for a lot of people to follow like myself and, and others. So I think that'd be great to do something else, like another room where there is more of an opportunity to have a back and forth between people who really yeah, so get just, the science I, I and, the, and the detail. I agree. Well, there are plenty of doctors here who understand. Eugen understands that he they never checked for the COVID antibodies that form to a spike antigen on the bottom inside. He knows that. He knows well, he didn't even think of that. So so maybe what we could do is just kind of get the research down ourselves and put something together on this and come back with it. So we're highly organized, ready to set the debate at a ground floor and then bring everybody back on. What do you think? Yeah, I'll, I'll organize it. And I actually did invite um, a breaking phone. Just- I'm fine with that. Joseph, I'm just very, very annoyed because for three years they shut me up. I sent thousands of letters to the NIH, CDC, FDA. I sent letters everywhere and no one even had an answer. Now, if the COVID vaccine, if, if there's how many people listening to this and not one scientist can basically tell you the hypotheses behind a COVID vaccine that was injected over 5 billion times on Earth, that's pure stupidity. Well, I'll I'll you, Dr. Lee, you always are going to get a really good discussion happening here. And, and we should just kind of set, set the groundwork for something in the future because it's an important discussion. And to have you and Dr. Gu and others uh, arguing this, I think it's really I, everyone's I, I agree. I agree. I, I want to I kind of pivot to one other thing just quickly. Uh, Matthias, you're back on stage just to update there us. There really isn't anything to Joseph, argue, and I, he I, won't Joseph, like the next debate. Uh, Joseph, he, he Joseph. He may not show up. Uh, Joseph. I, because the antibody, COVID antibody. Uh, Joseph might Joseph, not be uh, able to hear you, Mario. Yeah, I think he can. I'm not sure I, if it's I, a glitch. No, no, I think he can. <laughs> Trust me, he can. <laughs> but Joseph, just to let you know, you have a place on our stage. and We're going to organize a panel and bring you up. Um, to discuss the technicalities uh, and, the, and the specific details you're referring to. So um, we'll, we'll send you, the team will reach out to you tomorrow to organize that, Joseph. Really appreciate you for coming on. I do want to go to Mateus quickly. Mateus, can you update us on the whole Biden classified docs information? I want to get Carl's commentary on this. Yeah, absolutely. So just to recap for people who are just joining us about an hour to an hour and a half ago, CBS broke a story uh, that there have been uh, under a dozen documents of classified information discovered in one of the offices that then Vice President Biden used and also used a bit during his 2020 presidential campaign. Now, what there are many uh, factors to this story that makes it interesting. Um Number one being the the comparison to obviously what occurred earlier in the year with the raid on Mar-a-Lago and the classified documents that were uncovered uh, under former President Trump's uh, in his possession. Um, but the CNN article is has very um, interesting information, which says the classified materials included some top secret files with the sensitive compartmented information designation, also known as SCI, which was also found in Trump's possession. It's, it's a highly classified 
sensitive information um, obtained from intelligent sources and should not leave the confines of um, where it's being used. So that's a very significant update. Obviously, Republicans in the House are already responding to this information um, and highlighting the comparisons between the way that it was handled um, when President Trump was under investigation versus now. Additionally, you have uh, an investigation underway by the DOJ for this specific instance involving pre- uh, President Biden when he was vice president and president ca- presidential candidate. Also worth noting, this discovery was made on November 2nd. Now, people are highlighting the fact that it was incredibly close to the midterm elections. We don't have any information if the campaign, which we know willingly uh, handed over these documents and, and sounded the alarm on November 2nd when they were discovered. We have no information to to say that that is incorrect. They, from what we understand and our sources are confirming, they immediately handed over these documents. Um, also, but it is important to note how soon it was to the midterms and we'll discover if there was some sort of for some reason uh trying to suppress this story for obvious reasons um or if they just couldn't talk based on the investigation being ongoing i want to go to so matthias do you believe based on what you've heard so far that this is comparable to what the the fbi and the doj were going after in the mar-a-lago raid well obviously the size right is is incredibly different Thousands upon thousands of documents linked as classified were discovered in Mar-a-Lago compared to the dozen that were here. But President Trump has just responded on Truth Social and made the point that this was just one residence being investigated. And it wasn't even investigated by the FBI. Right. It was some it was the Biden attorneys volunteering this information out. So he's calling for a wider spread investigation. Obviously, he has no authority uh, whatsoever at, at this point. But he's calling for a widespread investigation of other offices and, and houses that the Biden family use to see if there's any other uh, information that's being stored. Also worth mentioning, President Biden gave an exclusive interview to 60 Minutes uh, back when President Trump was being investigated for similar offenses. And he said, quote, uh, how could anyone be so irresponsible? So clearly this is going to go back and forth. Both sides are going to use this to their advantage or disadvantage, and we'll see how it plays out. But a very important story breaking this evening, uh, and we hope that you all stay up to date, and we'll, we'll be happy to provide you more updates. Um, Thank you, Matthias. We really appreciate it. Before going to Harry, Kyle, uh, how serious is this, and how common or uncommon is this? Uh, I'm not sure if you can answer that question, Kyle. So, sure. Can you guys hear me okay? Perfect. Just checking in. Wonderful. So, look, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If that's the rules that we've set up, I'm not comfortable with it. I'm not comfortable with what they did at Mar-a-Lago. And I want to just kind of correct the record just a little bit from what I understand. Um, you, you mentioned uh, your previous speaker said thousands of documents. My understanding, it was 325 discrete documents. If my CNN reporting and I try to get it from both sides, uh, it looks like they were a number more pages. But and then we're talking about 12 documents with uh, this this particular office. Right. So uh, TSSCI, that's correct, like top secret, that's a classification. SCI is the compartment, and it tells us that user, it's usually sources and methods that are protected the way that we gather intelligence, um, whether it be through some form of Pfizer or something like that. It's going to tell you like how it was actually gathered and what systems were compromised. So look, it, it has the potential of being a really big deal. Um, but to think that uh, politicians handle sort, you know, classified documents the way that someone like I did in my job, like I didn't ever walk home with that. That was never a possibility. You're not going to bring 
uh, classified stuff to your residence. And if you do, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to deal with the consequence of it. It's probably going to be termination at the very least. And you're probably going to find yourself in a jail cell if it was serious. So uh, 12 documents, including TSSCI for, for me, for Kyle Serafin today, like I would expect the FBI coming through my door tomorrow morning, but, uh, and looking for the rest of it. Right. But th- we're talking about people that have always kind of had a little bit like more of a, um, a lackadaisical attitude about classified stuff. We saw Hillary Clinton do it. I'm sure that all the presidents in the last probably 25 or 40 years have had access to these things. The vice presidents as well. You know, they do have the ability to, uh, to move around with things, but Stuff that's SCI is usually supposed to stay in a skiff. That's why we have skiffs. And they usually skiff out rooms at houses and stuff like that. There's very strict rules with how you're able to uh, to even move physical documents that way. Like they have to be locked in a briefcase and the briefcase has to be another lock on it. And it has to be, you know, someone who's read in on the transport protocols called a courier. And so there's all these different protocols. But, you know, is the guy going to lose his presidency over this? I sort of doubt it. Like uh, it's one of those things where it's what are they going to do? Uh, there's a comment here by a gentleman. I'm, I'm going to verify his background. He says every former president has had to fight over this. So would you say this is relatively common for former presidents to uh, intentionally or accidentally have classified documents in their possession? That's my understanding. I mean, they have, you know, they always do this. Every every time they get out of office, they have these fight over the national records and the archives and stuff. There's an expectation that the president's got to be able to do his job, and and vice president has sort of similar authorities. They're a step down, obviously, but. They're able to uh, to do things that, uh, you know, people, like I said, in the national security world generally can't do because they have to be available at all times. And if something breaks at any moment, like they may have to be briefed in on stuff. So the rules don't go the same way for people at high levels of uh, you know of politics as they do for people that are working for actual you know national security type agencies. It doesn't make it good or bad. Like I said, I just think if we're going to hold a standard, then we should really be fair in this country, because I think Americans kind of expect that. We're going to we're going to be, uh, you know, honest operators about this. And if we're not, then we're just playing politics, which is really dangerous. You know, we got to we got to keep in mind here that um, the the authority to even classify documents is uh, ultimately under the authority of the sitting president of the United States. And it is absolutely true that any president can declassify anytime they want. That being said. Uh, there is a very real problem with treating it flippantly. And, um, you know, and it doesn't matter if it's Trump or Biden or whoever, Obama. I mean, we, we, we believe that Obama and Bush both had that. I don't know that for an absolute fact, but this is what goes around. The reality is that you don't want it treated flippantly. And, and more importantly, in this particular case, there is, there was a knowledgeable, uh, um, uh, hypocrisy when the uh, Justice Department recently went and did the Mar-a-Lago raid because the sitting president of the United States himself knew that he had had a similar incident. We now know. We're finding out today. And that's, so, so we, if we get into the discussion of appropriateness or whether someone has authority, which is important, the most important thing, because this is ultimately a political matter, is that the sitting president of the United States decided at the moment that his attorney general was raiding his potential future opponent's home and former president, that he himself had violated the same rules. And that's a significant part of this story. So, Jim, well, Jim, Jim but Jim, uh, he's assuming Biden that there's violations. 
like we, we have to assume that that's a violation. And, and as Jim just said, it may not be right. It's just as easy as uh, President Obama saying, hey, Joe, take this stuff home and take a look at it. By the way, it's declassified. So, like I said, if it's good for the goose, it's got to be good for the gander. We have to hold the same standard. And so either we can accept the fact that we don't know, which we don't. And um, it's very possible that this stuff was all on the up and up. And, and Trump's may have been as well, despite all the hand wringing and pearl clutching that went on. Or every time top secret information leaves the, uh, you know, leaves the skiff, it's a big deal. And everybody's going to go, you know, get attacked for it, which I don't see happening. And I already know that, you know, Jim Comey said no reasonable prosecutor would go after her. Um, you know, so that happened with Hillary's case, what, six years ago, seven years ago, almost now. So like, we just got to be honest down the uh, middle on this uh, thing as far as like, where it's guys guys just, just quickly uh, i want to go get harry's final thoughts on this to go back to the covid debate and i want to get joseph and eugene to continue that debate they were having earlier so just for the audience we're going to get joseph back up for him and eugene to continue that discussion because a lot of people in the audience enjoyed it although we do have to make sure that uh, joseph gives uh, other people the right uh, the, the, the opportunity to respond but harry i'll let you comment i think um uh, Mateus, you wanted to, to clarify something right after harry go ahead harry yeah so again mario thank you for having me on um, I think that first, so first off, I just want to push back on, on something that was just said. Biden, at the time of the, the search of Mar-a-Lago, Biden didn't know that he had whatever TSI or whatever uh, clearance was at his, his office. This was back in the summer that this happened, and they, these lawyers discovered this uh, in November. Um, but I believe this case is just going to be similar to the one where two classified documents were found in Trump's West Palm Beach storage unit. Um, you know, obviously we have no evidence that Trump knew they were there. There was no evidence of mal of malice or anything like that. Um, and that's pretty common with former presidents when like, you know, Hillary Clinton did it, George Bush did it. Um, you know, they take something and they immediately give it back. And that's the difference here. You know, President Biden's lawyers found it and immediately notified the Justice Department, the National Archives. Oh, okay, so so Biden so Biden's lawyers found it and they immediately notified uh, the archives? Okay, Correct. Okay. And so, so that's so, the difference. And that's the difference with, between you know, with, with this situation and, and Donald Trump's situation is that, um, you know, the National Archives had been asking back for these documents for months. Uh, they refused. Uh, and that's why the, his, his, his Mar-a-Lago residence was searched in the first place, because they went to a judge and said that we have sufficient evidence to believe that there is classified documents and that they are not cooperating, which is required by law. And that judge signed off on that search warrant because they did have sufficient evidence to believe that there were classified documents at his house. And what do you know there were? So um, there are quite a bit of differences here, um, and I don't think it's quite the story that a lot of people think it is um, because this is just really not that common. But I get given the political circumstances recently, it may seem more uh, a much a much bigger story. Um, but, you know, those are just some, some some things to keep in mind. And final thought here is that um, when we're talking about like criminality and things like that, um, a lot of these laws surrounding classified documents, you have to have intent. So with Biden, there's obviously, as of now, no evidence of intent to conceal these classified documents or transfer them to people that they shouldn't that shouldn't have them. Whereas with Donald Trump, um, you know, these documents were mingled in his desk. They were moved around uh, when required, when asked for by the National Archives. He didn't give them over. His lawyer signed off on um, a letter saying that they'd given all the classified documents over and they hadn't. So there's obviously more intent there compared to like the President Biden having these documents in his office or George Bush taking documents that he, he shouldn't have that he maybe didn't know. Um, so, yeah, there's just some key differences. Yeah, so let's, let's, clar right. let's clarify this just real quick. There was no established intent in the Trump situation. I will definitely be corrected on the timeline. There was no established intent, intent on it, as it related to Donald Trump. The, and as Kyle pointed out rightly, this is a regular circumstance 
of presidents leaving office. They do, as is their prerogative, and frankly, I think in a very positive way, they do gather up their documents so that they so it can be archived in their presidential libraries. I think that's appropriate and useful to the American public. It allows for appropriate research and so forth that the archives cannot always give. So um, so it is appropriate for them to do that. But this the, Trump uh, not immediately returning documents is not abnormal. That happens in almost every administration, at least in the modern era. Okay, so I know this could get into a bigger discussion. Thanks for responding, Jim. Kyle, Harry, thanks for jumping on to stay onto the panel uh, on such short notice with Matthias to give us uh, an update on the situation. Matthias, I'll let you clarify what you wanted to clarify before we get into continue the discussion between Joseph and Eugene. Yeah, no, I'll let you get back to to the great space that you have going on. Um, Harry actually pointed out the the just quick fact check that I wanted to uh, mention, which was that the Mar-a-Lago raid occurred in October. In August, and this was revealed on November 2nd. Additionally, I agree with Harry of what he says that sometimes stories are only as big just because of related stories. A perfect example is yesterday, the Brazil unrest, and then this morning we found out Yar Bolsonaro was hospitalized. There's that wouldn't have hit such international coverage if it weren't for the events in Brazil. So that's something to take into account, and I wish everyone. Uh, a peaceful rest of the night. Thanks, uh, Matthias. Appreciate you for joining, man. Appreciate it for the updates. Um, we're going to go back to the discussion. Uh, Joseph, thanks for coming back on stage. You're welcome. Joseph, and now that uh, you yeah. have a, a free place to, to speak like everyone else, uh, let's get a good discussion going. So um, I want to go to a question from the audience, and I, I'm sure you guys will take the conversation over after this. Uh, can you ask for us – I haven't read the question yet, so I'm going to read it as uh, uh, you know, live. Can you ask for us if natural immunity would develop over time and the best path forward until we perfect the vaccine? So I'll, I'll kind of rephrase the question. Um, should we have given the vaccine more time to develop rather than rely on, on, um, on natural immunity? Uh, Eugene or Joseph, who would like to respond to this one? I'll respond. Go ahead. Eugene's talking about anyways. So this is the issue. A six-month-old baby, human infant that's never had a, an infection, a mother that's never had COVID, a six-month-old baby that makes less than 10% by concentration of antibodies than an adult makes, that baby that's never had any kind of training of any sort for any kind of virus can get a virus infection like COVID and clear 10 billion viruses from its body with no training. The concept of training is silliness. We didn't need to be trained. That human baby, each of its lung cells had never seen a virus before in its life. And each of those lung cells in that human infant having never faced the enemy ever before, knew what to do. See, the vaccinologists, they tricked us. The concept of antibodies against viruses is pure hogwash. It's pure stupidity. If you, if you eat, if you eat a bad apple and hours later you feel sick, I get it. You can blame the bad apple. That's not science, though. That's a temporal correlation. Science is about cause and effect. Well, if you feel sick and then hours later you eat a bad apple, 
you are not allowed to blame the bad apple. That's not even temporal correlation. That's reverse temporal correlation. That's what the antibody is against viruses. It wasn't there in the year 2020, the COVID antibody, yet we healed. And after we healed, it showed up. That's not temporal correlation, which isn't science. That's not cause and effect, which is science. That is reverse temporal correlation. It was a sign. It's kind of like having a forest fire and a thousand houses burn. Guess what? You'll find ash at every house that burned down. That doesn't mean if you take that ash and put it on an unburnt house, it will help. They don't have cause and effect to explain how this healing occurred. You don't need training. You know what to do. Eugene, do you have to respond? Oh, sorry, yeah, um, I would love to respond to that. Um, so I think the main issue here is trying to educate everyone here. What's the difference between an innate and adaptive immune system? Um, so an innate immune system is uh, something that you you know don't develop uh, a defense against another virus or a new thing. You're just born with it. Right? That's something that Dr. Joseph Lee was talking about. You have a complement system, which is a you know a mixture of pro- very small proteins floating around your blood that can attach itself to um, you know pathogens. You have macrophages, neutrophils. You know these are parts of your immune system that don't have to be trained. Uh, they can just fight whatever comes your way. But there are some you know, pathogens like the coronavirus, which can evade that innate immune system. And that's where you have to rely on something called the adaptive immune system. You have B cells and T cells, uh, both of which play a very important role in this adaptive immune system. B cells can produce antibodies. Those are the Y-shaped proteins. I I bet all of you kind of are very familiar with. They can float around in the blood. They can attach themselves, uh, in the case of COVID, to the the, spike protein. And then then there's a T cell that has a T cell receptor. That T cell receptor specifically locks on to um, a a part of the COVID-19 virus. Uh, And so, like, both of them, the T cells and the B cells, are part of our adaptive immune system. That's where our immune system basically has to learn how to fight a new pathogen. And before COVID-19 swept the world, it was never before seen in our bodies before, right? That's why the pandemic was new. It was scary. It was claiming a lot of lives. And that's how the vaccines uh, train our adaptive immune systems, both the B cells and the T cells, how to fight the coronavirus. Let's slow down. You said our body had never seen the COVID virus. And you know it takes those B cells at least a couple weeks to be trained and those antibodies at least a couple weeks to be trained. And 80% of people, when they were infected with COVID for the first time, they actually healed without your B cells that were trained and without your T cells that were trained, they actually healed. How do you explain the first time that people got it and healed without training? But how do you explain those other patients that died, you know, because there was death associated with COVID, unless you think perhaps that wasn't COVID related, you know, how do you, how do you justify, you know, especially in the spring uh, of 2020, you know, those, those were real cases. I was in the ICU. I experienced this firsthand. I don't know what you think happened during that time. You think that I'm denying that death occurred? I am saying I, I'm, I'm asking you, I'm asking I, cause, because I, I, I don't I don't really know, you know, you're 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 not a physician and, and I, I'm curious about what you think the immune system was doing during that time. If you stop talking. So this is what happens when the covid virus infected our cells. Remember, 
when you first get infected with the COVID virus in the lung, there were no antibodies, and antibodies are to block the virus from infecting our lung cells. There were no antibodies to block it, so the COVID virus had a heyday, injected its RNA into all of our lung cells everywhere, and yet we survived, 99% of us. And I'm my point is this. If you know what the human body did to help us survive, you can facilitate it. If you don't know what the human body did to help us survive, you are, you're looking for a needle in a haystack. And this is what the human body did. The moment the virus injects its RNA into our lung cells, and remember, it did it as many times as it wanted to. There were no antibodies to block it. And yet, 99% of us survived. So the RNA inside our lung cell is the enemy. And you should destroy the enemy. And you can look as high and low as you want. There is nothing else on earth known to man or science that destroys viral RNA inside a lung cell without destroying the cell, aside from ribonuclease enzymes. That is what was active in the year 2020. And the COVID antibody was not there in the year 2020. The COVID antibody is made up by Democrats, promoted by Democrats, had all the PR in the world, and the freaking molecule was not even there in the year 2020. The ribonuclease enzymes were there. Now, without the antibodies, 99% of us survived. And if you know how we survived via the ribonucleases, guess what? You can facilitate that process. Because so how did we survive, Joseph? Like the people ribonuclease, who did survive. Ribonuclease enzymes destroyed the virus, RNA. Ribonuclease enzymes are designed to destroy RNA. They also destroy our RNA. They but there are people who did not survive. So what, what would you suggest? I mean, because, how do you deal with Because the more ribonuclease enzymes that are activated, the higher your chance of survival. The less ribonuclease enzymes that are activated, the more. So obese people, for example, the body tells you not to eat. They can't not eat. Their cells can't be tricked into thinking there aren't resources. See, every cell in our body... When you're not eating, every cell in your body knows, oh, my God, I have to slow down and eat. They don't go and go on a run for toilet paper. All If there's shortage of glucose in your body, every cell in your body knows to grow less fast. That's the that's if a cell keeps wanting to grow when we don't when we are not eating, that cell is cancerous. All our cells are very well designed to hunker down and not grow so fast when we're not eating. So do you think that the the vaccine helped zero people? Is that is that where you're okay. at? I, I see because when I explained to Fauci the problem with this antibody not being able to cross into the lung, I also said, Doctor Fauci, he responded to me via our building, and he said, "Well, look, our clinical data looks really good, Doctor Lee, and we thank you for your input." And I said that was via Doctor Abelding, and I said, "No, look, I believe your clinical data. I believe the scientists took good data." And I'll explain why it looks good. Because the COVID vaccine gives you muscle aches. Every major review paper on the COVID vaccine, mRNA vaccine says it, the main major side effect is induction of chemokines. That means it tricks your body into making things like interferon. Our body makes interferon. Interferon is antiviral. If you, every person on earth, if they get a sniffle and you give them interferon, 
they're not they're much less likely to get the virus but it's just very expensive but our body does make it now if the COVID vaccine actually tricks your body into making interferon okay i'll agree it helped a few people for a month but if you understand the mechanism of action of how the COVID vaccine worked then you can plan correctly and in medicine if something works because it tricks your body into producing interferon, we can't call it a vaccine. We have to call it a medicine. And a medicine has a risk and a benefit. And the benefit is if you have the illness. If you don't have the illness, we don't give medicines. We don't, I can get meningitis next year. Should I take, you know, antibiotics for, for the rest of my life until I get meningitis? No, because the benefit's very low when I don't have the illness. So it sounds like the point that you're making is that the fact that it was treated as a vaccine as opposed to a medicine, which is like what you give when you already have that. But then it wasn't. Well, what I'm saying. I mean, is, it wasn't considered as something effective when you already have. What I'm, what the, I'm saying. They got, good, they got good clinical data. I'm explaining. You thought you got good clinical data because of neutralizing antibody in the lung. But when you check for how the antibody actually gets into the lung, there's no path for it. So your good clinical data from the FDA clinical trial could not have been because of the neutralizing antibody. Then we have to look for another reason why you got good clinical data, because I don't, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think they're all lying. But it was a false positive, meaning they got good clinical data, but for a very different reason from what they thought. And I spelled that out in 73 pages in February of 2021 with a U.S. copyright. And Fauci got it. And... The campaign against misinformation kept me from getting it out to the general public till now. See, in science, if you, if you get to say, no, you don't get to ask questions. Well, guess what? You're going to look brilliant because you're one-sided, but you're a freaking moron. And Fauci was a freaking moron because every scientist on earth who looks at my 73 pages will say, holy shit, we know a lot less about this COVID vaccine than we ever thought we did. And this guy, you know, in science, if we're not sure about something, you keep going back to the lab and experimenting and researching until you figure the crap out. I'm not even saying they have to agree with me. I am saying the COVID antibody had no path into the lung area infected by COVID. And once they are alerted to that, it's like, whoa, this is crazy crap. We've got to take, take a step back. And I said, look, if it's working because of the reason why I think it, it's working because of the side effect of muscle aches, then the flu vaccine will work for a month. The tetanus vaccine will work for a month. And all that has been shown to be true. So basically, this is the basic concept of an antibody. It tags so, the pathogen, and then white blood cells see that antibody and eat, gobble up the whole thing. Uh, so uh, guess Gene, what? Uh, 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 let, I'll let Eugene respond. It's been a while. Eugene, go ahead. Okay, perfect. Thank you. So I just want to tell all the listeners here the two different ways that, you know, both how the coronavirus works to infect us and how the vaccine works to protect us from the coronavirus. Uh, just to clear up a few things. So when an actual coronavirus particle comes into you know, our lungs or co contacts with respiratory epithelial tissue, it'll attach its spike protein onto the ACE2 receptor on that tissue or on that cell and invade the cell. It would go inside the cell um, and then its messenger RNA um, that composes the inside of the coronavirus, right? It'll go and program the cell to create more coronavirus particles. And then once the cell reaches a critical level, it's produced, you know, millions of copies of the coronavirus, um, they'll burst out of the cells and then infect other cells. It's like a chain reaction. Um, and that's how you would get sick with COVID-19. 
um, how the vaccine works is it's not the messenger RNA for the entire coronavirus particle, right? It's just for one piece of the coronavirus, which is the spike protein. So when um, a messenger RNA for the spike protein is encapsulated inside a lipid nanoparticle and you inject it into your deltoid muscle in your arm, that will go inside the muscle cell and it'll program the muscle cell you know, with that messenger RNA for the spike protein to make more copies of the spike you, protein, but all not this. the coronavirus. We're, we're talking high level. Particle. We're talking high level so, stuff here. So the, the and you're repeating basic that immunology. That the vaccine forces the cell to make is unable to infect other cells, right? Because it's, you're just allowing your cells to produce the coronavirus spike protein. It'll express that on the cell membrane, and then your body will mount the defense against you know that spike protein, right? The B cells will recognize it and make uh, antibodies, T-cells are recognized. So how did your army of antibodies get into the I just wanted to clear up with the audience, you know, like the actual... No, you need to clear up how the antibody into the Kong, Eugene. Before, yeah, so so Eugene, I'll let you finish your point. Also, massive shout out to Grant, who's on stage as well. Grant, good to have you as always. Um, Eugene, I'll let you finish your point. Um, Aaron, I saw you on mute as well. Um, And Joseph, I'll give you the mic afterwards. And of course, Grant, you can jump in anytime. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. I, uh, just one final thing. I just wanted everyone to kind of understand the science behind it because the science can be really tricky and un- hard to understand. And for a layperson who doesn't know all these terms that I talked about or that Dr. Lee talked about, like many of us don't know what a ribosome is, right? Many people don't know what is the difference between a B cell and a T cell. These can get into the very nitty gritty parts of science. Um, Eugene, you clearly don't know what an RNA is. You're giving all the credit to the COVID antibody. Dr. Lee, you're you using ad hominem attacks to bolster your arguments rather yes, than I am. I am. I have the science to back um, it up. Which is the whole, the which is the whole problem of, of the right. whole culture of fear and the censorship that we're trying to get away from, right? Like, I think... The, you're the one that I, wants I think to the, the, the value of guys, the Twitter spaces guys. is to have <laughs> opposing arguments. We're, um, and then, that's right. right we're now, all on the same team. The two of you are talking past one another. Uh, Eugene is is explaining some elementary immunological concepts Very, to the lay audience. Joseph is trying to engage in a more subtle debate um, about the specific but role of funny. antibodies in our in our immune response. And at the same time, I, I sense that the question was about natural immunity, meaning infection induced uh, immunity following. Uh, COVID infection, whereas Joseph was talking about innate immunity, the immunity, the, the sort of first no, line of defense. No, that no, us... no, not what I'm saying. Look at the year 2020. Naturally acquired immunity requires an infection and waiting two weeks for the antibodies to show up. Vaccine acquired immunity requires a vaccine and a booster for your antibodies to show up. Naturally acquired immunity did not exist in the year 2020. Vaccine acquired immunity did not exist in the year 2020. Neither one of those existed. And he Joseph, now, Joseph, now you're you're talking past me. I'm referring to the initial question that was that was asked by the audience member to to Mario, the host, that was posed to both of you. Neither of which, uh, n- neither of you, have attempted to address the question of whether natural immunity or infection-induced immunity may be a way out of the pandemic. But I, 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 Mario, I, I just I want to point out too that we have. Uh, I don't I don't know if he'd be interested in coming up. As a speaker, but we we have Brett Weinstein here on as a listener who's been very involved in uh, these debates and um, he's well versed scientifically on. I saw him. Is he, is he is he is he in the audience now? Because he was. I said him in. 
Yeah. Ah, oh, I couldn't. Yeah. Boston uh, is in the audience as well. Of course, we we know and, Andrew from now uh, Twitter files. He was specifically one of the people that was that was censored. So, getting back to the issue of censorship, and if I could, I I still do want to just briefly respond to Joanna's question about what can doctors do um, if if they're in a position where they want to open up lines of communication and open up the possibility of debate. And maybe maybe while we continue to debate safety and efficacy of vaccines, at least push back a little bit against something like vaccine Aaron, Aaron, mandates. You, Aaron, can you ever imagine a mother vaccinating her child when you explain when there's a warning label on the vaccine that says the antibody has no path into the lung airspace, the part that's infected by COVID? Can you ever imagine a mother ever vaccinating her child with a vaccine that said that? See, why, why, why do you talk about everything else in the world? The big elephant in the room is the antibody doesn't even enter the lung airspace that is being infected by COVID. And why even debate whether you should or shouldn't get the vaccine? There's no mother on earth that would vaccinate their child with this if they knew this. Okay, you can talk about everything oh. else. Want to, Joseph? We're trying. We're we're all on the same Joseph, team, I'm, I'm, and, and we're trying to be effective. We're trying, and I think that that's what Aaron is trying to address. Because you know, as as physicians, we have all met. I mean, we're on this platform for a reason. We've all met, you know, some level of of disagreement or had questions, even just about you know what's going on here. We're that, we're in this. We are we are in this discussion on the same team. You know, science is about asking questions. The more pertinent the question, the more interesting it is. The most pertinent question here is, does the antibody even enter the lung area infected by COVID? No, it doesn't. So that is the most pertinent question you can possibly ask. Now, Joseph, see, this is the whole... I, at, at the same time, I, I'm afraid that while while you have some very interesting um, Aaron, views not, on the COVID if, vaccine, you don't Aaron, have... You don't, don't have a dialectical interesting bone you in your body. You First of all, I happen to agree with you on the issue of safety and efficacy of these vaccines. I'm very concerned about safety and efficacy of that vaccines. Um, I think there should be a moratorium on the vaccines um, until additional research is done. So you and I don't necessarily disagree here. What I'm trying to talk about now, and the, I think the question that Joanna posed was for physicians who have, whether they're where you are, whether they're where I am, whether they're still wondering about safety and efficacy of the vaccines, how can we open up space you know what in our medical means, institutions? Efficacy means that the neutralizing Sorry, go ahead. Joseph, yeah, finish your point, Aaron. Could you allow me to finish before you interrupt? Thank you. Uh, and that's a really hard question. And one of the reasons it's a really hard question is that s science alone is not necessarily going to move the needle on this. So finally getting to my point, um, in the courts, science will not move the needle. I, I know that because I've, I've been in courts dealing with questions around vaccine mandates. And it would take us too far afield to explain why the maybe, courts... Maybe it was... Joseph, 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 I swear, man, please. I'll, I'll give you the mic in right this, after, in please. This case, Joseph, in, in this case, Joseph, you have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, because you're not, fam you're not even familiar with the case that I'm referring to. You haven't read the legal documents. You, don't under you probably don't understand the difference between uh, intermediate or strict sc scrutiny and a rational basis review. So there's legal issues in place that have nothing to do with science. 
that, that frame the vaccine mandate cases very often uh, in such a way that you cannot engage in evidential fact-finding in the court. You can't debate the science in the courts. The other problem is that many of the institutions mandated the vaccines, not necessarily for science, uh, scientific or public health reasons. Uh, they, manded, they mandated the vaccines uh, because they had relationships, sometimes relationships that compromised uh, their ability to make sound judgments on this. They had financial or other uh, misaligned interests that moved them in particular directions. And those are some structural issues that have to be dealt with um, in order for, let's say, our institutions, our academic institutions, our higher education institutions, to be sufficiently independent and free of centralized mechanisms of federal funding at the NIH and uh, free enough from the influence of direct funding from pharmaceutical companies to be able to make sound decisions on a policy like vaccine mandates. So my, my suggestions to physicians are, first of all, try to connect with other physicians who are asking questions. Second of all, get involved institutionally uh, and whether it's medical societies, whether it's, um, you know, c committees at the hospital or um, decision making committees at an academic medical center and and begin looking at some of the structural issues, um, even before you start debating the science, take a look at um, exactly what's influencing these policies and the ways in which those influences may be undermining our ability to look at the science. I wish that just asking the right scientific questions or posing uh, you know, definitive scientific studies alone would resolve many of the problems that we've seen during the COVID pandemic. But having done that for the last three years, Mario, my I'm own view... I'll let you respond. Yeah, just, I'll, I'll let Aaron, Aaron and, by and the way, I, I sent you I sent you a co-host invite, by the way, Aaron. She's got to accept that. Okay. Uh, so okay. so uh, Catherine recommended uh, I co-host you. Aaron, Aaron has a tendency to dominate this space and talk for a very long oh, okay. time. I'll let, I'll let, yeah, so, but I think okay. it would be nice to I'll let Joseph respond. I, I do think we should bring up some of the other voices that I mentioned earlier. Um, there, there's more Aaron, I, I could say. if you just don't that, want me to um, talk. Because no, I'll, 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 let, I'll let you respond. Yeah, Joseph. I'll let you respond. Go ahead, Joseph. And then Eugene, I know you, you've been you had your hand up for a while, so I'll let you go right after Joseph. Go ahead, Joseph. Aaron, you're not asking the right scientific questions. What I am saying right now is, hey, the freaking emperor has no clothes on. The antibody is not even in the lung infected area infected by COVID. You think that kind of science won't sway judges? Aaron, you just didn't ask the right scientific questions. And if you didn't happen to ask the right scientific questions, don't let your ego get in the way of this. Because... The simplest way to end the COVID vaccine is when the general public realizes, oh, my God, the antibody doesn't even enter the lung. I thought it was a neutralizing antibody. I thought it was supposed to bind the virus. I thought, I thought it was supposed to stop the transmission. Well, if the antibody never enters the lung airspace, do you think the rest of us care about it? You think the rest of us care about your legal definitions that I can't explain right now? Okay. You think vaccines are that impressive? This is – Eugen wants to explain basic immunology let me explain basic immunology an antibody binds to a bug 
and the macrophage sees that antibody that's bound to the bug and eats everything. Now, the virus does almost all its damage inside a cell. The antibody doesn't even chase the virus into the cell. The macrophage doesn't chase the virus into the cell. That whole idea of how the antibody works falls apart with viruses. Now, look, look at measles, the measles vaccine. Here's how simply I destroy the measles vaccine. Because they want credit for the decrease in measles in the past 50 years in the U.S. I say, look, mom wakes up, sees red dots on her child's face and tells the child, no, Johnny, you have to stay home. That's isolation. Isolation is the strongest thing known to man to prevent viral spread. And my theory on why the instance of measles plummeted in the U.S. over the past 50 years, visualization by mothers, teachers, and nurses of red dots on a child's face and isolation five miles away from school, that child cannot spread measles. Okay, so they think it's their measles vaccine. I'm saying it's visualization and isolation. They can never disprove me. Because you can't do a study to blindfold a thousand people for five years to prevent the very usefulness of seeing red dots on a child's face. Let's go to measles. That was measles. Let's go to polio. If I'm a 14-year-old kid at the time of polio and my friends have got paralyzed, I'm scared to death because my friends just got paralyzed. Everyone's scared to death. No one knows where it's coming from. It could be ants that got a new virus. No one in the world knows. And everyone's freaking out. And everyone's just wondering where it's coming from. It could be aliens shooting lasers. Now, the moment the researchers discover the mode of how how polio spreads, fecal oral, that's the mode of transmission. That means an infected person with polio has to have a bowel movement. That, that shit has to end up in my mouth. And I have to swallow it. And I get polio. Hey, now, if I'm a 14-year-old kid at the time, yeah. I can easily say, I can stop that. Your mic is unmuted, Aaron. I can't mute you. He's got to mute your mic, Aaron, please. You, your theory that vaccines are so amazingly good science? No, they're not. The fact that the an- you think that the antibody is useful against the virus? No, it's the only science that they have is you have a forest fire, a thousand houses burn. You think that ash is somehow useful because you find it every time a house burns, you find the ash. Sorry, it's not always useful. We know antibodies in our body sometimes aren't useful because when the antibody attacks our heart valve, we call it rheumatic fever. It's not good. It's not useful. Not every antibody in your body is useful. And it just so happens that antibodies are really good at bugs that are outside the cells. They're not really good at bugs that are inside our cells. It's a completely ridiculous fight. You don't call the police for mice. You don't call the police for roaches. Uh, uh, They're different enemies. Thanks, Dr. Lee. I'll, I'll, I'll let you wrap it up, Dr. Lee, and I'll go to Dr. Gu to just respond. He's been waiting for a while. Do you want to just wrap it up quickly? Last, yeah, go ahead. Last point. Humans, we've never made a medication that works against bacteria that also works against the virus. Evolution made us a medication very effective against bacteria called the antibody. Why would it be useful against a virus? It's not. Thanks, Dr. Lee. Joseph, with relation to measles, can I just quickly ask, with relation to measles, because you brought it up, measles is infectious before the the spots are visible. So how does that align with your theory and how measles was effectively eradicated through vaccination? Because clearly there's a whole time during which it's infectious, not just when it is red, correct? 
And if you isolate for the whole week, aren't you going to get a less a lot? People less aren't going to isolate when they've got no symptoms. Your, your theory there was that you see a kid with measles and you stay away from him. No, 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 no. This no, no. contagious hey, for four or five days before. Nothing it's is nothing is black and white, is it? If that kid was let to go to school for a week, wouldn't it be a lot worse? Nothing is black and white in this world, right? If that kid could go to school for a week and not be isolated, wouldn't he spread a lot more measles than if he stayed home? Please. I just, I just think it's a strange it's, point to say that, people, that, that the measles point. vaccine yeah. had nothing to do with. It's not a strange point. Look, okay, here's, here's the math on this, all right? My son is 19. He got his last measles vaccine at four, all right? Do you think he had measles antibodies when he was five? Oh, he didn't, did he? Did he have any when he was six? Oh, so sorry. Measles antibodies are not titanium. They don't last forever. COVID, vaccine, COVID antibodies last for eight months. Measles antibodies, you think, last for 15 years? So the measles antibody, my, last, my son's last shot was at four. At five, he had none. So please tell me how it helped him. You can't. I'll go to Dr. So Dr. I just Dr. want to circle back. Yeah, I want to circle back to the audience's question. Um, you know, Aaron, I, Aaron and I don't always agree on many things, but the one thing we can agree on is I think we did gloss over the audience's question, and I want to show respect to that. Um, so I believe the and question, Doctor Lee, Doctor Lee, Doctor Lee, Doctor Lee, please go ahead, um, uh, Doctor. So I believe the question that the audience asked was, um, would it be better to have used acquired immunity to COVID, like have people actually acquired infection to get out of the pandemic? Um, rather than vaccinate people. Um, and as a physician, and based on the evidence, I strongly believe that the vaccines saved a lot more lives than just allowing the, the coronavirus to do its thing, infect everybody with, and, and let everybody have acquired immunity to get out of the pandemic. Because yes, it's true, there are two ways to get out of the pandemic. We could do nothing, let everybody get infected, and then the ones who recovered and survived, hallelujah, the ones who died, like the millions of people who died, you know, sucks to be them. Or we could try to have an intervention, like having these uh, coronavirus vaccines distributed out um, to the public to save as many lives as possible. So in the end, when the pandemic is over, right, we save a lot more lives having vaccinated people than to just have, let nature take its course. So I want to go back a little bit, if we can, to the topic at hand here, which is the Twitter, uh, the, the Twitter files that came out today. Obviously, we did see that uh, at least former government officials, and in previous Twitter files, we did see that that current government officials were pushing narratives on um, Twitter in particular. Now, unfortunately, we don't have files from various um, uh, hospital chains, let's say, or massive hospitals or healthcare providers and stuff. For the doctors on the panel, were there ever was there ever any pressure that you guys felt? to actually push the narrative that was being uh, uh, perpetuated by the federal government or health officials in general. Dr. Good, do you want to take that one first? Uh, I can take it. Yes, um, sure. I'm, I'm happy to take that first. Um, I would say that, of course, the, you know, the coronavirus pandemic, especially in the beginning when we didn't know too much about it, it felt like a very new and threatening thing um, very similar to, you know, the, the start of a war, right? And so the culture of fear that, that happens when something scary is happening, you know, I think definitely influenced many physicians in the medical community to toe the mainstream line as much as possible. I don't think there's much, you know, denying that. We saw plenty of evidence for that. This particular Twitter files drop 
was uh, talking about how um, I believe it was Twitter, right? Um, censored certain tweets or labeled them as misinformation when the tweets were talking about the fact that perhaps it is actually superior, uh, you know, acquired immunity to COVID may be superior to um, vaccine mediated immunity, right? Uh, and that was censored. And I think it was wrong uh, for Twitter to, to censor tweets that were talking about what is very likely the scientific truth. Now, was this, was yeah. this something that you felt pressure to, uh, to keep on with it, you know, from hospital officials and, and such? Um, that's a great question. So unlike Aaron, who I believe has, you know, suffered re- retaliation uh, for his beliefs, I never experienced any, you know, hospital administrative or any kind of, you know, medical licensing body retribution because I have, you know, advocated and I still do believe that the vaccines are effective. Uh, so the, right? I've got, uh, um, but, so go ahead, Dr. Gu, finish off. I've got another question from the audience. Yeah, that's not to minimalize what other physicians, if they have been punished administratively or had their careers, you know, ruined because of their views. Um, I think that that's their story to tell. And I think we should be here to listen to what they have to so say. So this one. Yeah, and, and I think, oh, just, just another side of it, you know, um, working again in the operating room and then in the ICU directly, I would say that there was a lot of peer-to-peer pressure. Um, it's not as though you're having regular interaction with necessarily CMOs and, you know, members of administration, but there is a lot of peer-to-peer pressure. And because it became so politicized, um, I do think that that had quite an impact, at least where I work, you know, out here in um, in the city. So I don't I don't know if what the other general experience was for people, but that was that was mine. So I've got a question here. Actually, I'll read this one because also for Eugene, and then we'll go to the next one. Probably Dr. Lee would want to take it or Aaron. Um, I have a question for Eugene. Why vaccinate children when the data shows they rarely get sick and never die from COVID? He keeps dabbling down and wanting to vaccinate everyone. Yeah, that's a great question, and I think that's something that uh, Dr. Drew, which, who is not here but usually very eloquent on this topic, talks about the different uh, risks for different populations. Um, I would agree that younger people have less risk from COVID-19 than older people, right? Uh, we've seen that in the data and in the evidence. Um, what's up in the air right now with that question is whether the benefits outweigh the risk for vaccinating children. And, you know, based on the evidence that I've seen, I believe that the benefits do outweigh the risks because while the vaccines are not 100% in every single scenario going to have no adverse effects, the adverse effects are extremely rare compared to the number of lives that are saved when, when a patient is vaccinated. Dr. Lee, I see you on mute. You want to respond to this particular point? And then we've got one more question and then we'll wrap it up for the audience. Yeah, I, I think it's very interesting that he talks about benefits when he can't even, Eugene can't even state a hypothesis for how the vaccine works because this is the current understanding of the hypotheses. The vaccine, he went through all the belabouring points. The vaccine produces an antibody in your blood. In order to get inside the lung, it has to cross the lung barrier, which can stop water molecules that are tiny, 18 Daltons in size, 18 protons in size. The antibody is 145,000 Daltons, 145,000 protons in size. If a water molecule that can be stopped by the lung barrier is a Diet Coke, the COVID antibody looks like a small car. Now, it can't get in. Then if it can't get in, how does it neutralize the little virus before the little virus infects our lung cells? This is the stupidity of science today. Eugen can't even explain that. I'll tell you. There isn't a single peer-reviewed paper on Earth that describes an active transport mechanism 
that can move this gargantuan antibody across the lung barrier into the lung area infected by COVID. And if you want to pretend COVID does all sorts of other things, well, if it does, if the antibody doesn't get into the lung, what's the point? I want to just say to the audience one thing I forgot to say again. My team's going to kill me. Uh, on my profile at the top, uh, subscribe to the newsletter. We do have a team now that are going to start soon summarizing all the spaces that we do and just sending out in newsletter form. So make sure you go on my profile and subscribe to the newsletter. And, of course, follow every panelist that was speaking and is speaking on the panel. Um, Dr. Lee, I want to kind of get, wrap up the space with a quick question. Unrelated to the, to the, to the, to the vaccine and the discussion so far is – how was your experience being, uh, I'm going to use the word, light, uh, silenced uh, in the early days of COVID? And I'm guessing you were suspended from Twitter as well. And, and um, how does it feel to be back? Uh, I never even tried Twitter because I thought my go- my job was to alert the officials. So I spent a lot of time with the NIH, a lot of time calling the CDC directors, a lot of time emailing the FDA, a lot of time making phone calls to them. I went over and over. I called thousands of people. I didn't even get on Twitter because I thought I was supposed to stay professional. I I had an account from a long time ago for my LASIK, and I got on three months ago. And um, I got, like, October 15, I think I got 10,000 followers, and I had zero. And then uh, I grew to 28,000. But you know what? I was silenced for two and a half years, and I'm pretty angry right now because – Everywhere I went, the idiots like goo. No, 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 Joseph, Joseph. You just, you we're ending this space on a good note. It went really well. You stopped interrupting, and then you just called him an idiot. I'll, I'll let you take that back. Uh, and I'll, I'll, since I interrupted you, back. you did, you did say one thing. I am anti-vaxxer. I despise all vaccines. So you, you're saying you, it goes beyond COVID. Yeah, I'll take it back. But this is my point. Okay, thank you. My point uh, is that it's not fair. That everywhere you go, they ban me, they cancel me. Even my professional forum, Caronet, which is a LASIK cornea physician forum, they got into the same issues. Now, people say, I'm mad. Well, I started very professionally. I was very reasonable. Everyone, everyone started name-calling me. And all I was doing was asking questions. How does the antibody enter the lung airspace? Now, have you heard you didn't try to answer that we're question? Going, we're, no. we're, I know, I know. I know we're going back to the medical discussion. But um, so, so I was just asking about the, the experience getting silenced by so many people. And um, uh, No, nobody's talking about it getting silenced from both sides. So Dr. Joseph Lee is somebody I also manage as well. But it was very difficult to bring him bring him in in the networks because of the level of uh, division that there was. Even something that we don't talk about is the division even within both sides. I don't know if the left has any divisions on their side because I'm sure a lot of them get paid for what they do, but none of us do. And so a lot of us are putting money out of our own pockets, doing things, you know, under our own means. And so, yeah, it was very hard for me to bring Dr. Jolie in into our networks. I mean, he can tell you that story. That's probably for another space. So that's kind of what he's talking about. It took me a long time to even get him back into anywhere to even be heard of. Yeah, <laughs> and it's been a pleasure having him here. He's very knowledgeable. And uh, Dr. Lee, I appreciate you You know, uh, starting to give other speakers the time to speak a bit uh, and, and stopping the attacks. No, I appreciate you, man, and uh, would love to have you on future panels. Uh, but I think as a, as a great panel, I see we just brought up uh, uh, Spice NYC. I know you wanted to bring up, bring in your father. Uh, I brought up Andrew and Dr. Dr. Hader as well. So, guys, we'll do another space soon. Um, 
to, to continue this discussion, um, I do want to give uh, just a quick word to Aaron to kind of wrap up what was discussed so far and any final thoughts that was mentioned, and also bring up Grant as he's requesting for just final words before we wrap up the space. Aaron, you there? All right, I'll wrap it up for everyone. Uh, look, I hope you enjoyed the space. I think it is a... We started off as an urgent space, as you know, when we started a space out of nowhere because there's breaking news. In this case, there was a file drop. We don't have any preparation. So I just want to thank the team in the background that prepared the panel and got everything organized and it ended up being a great discussion. Um, Dr. Gu, pleasure to have you as always um, and you know, participating in all the debates. Uh, Dr. Lee as well, thanks a lot for jumping in and being patient with us and uh, and having those discussions would love you on a separate panel as well because these discussions will continue as the Fauci files drop. We will continue to have balanced debates as always for the audience. I want to thank Catherine and Tara for helping moderate the room along with Nick uh, for moderating the room. And uh, yeah, it's been a great uh, a great space. I really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, Carolina, any final words? Tara, Carolina, Catherine, Nick. Mario, I just want to thank you and I want to ask you to keep doing what you're doing. Uh, these spaces have been incredibly balanced. I mean, you're going to be scrutinized no matter where you go, especially when you're talking about the topic of censorship. For me, I had no intentions of, you know, being in these spaces, even having social media. I became targeted just like many of the people here censored as well. Um, you know, eventually I was scapegoated, but, you know, our freedom networks have to survive because this is the fight of our lives. So, yeah, they want to ca cause a lot of massive destruction, you know, but we have to stick together and doing these spaces and bringing people who absolutely have opposite views it's been so refreshing so i want to thank you for doing that and keep doing it and i wouldn't worry about what anybody has to say just do what you have to do uh, and keep going because i think it's been balanced so far lots of people that were censored on both ends and even in the middle are here and i hope they continue to come it's been been a crazy two days yesterday we had the brazilian uh, protest space that you were there carolina helping us out carolina helping us out and now we're discussing covid it's been a crazy a great start for I the week I had to drop out a few times because this is still going on right now. And I share with you the, the disturbing admission by Biden's White House, you know, press secretary, Jen Psaki, earlier and give you the structure of how all these people started censoring us. Early as, I want to say, May 2021, I'm sad that this is the conversation just now getting started publicly. Uh, but on July 16th, 2021, uh, all this information was brought out and I was given directions to several lawyers of major doctors here who were suing Twitter at the time. Now that it's under Elon Musk, I don't know where we're going with this. Uh, but, you know, this is a conversation that, you know, the government directly coordinated between, you know, corporations. And not only that, I want to leave everybody with a piece of advice. You don't want to take the vaccine then uh, put a, a restraining order against Pfizer and all those corporations and bring it to your job and say, hey, you can't touch me. Thanks, Carolina. Joanna, any final words on your end before we go to Catherine? I saw her on mute. No, you know, just, just thank you so much, Mario, for hosting. It's always a pleasure. And thank you to the audience for the uh, thoughtful questions and, and insights. Uh, Tom, I see you. Uh, Tom, you're, you're a regular on the panel. Um, any, any thoughts on what was discussed so far? Yeah, I, I just hope you cover it all. I encourage everyone to go back and look at the files that have been released that detail how uh, Pfizer had a special influence with Twitter. We know separately through other uh, disclosures from Judicial Watch, uh, they were also working with the FBI to target critics, such as James O'Keefe. And, of course, we have these other set of Twitter files dropping that are go beyond Twitter. They're Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, files where the White House specifically sought to 
uh, reduce the visibility of Tucker by uh, of of uh, Tucker Carlson and uh, Tommy Loren, a um, uh, another commentator, and they specifically directed Twitter to take down or excuse me, Facebook to take down a post by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. So you have the White House not 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 slyly doing uh, censorship, but directly directing uh, Facebook to take down material of American citizens and reduce their visibility. That's an extraordinary development and raises, in my view, significant civil and criminal liabilities for those involved. Uh, it, it, the Twitter files, we always have to remember, is just the tip of the iceberg because it's much worse over at Facebook and YouTube, which is continuing specifically the COVID censorship in aggressive ways. Appreciate it, Tom. Sam, before we go to the co-hosts, any, any final words on your end, man? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the debate is valid, absolutely valid. Um, the vaccine debate is valid. Um, I, I don't believe that in, I don't believe that today's Twitter files drop um, actually gave us enough information to, to be able to judge it. Uh, I think I think we need a lot more information on this particular area to be able to properly judge this. But you know, I do I do have personal questions myself about about the vaccines. So it's not like I'm I'm some great vaccine supporter. But uh, you know, I just think what's most important is that we're open minded um, and we don't just have this confirmation bias before we even come into these things. Because I what I feel is that. You know, anyone who is an anti-vaxxer or anyone who's a pro-vaxxer, if we want to use these expressions, um, is just going to sort of take the evidence and put it into the methodology that suits them. And I also don't believe that this particular leak, which has been very limited, should have been done by, by, from somebody, with all due respect to him, who is a known anti-vaxxer. I don't believe that's the way that Elon should be controlling this. I think there should be several sources that release information at the same time to at least give balance to the debate because if it's all controlled by somebody who's on who's on one side of the debate the information remember the information is being controlled that we're able to see but absolutely valid great job to everyone mario tara nick catherine everybody involved keeping this thing together all day as always this is the best space for for this stuff um this you guys get this stuff together so quickly i know mario you're working so hard in the background to get the balance on the panel so big kudos to everybody for that as well uh nick Catherine, Tara, wouldn't be possible without you guys. Final words before we end the space? Sure, I'll just jump in real quick and I'll say um, clearly, you know, there's a lot that we still need to know. Uh, The Fauci files are going to be super telling and you know that we're going to have a damn good panel covering that. We have a damn good space covering that. I'm really excited for it. We expect it sometime this week, so stay tuned to that. And again, uh, really appreciate all the, the doctors on here on both sides. Um, it's a, it's always a fantastic debate. So you guys deserve everybody, audience, make sure you follow them. They are fantastic people. So thank you all. Thanks, man. Catherine. And I just like, go ahead, Catherine. Yeah, I'd like to add that disagreements are actually a wonderful thing. And I think we need to seek more disagreements because disagreements are how you get to the truth of something. And even within yourself, if you believe something, try to seek disagreement with yourself, uh, you know, because that's how you test things. And and sometimes, you know, I will play devil's advocate very often in these spaces. Even, you know, I think people sometimes think that I believe something that I don't merely because I will question things because I'm trying to figure out if my own beliefs are correct. So I think that's important. But one thing that we all, even though we may disagree, one thing that I think we do kind of have some consensus on in the room is that we should be able to have freedom of speech, that we should be able to not have suppression 
of science, of, of people being able to dissent, to have different opinions. And I think that's so fundamental and that's what we should really protect. And, uh, you know, that's a very healthy thing to have. And I hope that's something that we can agree on. Tara? Mario, thank you so much. Today was incredible. Another important uh, dialogue that needed to be had. And I look forward to the next and the next and the next because like, you know, uh, Catherine just said, we need to be able to have these conversations by shutting down voices, you aren't proving them. You aren't proving anyone a liar. You're proving you for what they have to say. And that's an issue. So I just want to say thank you Rio, for a well-rounded panel. Um, I'm glad Sam came back in. Uh, hopefully no hard feelings and we'll talk aside and I appreciate all of you, even the people and especially the people I don't agree with, but continue to come back and, um, you know, say peace. And I think that's the important part of all of this is that voices are heard from all uh, different ranges and especially doctors who are remote and silenced and sensitive. So I appreciate that you're doing this and giving everyone that platform. Mario, I know it's a lot of work. So I just I can't commend you enough for everything you've done to bring light to all of these different topics. So thank you so much. Thank you, Tara. Thank you for all the co-hosts, all the panelists, the audience. It was a great space out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting to do it. Thank you so much for anyone that didn't have the chance to speak. Obviously, we get you know hundreds of, of requests to speak in every space. We try to give everyone a voice. We'll continue to do so. Thank you so much, everyone. Love you all. Thanks for the co-hosts, and I'll see you all on the next one, hopefully not tonight. Bye, everyone.